Let's now go to Kennebunk, Maine, where Emmy Award-winning, Peabody Award-winning comedy writer and author Jim Earl is standing by. Hey, Jim. Hello. Thank you, Davey. Jimmy cannot come to phone right now. He is busy sanitizing my cucumbers. Is this? I'm a first lady for you who doesn't know me. Melania Trump. Yes, Davey. I have public servicing announcer. Davy, today I want to speak to you about the coronavirus. Yes. Yes, coronavirus. Yes. And mm. what it means for you and family and your chickens. While many changes will be made now, this is not how we will live for all times, forever. No. Do not despair. For soon, all Americans will be back at life to normals like before with the showing of the teats and double penetration in all three holes. What did you just say? For soon, all Americans will be back to, at life to normals like before with the showing of the teats and double penetration in all three holes. Yes. Yes, Davy. People will return to works. We will gather at the places of worships, at the concerts, on the sporting arenas, where public hangings will take place with free ice creams for all after the clearing of the Juden ghettos. Mm. My interests include horseback riding, tennis, and long walks on the beach. My turnoff include bad manners, halitosis, erectile dysfunction, and Peyronie penis. Peyronie's disease. Yes, Davy. Yeah. As the CDC continue to study the spread of the COVID-19, the coronary virus, they are recommending that people wear cloth face coverings in public setting, where social distances measures can be difficult to maintain, such as grocery stores, pharmacy stores. Remember, this does not replace the importance of using the dental dam while doing oral and anal. Okay. Right now, I am very serious because you can tell with my eyes being very, very squinty. Yes. And another thing, Davy. Also, I have more work done on my face than the 405 freeway. And now, if you like, I will show you my teats. No? Well, uh, no, that's not. You, no, thank you, though. Then I continue. Okay. To all of the medical personals and all the frontline disponders, on behalf of a great nation in the most difficult of times, thank you. As Donald and I get ready for his great recampaign, we wish to appreciate all of your efforts to keep the infectious zombie dead away from our big white house where all the gold and liquor is kept. You may penetrate me now. No, 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 then I continue. Okay. Davy, I urge you all to stay connecting with the family, friends, and loved ones.
through Davido chat, phone calls, social media, and other safe technologies like Pornhub, where you will get the latest information on cream pie, squirt, shoe worship, kinky bitch farting whipped cream enema, and of course, double penetration for all three holes. Mm-hmm. Stay safe and remember, while many of us are apart, we are all in these together, like in my film, Butt Riders of the Purple Sage. It's a great film. Our prayers are with all who are fighting these invisible enema. Coroner 98. Don't just be best. Be better than being best. Be better, best, best squared to the 12th power. Thank you. And Heil Hitler. <laughs> Davy, Davy, don't get sick. It is waste of time. Would you like to penetrate me now? Oh, no, no. Happy Easter, Jew. Davy, since we're not able to celebrate traditional Easter egg roll on the grounds of the White House this year, I want to read one of my favorite children's books, The Little Rabbit by Alexander Soshetnizen. I'm sorry, who? Alexander Soshenitsyn. A little tall bunny had been waiting for the rain of fists to stop for a long, long time. It had been years since feeling kindness of all kinds. At last, a day had arrived, he thought. There were so many puddles of blood in the courtyard as the bunnies were herded into another line, but this time to freedom, Barney thought. No more spending time in cave using bare paws to pry out iron ore. A flower petal fell on Barney's cheek. A wind rushed more petals of pretty flowers over awaiting Barney's like a beautiful rainbow of flower petal snowflakes. Peter Patter, Peter Patter, back to the world caves, shouted the man in tower with Bonnie gun. Bonnie's ran in panic in all directions. Peter Patter, Peter Patter, away from cave with iron ore and freezing cold. Into surrounding hills ran Bonnie, hungry, cold, yet hopeful, because Bonnie was now free. Free to die in snow, far away from work camp, where other bunnies die in cold caves. And snow-covered bunny, Peter Patter, Peter Patter, and bunny was finally free. Happy Easter, Jew. Beautiful story. That is all I have. Jim? Yes? Does the President of the United States know that... uh... This is a goodwill tour. She's making. You should tell the White House she's up there, just so they know that she's not. Would you like to penetrate me now, Davy? Oh, thank you very much, Madam Purse Lady, but uh, I I don't. Better you and Jim. I can show you my teats. No, thank you. 
Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Ecom. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're a go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. We are coming to you live from Liberty University. Please welcome, he is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. Please give a warm Liberty University welcome to Howie Klein. And I've been here many times, and I think... For the applause. I, I think everyone knows me well enough to not have to applaud me. Consider Liberty University my second home. <laughs> <laughs> we also have uh, Boris Johnson here, and he thought that was very funny. All right, Boris, you, you you should rest. You still need a little rest. Okay. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. They raise money for progressive, some socialist candidates around America. And you should read him over Down with Tyranny, required reading. I want to ask you about Andrew Cuomo, Wisconsin. And I also want to ask you about the Trump response to COVID-19. Wisconsin, the results are in. And Joe Biden has been declared the winner of the Wisconsin primary. He won the Alaska primary on Saturday. And Bernie Sanders has endorsed Joe Biden. He says we need him in the White House. That's what Bernie says. You say Bernie could be the greatest president of your lifetime. You love Bernie. He's transformative. He says vote for Biden. If you, sir, do what Bernie says... Why would you not vote for Biden? Well, well I, I, I would never vote for Biden. I don't believe in lesser of two evils, and he's very, very evil. So uh, I, there's nothing that would make me vote for him. Now, yeah, I don't want to get into the whole discussion of what if you lived in another state than California, mm-hmm. what if you lived in Florida or a swing state, because I don't know what I would do. I mean, I think I would not vote for Biden. I, I detest Biden. I've hated him since the 70s. It's not, you know, for a lot of people, they never heard of him until Obama picked him to balance his ticket, uh, or they never heard of him until he ran for president, some, some of them. And that's not me. I know Biden very, very, very well. I know his record from the first time he, he made it onto the national stage, um, championing racism. And there's nothing that would make me vote for him, including my hatred of Trump. So that's me. Now, I ran a poll this morning after... Um, after Bernie endorsed. And um, the poll, I'll read it to you exactly. Um, Bernie just told Biden to support your candidacy that I endorsed uh, to make certain we defeat somebody I believe is the most dangerous person in modern history. And then I ask the readers, does this influence how you will vote in November? So the largest, the, the plurality of people said, no, uh, I'm not voting for him, period. They will not vote for Biden. They don't care what Bernie says. Not voting. Uh, the second biggest amount is uh, no, they would have backed Biden anyway. 
without Bernie endorsing him. Mm-hmm. And then very close behind that is, yes, I trust Bernie. And then there is a significant number of people, about 15%, who say they're still deciding. Now, in, in, in theory, I could be in that I'm still deciding category because I'm not saying that it's impossible. I mean, if, um, you know, if, if Biden turns around and says, you know, I was wrong about uh, Medicare for all, I was wrong about the Green New Deal, I'm behind both of them now, and that's the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to, you know, and he, and he says this to the American people loud and clear. Uh, I, I would probably vote for the guy. I mean, if I don't, there's no chance he's going to do that. Uh, but if he did, I, I would vote for him. So maybe I'm still deciding. Otherwise, no, I'm not voting for him. The, the, he, did, he did say some good things about what he, uh, about, you know, moving in the direction of uh, Bernie and Bernie supporters. But it was too little. It, it, I didn't feel that it was enough there. You know, he said he would go down in um, Medicare from 65 to 60. Well, that's good since he's always wanted to go from 65 to 70. So <laughs> in the other direction now. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, 65 to, uh, to 60, I mean, that's, that's kind of, you know, low bore. That's really small. Uh, you know, he could have at least said... 65 to 55. Not that it would have made a difference to me, but it probably would have to some people. And then his um, his, his reducing student debt thing was better than before, but 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 not much. I mean, yes, I'm glad he did it, and and I hope he uh, is a man of his word. And if he becomes president, he uh, he sticks to that stuff. But but it, it's really too little for me. Uh, you know, I, I I want a great president. We we had it within our grasp. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I just, I've had it with these uh, kind of uh, politicians like uh, Joe Biden. What concessions do you think Bernie was able to get from Biden before he endorsed him? I mean, Bernie dropped out last Wednesday, so it took a week for him to endorse Biden. What- yeah, those are the, I, just, I just said the concessions. Those were them. The, uh, you know, there may be some more to come. I, I wouldn't be surprised, but, but they were basically going down uh five five years in in medicare and uh, the age is now will if he if he wins he'll make the age uh, uh 60 instead of 65 and then he 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 did some tinkering with uh with student loan student debt uh, situation and you know it's it's good it's it's the opposite of what trump is doing although you know someone mentioned to me they wouldn't be surprised if trump says you know there's such an emergency now uh, he'd probably call it something else, but say, you basically, we better go for Medicare for all. I mean, Trump has no ideological bounds to keep him from doing that. He just wants to win. And if he figures that's the way to beat Biden, he'll do it. Yeah, but he's, isn't he in bed with the health insurance companies? He he might suggest it, but then they'd straighten him out and say, you can't do this. Yeah, well, right. I don't believe he would actually do it. But just, you know, think of, think of September. Uh, he's down... 10, 15 points in the polls. There's no chance he's going to win. There's nothing he can do. Just to, and he figures, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. Right, right. So to younger people who believed in Bernie and now he's not going to do a third-party run, how do no, you convince them to partake in our democracy, the two-party system, 
do Bernie supporters have any sway in a Biden presidency? How do you hold somebody like Joe Biden's feet to the fire if you're a Bernie supporter? You can't. And Bernie, I think there'll be... uh, I'm just getting... I never really had a sense that a lot of Bernie supporters didn't uh, support Clinton. There were some, I know. But I didn't get a sense that it was a really big amount. But I get a sense this year that it will be a really big amount of Bernie supporters who will not support Biden. He is... uh, Biden is detestable. And it looks like he's a rapist. But... But Joe Biden on Tuesday night won the Wisconsin primary. We got the results finally from last week, and it's significant. So one of the things that catapulted Bernie to the front is he was going to lead a grassroots uprising, take over the Democratic Party and transform it the way Trump transformed the Republican Party. But looking at Wisconsin we're not seeing the appetite for somebody to turn the tables over. We, we didn't see the appetite for a revolution. Were you surprised that there wasn't as large a, an appetite for Bernie? Uh, maybe a little surprised. Mostly I was other things than surprised, uh, like angry. But the, you know, he, Bernie did get a significant number of votes. So it's not like he, you know, got got no votes. He he did get he did get uh, you know plenty of votes, and those are the people that have an appetite for um, a, rev- a political revolution. So, but they weren't enough. That's the problem. They were up against an entrenched establishment, and uh, you know that was it. They couldn't. They they were unable to beat back that entrenched establishment. That was the end of that. We like to think that voters are independent-minded by who endorses the candidates. You got a sense that Obama... In, in, some, in some ways, they're influenced by that. They're influenced by a lot of things. And the thing that really is the most absurd thing in the world to me is when people are influenced by uh, who they think is going to be the winner. Why would they do that? Why not just vote for who you think is the best? Why who you think will be the winner? If you think they're going to be the winner, they don't need your vote anyway. Uh, and I think after uh, um, Biden's big win on Super Tuesday, uh, Wisconsinites, some Wisconsinites said to themselves, well, I'll, I'll, I'll vote for Biden. I want to be with the winner. That seems really dumb to me, but I think people do that. But if you... Not in Wisconsin, everywhere. But does the Democratic establishment have the power to put the thumb on the scale and and give it to Biden. I mean, the, the, getting... Yes, they do. I don't, I don't know what you mean by thumb on the scale. I mean, the, the, the thumb on the scale was Obama's thumb this time. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, getting Mayor Pete to drop out and endorse Joe Biden, that was significant. I mean, Mayor Pete... And Amy. And Amy. They were in, they were in the race, you know, especially Mayor Pete. He had... Significant number of delegates for him to drop out. Had he not dropped out and given the American voters a choice, had people laid back, had the Democratic establishment laid back and allowed nature to take its course, would Biden have risen from the dead after South Carolina? I I don't believe so. Uh, Could be wrong, but I but I don't believe so. I think that uh, 
you know, Obama played it really cool and really smart and waited to the last minute and pulled every, you know, every string he could pull. And they, they knew what they were doing better than anybody. Okay. They had it all gamed out. But you have to tell people that just because Bernie lost doesn't mean he didn't win. He did transform the discussion in America. Almost single-handedly. Right. Like I said, yeah. Biden has spent his whole political career trying to raise the age of uh, med- med- Medicare retirement and from 65 to 70. Uh, just a couple of years ago, right. he agreed to do that. And, and suddenly now he's agreeing to bring it down. Not enough, but bring it down from 65 to 60. So yes, Bernie did change some some way that people look at th- look at issues and uh, look at uh, American politics in general, and we'll see how significant that is as time goes on. Okay, in ancient Rome, when there was a crisis built into this system, they would have a temporary dictator who would take control of the democracy in ancient Rome, and you know straighten. Straighten the ship, and then when the ship was sufficiently straightened, the dictator would step aside, and they go back to their regular representative democracy. Cincinnatus is famous for going back to tend his farm. That's who George Washington modeled his presidency after. Um, he was the only one, I think. Well, before the fall of the republic, they did have temporary dictators. Andrew Cuomo... Giuliani, these guys in a crisis, when you really need them, they rise to the occasion. But they're good dictators when you need them. But as far as governors and mayors, I'm I'm sorry, what were you saying? You broke up. Are you trying to goad me into yelling and screaming? No, what I'm saying is that if you need a Giuliani and are good dictators? When you need a dict, sometimes when the towers come down or there's COVID-19, there's a crisis and you need to shut the economy down and you need to get the hospitals to run on time, you need a dictator. But for the day-to-day operations of government, Cuomo, Giuliani, not good guys, right? How about Cuomo, uh, not good guy at all in any way, including a terrible dictator? Uh, you know, when San Francisco, San Jose, Oakland, the six counties around the Bay Area all shut down, uh, de Blasio saw that working and said immediately, I want to shut New York down. And Cuomo immediately said, screw you, you're not shutting nothing down and wouldn't do it. Cuomo was responsible for more corona deaths than anybody in America other than than uh, Trump. Uh, Cuomo is is not a good guy. He's a really bad guy. And if he became if he was the dictator, I would run. Uh, you know, and Cuomo just did it again over the weekend. Um, De Blasio said he planned. He, he said he had just announced something that's already obvious. They don't have any control over that there would be no school until next year. There'd be no school this year. And within. I don't know, an hour of him saying that, uh, Cuomo went on the air and said, we're not talking about a snow day. We're talking about a decision only I can make. He can't make it. Mm-hmm. And I haven't made it yet. I mean, that's who Andrew Cuomo is. That is Andrew Cuomo right then and there. That's him. He's a dick. And uh, I know this isn't what you meant to talk about, but 
I broke news today that no one else has. I've been called by uh, reporters from every uh, every source imaginable asking me to talk to them about it, and I can't give my I can't give my source. Uh, so I've declined, mm-hmm. including friends of mine in, in the mainstream media. But the you know so Andrew Cuomo's main political operative is in prison. Uh, you know he took the fall for Cuomo and he's in jail now, but. His current main political operative is this woman, uh, Maggie. What's her last name again? You, you, you have it in front no, of you? No, I don't. Another room. I'm sorry. Okay, so Maggie something. She And she was his campaign manager as well. And she, uh, she has been out soliciting um, large corporate donations from clients of uh, Cuomo's and supporters of Cuomo's. And also she and for a woman who's running against AOC. So they're trying to take out AOC. They, you know, Cuomo would never come out publicly and try to do that, but he's doing it uh, surreptitiously through uh, Maggie. And she's also trying to hire uh, skillful operatives who can go up against AOC in, uh, and, and defeat her in her reelection campaign. Right. So there's the person you want to, you want to be the dictator. Right. In, in terms of, of Giuliani, I, it's, it's beyond my uh, – you, I know you have to be joking. It's beyond boggling of the mind that anyone can think that Giuliani is good for anything except uh, a trash compactor. Right, right. And I don't mean operating it. He was a calming influence after he put the terrorist command center in the World Trade Center, even though they told him not to. Uh, for a brief shining moment, he was a calming influence, and Cuomo. Not on me. Well, yeah, and but Cuomo, you know, he's brought back the PowerPoint presentation. People thought that was a dead art. His powerpoints are pretty good. <laughs> I mean, yes, Cuomo is about Cuomo, just like Trump is about Trump. These are people who are about themselves. These, he's not doing anything uh, much. I, I mean, people can compare. Cuomo to uh, to Trump and say, well, look how much better he looks than Trump. All right, let me play. You know my. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I said, you know my answer to that. Well, you dedicated a lot of time over down with tyranny to these reports coming out of the Associated Press and the New York Times about how Donald Trump mishandled the, the virus coming out of China. That a lot of people warned him. Peter Navarro warned him. And Fauci warned him. One of the stupidest people in Trump's administration, and, and even he figured it out. Memos weren't being read. Just to play devil. Oh, it's Maggie Moran, by the way. Maggie Moran. Just to play devil's advocate. Just to play devil's advocate. Shutting down the world economy. That's a pretty big ask, given how greedy. Trump couldn't shut down the world economy. The world shut down the world economy before Trump was aware that that COVID-19 was going to kill people. So let's just talk about what Trump could do, which was basically influence some backward uh, red states to shut down. And not not that not that many of them. That's what Trump could do. Um, most of the most of the American economy was shut down by mayors and governors before Trump caught, uh, tried to catch up to them. And some of the some of the Trump states are still not shut down. I mean, if Trump wanted to shut down, he would say to some of these governors, shut the shut the thing down and they would do it because they're afraid of him. 
but he hasn't done that, and they're still open. Yeah, America is is already has more deaths than any other country in the world, uh, and America America is on uh, track to have probably more deaths than the whole rest of the world, uh, and that's because of one person, Donald Trump. He is he's doing this wrong. He is you know, and now he's determined to open up the economy or whatever, open up whatever he's going to open up. And not that he can do that either uh, on May 1st, which is just a few weeks away. That, that's insane. I mean, his own his own uh, responsible de- departments are telling him if you do that, we could have a million deaths. And he and he's just, you know, blithely going along saying everything's going to be great. We'll open up in, on May 1st. Right. And he said the key the, that out of his ass. Right. The, Why May 1st? It's not up to him. It's up to the virus. It's up to the way uh, the, the virus is handled locally. He's doing a really bad job on handling it. He isn't doing well. He's doing poorly. And he also said the cure should not be worse than the disease. What we're discovering is when you shut down the economy, we don't have an infrastructure in place to protect Americans who are dependent on an income. We can't send out the stimulus checks. We can't handle unemployment. We can't send out the stimulus checks? The the stimulus checks are... I'm sorry? You're using the wrong pronoun. Well, he can't. Mnuchin can't. That's right. He can't. He can't. Republicans don't belong in government. They don't believe in it. They don't know how to do it. Do you think if Obama was president, the stimulus, stimulus checks would have been sent out and spent and a new one would be on the way already? Yes, they would be. And not just Obama. Even any Democrat would know how to do that, and, and some Republicans. But this, this fool, I mean, the word emergency means something. Emergency has a meaning. Congress passed emergency funding for American families. Everyone was supposed to have their checks weeks ago. We're hearing that some people might not have their checks till August or even September. That's Donald Trump and his regime, his dysfunctional regime that is the most incompetent regime in American history. And they see everything as an opportunity for themselves to privatize everything, including the post office. They want to destroy the post office now. Yes. What are you most worried about this week? What 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 do you you know, we're being told stay indoors Shelter in place. I'm staying. I'm indoors. <laughs> I don't. I haven't been out. So what are we missing? Because while we're indoors, while we're asleep, you know, money never sleeps. Greed never sleeps. What are we not paying attention to? I'm not saying I'm asleep. I'm very awake, um, and I'm paying attention. But uh, I, I just, I, I'm just trying to, you know, not in, in L.A. this week. They said, I don't, I think they're crazy, but I'm going along with it. They're saying this is the week to not under any circumstances go out. I don't see how they, they come to that conclusion, but you know, what the hell? I don't, I don't need to go anywhere anyway. Okay. If and when we ever get back to, uh, normal. We will. Don't, don't say if and when. Okay. How do you see this economy and our democracy change? Do you think we're going to have mail in ballots? By I do. You do. I do. You know, there, there are, I think, four states that do it already. There are other states that are talking about doing it. The only states that discourage it are states that don't matter. I mean, who cares what Mississippi 
does. They're, they're just a red state. It just doesn't matter. Uh, you know, if they could, they could do, they could end democracy. It wouldn't even matter. They could, they could have the governor pick the, uh, who the electoral votes go to. It just doesn't matter in a state like that. And normal states either already have it or have a form of it. So in other words, the, 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 what the big problem is now is, um, that you have to, you have to, um, in, in certain states, you have to ask for it and you have to have an excuse. So, you know, you take a state like, uh, say, uh, Pennsylvania. So if Pennsylvania, if you want to, if you want to vote absentee, you, you ask for a ballot and they send, and you, and you don't have to tell them why. They just send you a ballot automatically. Same thing in California. Whereas in Utah and Washington and Oregon, uh, they don't, you don't even, there's no, there's no balloting place. There's no, there's no, it's all, if you want to vote, you vote by mail. That's it. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the state gets a, uh, uh, gets a ballot in the mail and you fill it out and you send it back. So what the question is, is the, the southern states, basically, it's not only southern, but, you know, Indiana as well. It's just a bunch of red states. I think there are 11 of them. Yes, there are 11 red states that say if you want to vote by mail, you have to, you have to, you know, <laughs> bring a doctor's note. Right. I mean, you have to, you have to be able to say why you can't just come down to your, your balloting place and vote. So they're, they're discouraging vote by mail. Right. Right. And that's it. And it, it doesn't matter. None of those states are up for grabs. Those are all Trump states. Right. So so we shouldn't even think about them. Let them, you know, go along their merry way and depopulate themselves anyway. OK, last question. Five star restaurants, three star restaurants in Beijing are opening. You can't get a reservation in the high end restaurants in Beijing. What's it going to take for you? Because you're a foodie. What's going to take for you to Go to your favorite restaurants again. Oh, my God. I thought you were going to say go to Beijing. Well, that was my next question. Uh, you, you travel all over the world. What's it going to take for you to get on a plane and go to Thailand? A lot. A lot. It's going to take, it's going to take a lot. I'm going to have to be really certain that it's safe. I'm not going to go to a five-star restaurant because it, uh, they have a sale. I'm not going to jump on a plane to uh, Morocco because it, there's a cheap flight. That's not going to happen. I, I, I'm anxious to go uh, back to places I like and to travel and to eat in good restaurants. But I'll tell you something. I am. You, if you could only smell my kitchen right now, it, it's like heaven. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely like I'm cooking every day. I'm cooking the most incredible, delicious food. I am losing weight because I'm eating, I'm eating so healthy, and I'm, like, loving it, absolutely loving it. So, you know, I, I don't know how much a rush I am. I mean, I can order from these restaurants if I want to, and I have once or twice, twice. And, uh, and how did you feel? That, how did you feel ordering from these restaurants? Did you trust that they were sufficient? Yeah, yeah, I, I totally trusted. The restaurants that I eat in and know, and I, and I do trust them, and I, um, you know, I, yeah, I was fine with that. So, and the thing is, is that my, the food that I'm cooking is better than the food that they're, that they're bringing over. The reason that I, I, um, I ordered was because those, those two days I couldn't, uh, I didn't, just didn't have the time to do it. I had other things going on and couldn't, uh, couldn't prepare food. Got to eat. 
And I was just, you know, everything is so completely delicious. And, and you can't get, even get the stuff I'm making in a restaurant. Right. That you is, know, I'm very happy. That, that is privilege because it's rolling through the prisons. It's rolling through the detention centers. It's rolling through the homeless shelters, rolling through. That's horrible. Yes, yes. And and they uh, they not, they don't go to the same restaurants I do except Harvey Weinstein yes and um, and they don't travel either yeah yeah and Weinstein probably travels on his own jet yeah well Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack are they going to endorse Biden no okay we have uh, you know we're, we we're, we we have always been. A pack about uh, congressional races. Bernie was an exception. We never, we never endorsed, even even though I voted for um, uh, Barack Obama in 2008. We never endorsed him. Uh, that's not what we do. We're we're about house races, and i will be happy to go back to my roots and uh, just looking at house races. And uh, other people will endorse Biden, and he's taking lots and lots of corporate money anyway, so he doesn't need our money. And he's 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 not for us. Now, on the other hand, perhaps my partners disagree, okay. and perhaps I'll be voted down. No, it's got to be unanimous. No, we're not endorsing Biden. If Biden uh, if Biden says and convinces me that he means it, that he will embrace Medicare for all and the Green New Deal, then you and I can have this conversation again. How was last week's Simmons? Oh, not only was the Simmons great, but because I talked about it on the radio, I had about 25 people asking me for the recipe. And now I've had people, you know, just writing me these glowing letters telling me how it was the best Simmons they ever had. What? And it was fantastic. I was cooking it on, while you, I was doing your show. I know. And Liberty University, how about a hand for Howie Klein Simmons? They love Simmis here at Liberty University. Almost. Well, I'm glad that they like Simmis. It probably reminds them of the Ten Commandments. And I just want to say in something uh, in the Simmis that they wouldn't they would not normally find, and that's daikon root. But it really made it even tastier. Okay. Howie Klein, founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pact, required reading. Read Down with Tyranny. One more time, Liberty. Get, Give some Liberty University. Before you ask Liberty to applaud, let me just say one thing to them. Yes. That I hope that they already all know this, but that Jerry Falwell Jr. is a closet queen. <laughs> they, they don't think that's true. They'd be wrong. And they could go to down with tyranny and uh, just, you know, put in a little box, Jerry Falwell Jr., gay. And they'll get lots and lots and lots of information proving that Jerry Falwell has been having sex, not just with his wife, uh, but also with with young, attractive males. (laughs) Are you saying that Jerry Falwell Jr. met a pool boy at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami and they were compromising pictures of Jerry Falwell Jr.'s wife that that uh, Mr. Cohen, Donald Trump's consigliere, had a prevent from being shown in the National Choir? Is that what you're suggesting? Add in more. Okay. Let's give a warm Liberty University goodbye to Howie Klein. Thank you, Howie. Stay on the line. Do that. I love your Liberty University idea. Okay. (laughs) Stay on the line for one second. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. You sad, pathetic hump.
Let's go to Beijing, where Timothy Ulrich is standing by. He is a writer for China Global Television Network. Hello there, Timothy. Well, hi there, David. Hi there, all listeners. How are you doing? Very good. You were one of the hits of last Friday's office hours that we held on Zoom. One of the most interesting nights we've had. I hosted a Zoom meeting. We had you in China. You went outside. And using your iPhone, you were able to interview people in Beijing, while the rest of the world who attended our Zoom meeting watched. We had people all over the world. We had people in Ireland, Australia, Mexico City,、yeah. Toronto, London, and there you were in Beijing, and you said, "I'll show you what it's like here in China." And you walked outside with your iPhone, and we had about seventy-five, seventy-six. Attendees, and our mouths were agape, not just from the technology, but the way you were able to to cover the streets. One of the things you pointed out is that life is back to normal in Beijing. We saw them lining up for food at a farmers market. A lot of us are saying we're getting inaccurate reports out of China, but you maintain that when. They say life is getting back to normal in China. It's getting back to normal, and you kind of proved it on our Zoom meeting. You walked around Beijing, and we saw people. Is life continuing to get back to normal in, in Beijing? I understand the fancy restaurants now are sold out in Beijing. The high-end restaurants、yeah. you can't get a you can't get a reservation. It's going to be a while before Beijing gets back to normal. I'm going to be honest. Just because it's a global pandemic, you know, it's a it's a massive issue.、Um, in so far as you know, normal going going to the farmers market type of、uh, daily life, you know, the, there's some normalcy coming into play. There really is. High end restaurants are booked up. Have you been out to a restaurant? Have you gone to say a Burger King or a Starbucks, or are they open?、Oh, yeah, yeah. So me and my girlfriend the other day went to a, a teppanyaki place, right? Like a Benihana's. Okay. I I mean it was it was basically empty.、Um, empty because、yeah. it's just an odd location, but yeah, things are. Are you know restaurants are starting to fill up more.、Um, initially, we went to this one location, and a lot of people were lining up.、Um, there were a lot of people in the restaurant.、Uh, it was a big deal, you know.、There、were they wearing masks?、Malice. Were they wearing? Oh,、masks? absolutely. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Lots of masks.、Gloves? Everybody was wearing masks. Gloves? Not so much gloves. No, no. Like you're required to wear gloves.、Uh, uh, sorry, not gloves, but masks when you're coming into any、um, 
uh, sort of sort of mall area or any any sort of uh, convenience store uh, supermarket those types of areas where there's there's uh, people who are uh, in the common area. Okay, so the waiters, are they wearing gloves and masks? The maitre d', the chefs? Uh, yeah, your servers, they're wearing masks for uh, your protection and their protection as well. Gloves? Not so much, no. But presumably they're washing their hands. I hope they are. <laughs> You're more likely to order a hot dish than a cold dish, I would assume. Right, and at this place it was a teppanyaki, so it's coming fresh off the uh, off of the uh, the stove there. Okay, are you ordering takeout? Do you have delivery people bringing food to you? Yep, yeah, because I'm lazy. And do they bring it into your apartment, or do they drop it off downstairs and you go down and get it? Oh, so I've meant, uh, I've meant to mention this, but yeah. So in my apartment, I have to go out outside of my gate, open the gate and, uh, let, uh, pick up the takeout mm -hmm. in, uh, in larger communities, you have to go out to the community gate and pick them up. Now you write but, for China global television network. Are you going to their offices or are you working remotely? No, I, I go in. It's TV broadcast. News never stops. And you're in an office situation. Yes. Yeah. And what kind of social distancing are you doing? Everybody's wearing masks. Um, you know, there's been some staggering uh, people who had not come. Um, okay, so let me phrase this right. If you if you traveled outside of Beijing during the Spring Festival, you had to you had to quarantine for fourteen days, which I had to do, and then you were allowed to come back into the office. Oh, so that was an office order, not one from the state. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This was coming more from our office. Uh, there, there are state regulations in place now, which say like if you were outside of Beijing, if you were outside the country, you have to quarantine. And how do they monitor the residents to make sure that people are obeying the the quarantine laws? There's a there's a varying mix of that. So um, some people have said that you know their their um, their building managers are very intrusive in this. Like if you leave your apartment, they'll be right there and say like, "Don't leave." Mm -hmm. um, mine was very forgiving in that. Um, are people turning in their neighbors? I no 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 no. No, that's very like cultural revolution. Not so much. Okay. I'm sure if I went and picked up my groceries downstairs and came back up, people would understand. I asked but, you on the Zoom show, the town hall that we held Friday night, had you been tested for COVID-19? You said no. Correct. If you wanted to get tested for COVID-19, are there tests readily available? Well, I don't know if I wanted to get tested. 
if I could get tested, you know? Um, who get, then who gets tested? That's interesting. Who decides who gets tested? If you're showing symptoms, if you came into contact with people with COVID-19, I'm sure you're prioritized is the biggest thing. Um, honestly, I, I, I don't actually know. Like if I walked into a fever clinic right now, which is right down the street from me, if I went in and I was what like, is a fever? Hey, what, what's a fever clinic? So a fever clinic was set up after the 2003 SARS outbreak in, in uh, well, around the world, but especially in China. So fever clinics were set up. If you have a fever, you go to those areas. It doesn't matter if there's an outbreak or not. Like, I've been to a hospital. They've asked me if I'm running a fever. One time I said yes, and they sent me to this special, like, uh, incubation type area where they test me for uh, flu or you know very v- various diseases mm-hmm. um, and and fever clinics are very specially set up to deal with uh, outbreaks like SARS right right okay well there are 156 new cases of COVID-19 in China along the Russian border. I want to ask you about that in a second. Are they seeing new cases in Beijing? Uh, yes, they are. Um, Beijing is a, is a port of entry for, for, for uh, many foreigners, many, um, many people traveling to China, including Chinese nationals. Right. So there are imported cases. And actually what Beijing has done is diverted those flights to other cities surrounding Beijing to uh, try to mitigate that type, of, uh, that type of influx. Okay. So we were told that Russia had zero cases of COVID-19. Then we're beginning to see that they are getting COVID-19. And now a city along the border with Russia in China, I guess it's about 156 new cases. What what happened? Yeah, it's really interesting. Russia, I mean, they didn't test. They really didn't test. They closed their borders almost immediately to China. Um, and then there were a lot of Chinese nationals who came back who were infected with the coronavirus. And now you have a makeshift hospital on the border with China in, in Suifenhe, which is a, a very small town along the Russian border. I see. But the feeling is that they have it under control in China. That's the feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that. The Belt and Road Initiative. China is building ambitious infrastructure projects all over the world in Africa, kind of like almost like the new Silk Road. Did that play any part in the spread of COVID-19? I think it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, the first major outbreak in the Middle East was in Iran, which is a Belt and Road country. I feel as though it's interesting to to kind of push questions into that. Um, 
Yeah, you don't hear people talking about the Belt and Road Initiative anywhere else other than uh, this show. I think this is the first conversation I've heard about it because the Belt and Road Initiative goes to Tehran, then Istanbul, Athens, Venice. I mean, all over the place. Yeah, right. It expands into Africa. It expands. There's also a maritime Silk Road into, into South America. And what is the Belt and Road Initiative specifically? It's what a, is it? It's a trillion-dollar initiative to expand trade, infrastructure building, uh, the, the well-being of, of millions of people. So it's a very expansive project. I think that it's um, it's it it's akin to uh, you know that um the 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 World Bank, the IMF, the right. Oh, what's that called? The, the, the IMF. Are there are there are there strings attached to Bretton Bretton? What's it called? Bretton Woods. Bretton Woods. Right. Um, there are certainly. But I think that what's it, what it's taking from the Bretton Woods institutions is the lessons that it's learned. You can't force people into development and force them into debt. At least that's what, um, that's what I've read into it. That's the theory of it. Right. You know, whether or not that, that expands into practice is another issue. And I, I certainly hope for a lot of these countries along the Belt and Road that that's certainly the case because you're, you're not only talking about Central uh, West Asian countries, but also Eastern Asian countries like Serbia, you know, uh, uh, Eastern African nations, a lot of these countries that certainly need development and need uh, what's in it for what's in it for China? So China says we have all this cash. It's got to go somewhere. We're going to build a bridge in Istanbul. We're going to pay for it or at least lend you money to build this bridge. What's in it for China? Collecting interest on a loan? What what why would China do this? Why are they parking money in all these different cities? That's an interesting, uh, interesting question. And I think that a lot of it goes to geopolitical power, having, having more say in what's going on in the world is certainly soft power as well. But also, uh, I, I would also like to think that there's some, some good going on. And are there overseas military bases that come along with these investments? Yes, there have been in Djibouti and Sri Lanka. Uh, I, I I think that that's the uh, that's the I, I I don't need I I don't know any other extent of that. But those are certain particular cases that have arisen from that. So, and I think Sri Lanka, for the most part, is a trade base. Djibouti has expanded to be more of a military base, but that's more for strategic purposes. Because Djibouti is along the oil lanes in order to ship oil out of the Persian Gulf. You have to pass through Djibouti, so it's convenient to have a military base in Djibouti. Speaking of Djibouti... Djibouti... Djibouti yeah. is landlocked, just like you. Oh, 
Okay. Did Enough like about my joke? Leave my Djibouti out of it. Is Djibouti leave landlocked? Djibouti. Is Djibouti? It I is. always thought. I thought Djibouti, Djibouti is landlocked. Yeah. It it's not part of the sea lanes. Nope. Okay. It's it it's kind of it's kind of squashed there between Somalia and uh, Eritrea and Kenya. Okay. It's kind of like must there. Okay. All right. Before you go, the factories. You didn't have... like my Djibouti. You're you're kicking me off because of the Djibouti joke, David. No. no. I, I didn't like it. I was offended by it. I'm also ashamed because I thought Djibouti was along the, the sea routes that carried oil. So I feel ashamed of myself. The uh, World Health Organization, Donald Trump has threatened to stop funding for the World Health Organization. He says they're in cahoots with China, that they that China and the World Health Organization do a pretty good job of hiding these epidemics from the world. What is the relationship? Is there an unholy alliance between China and the World Health Organization, as the Republicans claim? Certainly Giuliani is claiming that yesterday. I don't think so. Tedros is certainly a type of doormat when it comes to, to global geopolitics, but, you know, this is all just projection. This is all just America blaming its issues on uh, another country or another institution like it has for so long. And Trump, Trump has monopolized just blaming every issue, exporting every issue to everywhere else. It's never the U.S. It's never the global elite it's never the u.s elite who is to blame for this when clearly it is mm-hmm. i mean the, you, you have you have the new york times the washington post bloomberg cnn all these outlets coming out and publishing these investigative reports saying yes the u.s absolutely messed up on his handling of this that we knew that the cdc was warning about this pandemic as early as november before Wuhan even knew about the app. Well, I, I, no, that's that's a weird. Um, yeah, I don't want to get into that because that's just a kind of strange, strange story that's been that's been circulating. But I, I would like to point you to a, a interview that Anthony Fauci did on Saturday, uh, U.S. time on MSNBC, where he said that we knew about how big of a deal this was in mid-January, mid-January. And all of a sudden, it's a big deal now, but it wasn't back then when it really should have been. It honestly should have been. It, it You know, um, putting well, aside me, PPE. Okay, so there are a lot of flus that come out of China. Have the Chinese seen a flu like this in recent memory and the kind of lockdown that they had to mandate in recent memory. Nope. No, no, absolutely not. So this is, this this is is a a first once in a generation. I mean, SARS, SARS was a really big deal in China. 
but it wasn't this substantial. Okay, it and the Chinese government, the Chinese government locked down Wuhan when? When? Let's see. Lockdown occurred about mid-January. In mid-January. And by then, we... January? We, I'm trying to remember. I, I, I honestly don't... By then, we knew it was coming. Yes. I mean, we knew early January that it was a massive, massive problem that um, there, there were, um, were asymptomatics asymptomatic spread of this virus. Yeah. So An argument could be made. I, I, you know, Trump should be frog marched to the Hague and that whole administration yep. should be, but you know, Fauci, a lot of people think Fauci dropped the ball. St. Fauci that he didn't give a full throat. His, his warnings weren't full throated enough. I, you know, this is a disgrace. People are dying and they didn't have to. However, it is kind of hard to shut the entire world economy down overnight. And when you think about this thing becoming apparent to us in January, and then by March 16th, we've turned off the economy, that's six weeks. That's Then again, we haven't done it really in the United States. There's still some governors who are being lax. It's just incredible to think that you're exactly. going to shut down. 70 days of denial. Yeah, I'm not this defending it. This is what the Washington it, but, Post said. Yeah, I, I'm not defending it, uh, the behavior. No, it, right, right. But, no, I know, you know, I know. But, but how do you convince bankers and industrialists to shut the economy down? I mean, it's, we moved, some, some would say, no. uh, again, in 70 days, to shut the entire economy down, uh, one could argue that we moved quicker than one could imagine, given the greed that I would us. I would argue no, no, I know I know what you mean, but it could have been done faster and it could have been done without the input of private industry, which right. is what was happening, you know. Uh, Trump wanted to keep his gains in the stock market. This was right. this was proved by the Washington Post and the New York Times. Uh, it, you know, Trump vehemently denies seeing this memo from Peter Navarro, his top trade advisor. Uh, but clearly, that's what was in play, and he met with the with the chief executive of Blackstone. Right. Just right. this massive. Uh, investor industry. Right. And that's what was happening at that point. He was, he was thinking more about the economy, not about you. He wasn't thinking about you, David. He wasn't right. thinking about any of your listeners. He was thinking about how he was going to keep in power come November elections. Right. Because right. he made, he made 10, 10 monies on the stock market. Yeah. I'm Ten monies. Yeah. I, many I'm, monies. He had I, many monies. Yes. I'm completely broken right now by Trump. And it's a little Stockholm syndrome. I'm not defending any of it. All I'm saying is it's remarkable, given the greed, that they mm -hmm. that they didn't keep the economy going. I'm just stunned that it that it took as little as seventy six days. 
to, to shut the economy down. I agree. Obviously, it should have been shut down 76 <laughs> days ago. But it, but uh, well, what do you, you know, from China looking at the United States, when do you see us getting back to the new normal? It's going to take a long time for China to get back to the normal. Nonetheless, America. Well, the factories have reopened. I think it's like 70% of the factories in China are back in business. Right. And uh, I, I saw a poll, 30 per, uh, 36% of Chinese businesses feel as though they're going to be up and running in the next two months. But what does that mean for the global economy? Because China is the global engine, the engine of manufacturing. So this is where it all starts. Right. Does uh, China, in the end, benefit from all this? No, no. I would, I would absolutely disagree with that because. China shot itself in the foot when it shot it uh, when it shut its economy down because you're not talking about mass global uh, metanational companies you're talking about average people who are being shuttered away from their jobs and I feel as though you know this will this will come back on them this will come back on the average worker in China who is not able to access their their um, their manufacturing job their services job even this will this will greatly affect the chinese economy it'll it'll it, some economists predict that this will shudder it into a into a depression a depression in which it, um China has not seen an economic um, contraction in 40 years. This is a massive deal for China. Well, China's, uh, wasn't China's economy slowing down? The growth wasn't what it used to be. Yeah, but that's, that's all relative, right? I mean, you compare, you compare relative growth to the U.S., uh, China's been growing exponentially compared to the U.S. in the past uh, half a decade, uh, okay. sorry, half a century. Right. So when you look at what's going on in the United States right now, where we, you know we've had 10 million layoffs in the past couple of weeks, we're seeing food banks that don't have enough. We're seeing people who can't get their unemployment checks processed. They can't get their stimulus check. We're seeing starvation here in the United States. It's underreported, but people are already starving. They were starving, quite frankly, before the economy got shut down. In China, can you accommodate in China the hungry, the dispossessed, the poor? Are there systems in place to feed those without means? I, I certainly hope so. I honestly don't know that question because it's far beyond my purview. I really wish that there was because I hear these horror stories coming out of America. And I, I, I really think about my neighbor, you know, not my neighbor living next to me per se, but 
somebody who is dispossessed in China. And I really right. wish that there is. Right, right. Finally, the wet markets. I yep. maintain that before we judge China's wet markets, we should judge what we eat. You know, most of the people dying from the coronavirus have a comorbidity of obesity. Something like 90% of the people who are dying from the coronavirus here in Manhattan are obese. So that has something to do with our diet. Before we take on the wet markets, we should do something about what we're eating. The wet markets in China, what are they going to do? Are they going to have crack down on them? Are they going to close them? What What is going on? Do you know what a wet market means? I would assume a wet market is what we have like at, in Seattle, Pike's Market, where you walk around and you see fish floating in a tank and it's alive and you say, I'll have that. Kill it. That's what I would assume a wet market means. And you have live animals that are butchered there. That's on the, the connotation. Yep. Or you say, I'll take this chicken, I'll take this chicken home with me and kill it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the connotation is that it's a place where you can go and get live animals slaughtered. But a wet market literally means a place where you go and there's wet goods as opposed to toilet paper and batteries and uh, toiletries. Those types of things. That's the dry market. The wet market is uh, produce, um, uh, poultry, meats, and goods. Those are. Uh, that's what the wet market means. But what the connotation is is a place where you can go and get animals slaughtered live. Um, the, Which we have in the United States. I mean, that's something that you absolutely do. Right. 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 When Lindsey Graham talks about wet markets in China, he uh, sorry, is it is it Lindsey Graham or Mitch McConnell? Yeah. Lindsey Graham was complaining about the wet markets. When Lindsey Graham talks about that, he means this place where this mystical place where you can go in China to get pangolins slaughtered. I have not seen a pangolin for sale in China. I've maybe not been to all the wet markets in China, but I can tell you if I go to my local supermarket, I cannot get a local, I cannot get a pangolin slaughtered. Can't get fresh pangolin. But but the story out of Wuhan is this virus came about because somebody ate a pangolin or a bat. That's a that's a certain story which is being challenged at the moment as we speak. There's a there's where a, did where did we get it? I, did somebody have sex with a pangolin? I hope I not. Hope, that would be I hope so. That would be painful. Uh, it'd be very painful sex. Actually, pangolins home. are used uh, both parties. <laughs> okay, let's 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 keep this dignified. What is the theory in Beijing? Where did COVID-19 come from? I, I honestly hope that the epidemiologists are keeping this open in terms of where it exactly came from. 
We do. We, we do. Know. We do agree that it came out of Wuhan, though, don't we? Well, the outbreak started in Wuhan, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this uh, this zootronic uh, transmission occurred in Wuhan. Right. At right. this certain wet market. You know, right. we we. We don't know. We don't actually know where the Spanish flu began. Kansas, for example, it began in Kansas. But there's people who say that it began in China. Well, they say the Black Plague started in China. <laughs> so you're but saying it's, it's convenient to blame all this stuff on China? Oh, exactly. It's it's very convenient for everybody to export the blame elsewhere, right. mm -hmm. because then you can just you can just say, oh, the this death toll, the deadliest death toll in the in in the entire world for this outbreak is because China lied. Right. You know, this is this is the exact line that we knew about at the end of March. Thanks to the Daily Beast doing some investigative reporting, uh, revealing some diplomatic cables from the State Department that said exactly that. Blame China. Right. And Spanish flu, blame Kansas. Well, interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Timothy Ulrich, will I see you Friday night at 9 p.m. for our office hours? Yeah, I'll have something something special planned, yeah. Do you really? Maybe. You want to do Man on the Street again in China? In Beijing? Right. Should we do, do that? that? Okay. Maybe. What time is 9 p.m. Eastern Standard in Beijing? 9 a.m. So it's exactly 12 hours. Yep. That's interesting. And that would be 12 hours ahead of us, correct? That would be the future. Correct. Yeah, it, it's the future. Okay. Very interesting. Timothy Ulrich is a writer for China Global Television Network. He joined us today from Beijing, and he'll be at our Zoom meeting this Friday night at 9 p.m. If you'd like an invitation, of course, it's invitation only. Only way to do a Zoom meeting, go to davidfeldmanshow.com. You'll see little button at the top in the menu that says office hours click on that and ask for an invite and we will send you an invitation hopefully you'll show up we're limited to a hundred people attendees i don't think we're going to get a hundred how many do we have about 70 timothy do i get to go you get to go you get an invite what hell what? yeah well what what do you think great news what i do don't know think? I, I thought How are you going to do your reporting line? if you don't? If you're not a uh, attendee, <laughs> okay, I guess I owe okay. you an apology. I was, I was mad at you. What? Well, I I told you that during the Zoom meeting. I said I was kind of yeah. mad at you because we're discovering that we can't really trust the numbers coming out of China. But then I talked to you and some other people, and well, you know, you really can't trust anybody, and maybe China isn't. Nope playing with the numbers. And but you're saying it wrong. David, you're saying it wrong. You have to say China. 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 Uh, all right. Stay safe there, my friend. Timothy Ulrich, we'll see you Good Friday well. night, 9 p.m. on Zoom. Stay on the line. How, give your, by the way, give your Twitter account. When I'm posting this fucking... show, 
Oh, you, you don't even know. Twitter you know how account. long it takes me to find your effing Twitter handle, and you always say, "Oh, you didn't blog my Twitter handle." What you get? Because I can never find it. It's like it's like two fifty nine. I'm trying to post the show, and I got to find your effing Twitter handle. What is All right, it? It's at Tall Man Tim Tan. Tall Man Tim. What? Tim Tan. All right. <laughs> I once I, there was one one episode. It took me twenty minutes to find your Twitter handle. I wanted to go it to was bed. A different Twitter handle. Was, uh... I, I just want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> yeah. listening. This show drops at three a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Tuesdays and Fridays. If it's late, if the show isn't delivered at three o'clock, I get a lot of complaints, and there's only one reason it's late. It's this man's fault. I am looking for his effing Twitter handle. And I, it is it, not my fault. Yes, it is. It is. Nope. It's because yeah. David's on heroin. That, yes, that, yes. That too. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I'll see you Friday night. Stay on the line. Timothy Ulrich. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. You sad, pathetic hump. He's back. Jeff Garland is back. It's been a while. Jeff Garland, you know him from everything. Curb Your Enthusiasm, the Goldbergs, Wally, and most importantly, he played Eddie Pepitone's brother on the sitcom that we did on the David Feldman Show. You played a, I don't know if you remember, but you played a drug dealer. a Toby. Toby. Yes, Toby the drug dealer. Toby the drug dealer. Very gentle. <laughs> you know, before we went on the air, I said to David, <laughs> you know, I was coughing, which is strange in this time. And I said, I'm at an age where invariably, anytime I have sushi, the rice gets stuck in my throat. And David's response was, okay, let's get started. <laughs> he didn't even hesitate for a second. Do you want something to drink? <laughs> Wait a minute. No, he was off to the races. So if you hear me cough, it's because David Feldman's in a rush. I'm in a rush. I, I've turned into Smoke Von Smokerson, the morning disc jockey oh. that you used to do. Yeah, the morning the DJ character I used to do. Hey, everybody, it's Smoke, Smoke Von Smokerson. We're going to get together uh, at the local <laughs> mall parking lot. I got the party van all popped up with. Uh, singles. This is what. This is why I have no career. Giving away, he's giving away singles. <laughs> this is why I have no career. Which may be the best name <laughs> in the history of the music industry for a product, Casingle. In 1990, you doing, you're still married. Nope, Casingle. <laughs> <laughs> hey, how those craft cheeses? I hear you don't have to cut them anymore. Uh, no, you don't. I'm Casingle. Yeah, they just have the single slices. In 1999, before Curb Your Enthusiasm took off, yes. you directed yes. my my HBO special that never came to being. HBO signed me to a deal, and you were going to direct it. Right. We workshopped it at the, um, at the HBO workspace, which no longer is in existence. Uh-huh. And yeah. you were the director, and I had you open – 
every test show as smoke von smokers <laughs> from, from the from the station from the station yes <laughs> and i would be off in the wings crying i w- i wouldn't work on my act i would just watch you talking about the station and how difficult the switch was to <laughs> r&b from urban Kentucky. you know it's so funny you are able to <clears throat> you were doing what colbert da- did Mm-hmm. before Colbert. For whatever reason, people understood it with him. They didn't understand <laughs> it with you. <laughs> and I didn't but I remember understand. yelling at audiences going, he's joking! He's joking! <laughs> he doesn't hate people from this country or whatever. Anyhow, I am not... There's a point to this. I am I am a... I'm not even a political person, although I read four newspapers every day. And I am passionate, but I don't bring it into my comedy because I'm not able to make it funny. That's the only reason. I think I have reasonably intelligent opinions, but I cannot make it funny, so I don't. So someone the other day was asking me about politically what I would do. And I said, it was a Second City alum, and, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, Second City prided itself on was you could go up with another actor, pretend you're sitting on a park bench, have that day's paper, and make it interesting and funny. I never could do that. But speaking of Smoke Von Smokerson and talking about the station, what I could easily do is read a piece, any current piece from the cover of the New York Times, written by, let's say, the White House correspondent and what he writes about what Trump said. Not comment on that, but what I could do is, after I read that, I could go into what that man's life was from the moment he woke up to the end of the day, his quiet moments in bed, Mm -hmm. what his inner monologue is, how he felt while all this was going down. That I could do and make interesting and funny. What Trump says, I can't. Although, recently, for the first time ever, I mentioned Trump on stage, and I took it from the standpoint of how funny it was, because it was beyond imagination not too long ago, and the audience grabbed hold of that. Um, yeah, that's my Cops right. are funny. I mean, just now they're just, you know. Yeah, like, yeah like, now they're funny because they they're... have other meaning. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I so I can do Smoke Von Smokerson, what's going down at the station, and you'd believe that I'm Smoke Von Smokerson. Right. And uh, Olivia in the coffee room, I could tell a story, you know. Right. So you're a social animal. You enjoy live performing. You enjoy parties. You've thrown some of the greatest parties. All right, I'm stop say this. now. Stop now. You Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do it? Yeah, I am not a party animal or very even social. I'm very good one-on-one. I'm very good at dinner parties. You actually put me at a real party. I am living in the corner and really? hoping... And hoping that you walk up to me. Yes, I have great social anxiety. Now, I can walk on stage in front of literally 5,000 people with nothing prepared to be totally comfortable. But that's not me being part of it. I'm just being watched. 
uh, it's it's a different feeling. But when I'm at a party, I cannot make, I can make dinner, I can make, I can have great conversation at a dinner party. But you put me at a big party, I am not good at the small talk, and I hide in the corner. But I've been to parties that you've thrown, and you were. What party did I throw? Well, breakfast. Your breakfast. Okay, hold on. That's when I was married, and that's a big, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, it's a celebration, yes. But that's not, first off, that even though I'm the host, that's Marla's thing. That was Marla's thing, uh, number one. Number two, I generally, when I was at that party, would sit down and not get up. And people would come to you. Yeah, they'd bounce around. But I knew everyone. I'm talking right. about your regular party. But I never, that wasn't my party to throw, per se. My name I isn't per se. To... It's David Feldman. Why do you call me per se? Because you know why? In another language, I'm not telling you what, <laughs> David is per and say is Feldman. <laughs> so I just think it's much snappier in, Fran- in French. Well, you, I, I'm not going to call you a social animal, but you do enjoy live performing. You yes, sent- but that's not social. That's me presenting me, and you are there to enjoy it, you know, and dig it, and hope I hit a groove and do some things that I dig. But, no, that's not social. I'm not social. Like, for example, right now during the pandemic, I have left my house once to drop something off at my ex's for her and my kids. Uh, I have not left the house other than that, in almost what two months, a month, yeah. a month now, I'm good. I'm here alone with my dog. I'm fine. I'm very much. I'm a loner, but I'm a bit lonely right now. But I'm a right. loner. That's why I agreed to this. Okay, a couple quick questions. Have you found a a new stillness with this pandemic? A license not to feel you should be out doing something because you are driven. You like performing. No, 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 no. no. Hold on. I am driven differently than you. What I mean by that is, it's so funny because I've quoted you on this for years, and you know this. You would say to me as soon as I got successful with Curb, why do you keep working? Why, why don't you relax? Why don't you? And two, when you become successful, the only way to say success, successful is to actually work harder. You have to keep working harder and harder and harder. However... Having just filmed Curb, the Goldbergs, at the at the same time, having just at the same time as that put together my stand-up special, which I filmed, and at the same time as that um, had a photo show at the Leica Gallery, my first photo show, it was all way too much. And ironically, I planned on staying home unless it was necessary until April 15th, starting about two months ago. So it's actually worked out. So to answer your question the long way, yes, only because I've allowed myself the time to do that. Mm -hmm. I always am thoughtful and in relationship. I meditate. I am, although I've been off, for a while, um, but I'm a person who's pretty present with how he treats people and what my goals are. 
but this has brought it to a whole new level. And I'm very comfortable with all of it. You're, you're uh, for yourself, but not for others. Do you feel guilty that you're, no. No. you don't feel guilty? Why would I feel remotely guilty? What I do is feel empathetic. I've made donations right and left. Um, but I'm also a guy in his 50s who's got diabetes, so I'm not going to go out and help old person homes. Right. You know what I mean? I, I'm not, that would be self-destructive. Uh, I'm not 24. Um, but, Do you feel uh, when you think about because I'm two blocks away from a hospital here yeah. in Manhattan, and yeah. I hear the sirens all night. I've asked them to yes. turn it down. They won't. They don't. <laughs> I, it's, there's no point to these sirens because the yes. streets are empty. You're just showboating. But that's a whole other point. That's another. And I think two blocks down, there are nurses and doctors and first responders who are living our life as stand-up comics, where you are totally present and alive. You are not thinking about anything except. Well, they're, they're heroes. We're not. That's number one. Stand-up comics are not heroes. Okay. Right. Um, maybe. Lenny Bruce and or Richard Pryor and or George Carlin. Okay, the list is over. Those are the people that tore down what existed before. Outside of those three, nobody else. And that's the point I'm making. Don't you feel like we've led a wasted life when you realize (laughs) who is so essential to us? No, but the point being is, David, if you could get food to them, do something to help. But really, at your age, and I'm not saying you're old, but for this virus, you're not exactly a, 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 a you know, health Johnson. So um, you need to just stay in and do your part. Right. Stay out of the way. And that's what I'm doing. So I'm blessed that I've earned a good living, that I like where I live. I'm blessed. I have my little dog with me. Who's How my many different friend. names does your dog have? One. I don't believe it. I do not believe that it's a male or a female. I, I don't. It's a female. Her name. Her name's Sage. I don't. I don't like confusing her. She plays my dog on the Goldbergs. Oh, really? That's where I got her. Yeah. yeah wow. Plays, a showbiz dog. Yes, yeah, she plays Lucky on the Goldbergs. No, she's my best friend. I, I. So I'm blessed that I have a nice house with a backyard I can walk into uh, a delightful. Oh, ha- ha- all right, hang on for one second. This is really important to me. Yeah, yeah. You have a dog named Sage. Sage who plays the part of Lucky on the Goldbergs. All right. I need to know about this. When right, about did- six months ago, I thought I need a dog. I asked the trainer, can you help get me a dog? She said, would you like Sage? Now Sage has been sitting on my lap for seven years. For seven years, I've been saying, I wish I could have this dog. How do I get this dog? I've even said, who does, who owns her? And like, I was like constantly wanting her. And then when I showed what my house looked like and how it was fenced in and this, that, and the other thing, I got her. So we've been together for six months. Now, the old joke about working with someone and it turns into a relationship, <laughs> I am not exaggerating. I laughed right away because when I got her home, she showed me a lot of new behaviors. Really? I'm not making up. All good, but like unexpected. Yes. Like I'm off the clock behaviors. Yes. Well, she's very controlled and quiet. She is not 
I mean, she doesn't bark a lot. If she does, I let her. I could give a crap. That's her job. But um, no, her, in terms of things that she does, I see a side of her that I never saw that makes me laugh. In that it's unprofessional. She's, oh, stop it. Does she She's get nervous on the way to the studio? Does she know that it's showtime and does she get well into as character? long as she's as long as she's off book, she's good. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's be honest, because nobody's really listening to this. The truth is that she ran Let, away. Hold on. Hold on. Listen. You say no one's listening to this. I'm only curious as to how many people listen to your show. Being that you were on the, you were one of the first people, if not the first person I know, with a regular show podcasting. Yes. We're talking 10 years ago? 11, yes. 11 years ago. Okay, man, you were the first. So whoever's listening must be loyal, but is it more than, let's say, 10,000? Well, we'll go, we'll talk off. Uh, it's, we're doing, we're doing, I wouldn't be doing this if we didn't have a, a listener. <laughs> well, have. no, no, no. I mean, I mean, 10,000 would be, I would be very happy, but even like, you know, a thousand people. We, we've had, we, we've, you know, over the years, people have discovered the show and decided this isn't for me. We've done <laughs> <laughs> it, well, it's, it's stand up. It really is for me stand-up. It, it, I have to do this. I have no choice. But you, you, you did, were you working out at the clubs at all um, recently? A little, yeah. A little. Yeah. Where? Okay. So, but let, let's and go back in, to, and, and I want to get back to, I want to get You're in New York. Yes. I want to get back to your dog for a second. Uh, okay, let's get back. Since to nobody's dog. listening, yes. let's be honest. You lost Sage and replaced her on the Goldberg, and you're keeping it a secret from the handler and the writers. See, David, this is this is why you're a waste of talent because that is a fucking brilliant premise for a TV show about a guy on a show with a dog who has a dog. That could be the pilot episode. That's so fucking funny. That you have to replace. Yeah, you know. and people can't notice. It's like Sage seems different, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm going to confess something that I shouldn't be doing, but I was working Toronto in, like, my second year in stand-up, and uh -huh. they put me up in a nice hotel, and I had no money, and I accidentally ate the Snickers bar from the <laughs> from the wet bar that they have. Uh -huh. And before the maid came in, I scoured all of Toronto looking for <laughs> a Snickers bar that I could put back into the uh, into the mini bar, so I wouldn't be charged that. I, why am I telling you that? That just reminds me that's of trying really, to replace that's, a that, dog. By the way, that's that's where it started in your brain, the idea. By the way, you always think stuff. You're the, by the way, I can say this flat out because I always do this joke about people come up to me and they tell me an idea for Curb and I tell them no one has ever come up to me and given me a funny idea and they still give it to me and it's never funny. Mm -hmm. The only person who gave me an idea was a professional, and that's you, um, with the number on the arm mm -hmm. that uh, Larry and I thought it was a Holocaust thing, but it was his lottery number. That right. was your idea. Right. Because that, in the history of the show, that's even the closest that I've come 
to giving a show idea. I've never given one. And I get the only one I've ever given was that one. And he went, oh, it's great. <laughs> so, boom. And I, yeah. Uh, thank you and for that. And you were also on the show. And you, you were brilliant enough. And I cannot tell you the number of screen captures I get from people over the years. Angry Jew, David Feldman. People uh, for 20 By years. Way, who was it that you were fighting with on the set? Oh my! Uh, no, 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 no! Don't bring that up. I, Why? I, no, I Why? don't want because I, I don't want to. He turned on me because he was, he was trying to quit smoking, and I said to him, "Think of your daughter. Carry a picture of your daughter every time you want a cigarette, and look at it." He goes, "How dare you say that? This was, this was like real life. How dare you okay. say that to imply okay. that I don't love my daughter and I would be smoking to kill myself? Wait, so I would never have to. Wait, who the fuck wait, are you?" Wait. By the way, who was this? I, I can't tell you. I, I can't. Yes, I you can. No, because he's an nobody's angry. listening. Yeah, that's true, but I, okay. I don't. Uh, Just tell me. No, but the thing right. that I'm not continuing this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you have to tell me who was it. You I know forgot. what? I can't remember his name. Are you being? You're lying. Because you, if you had, if you would have said I can't remember his name at the beginning, I would have went. Oh, I can't either. Clearly. I, I I really can't. And you remember. already said to me, "I'll tell you off the air." <laughs> so no, tell me, is this going out? Hold on, is this going out live? No. Do you edit it? No. Oh, all right. I won't tell you. Right. I don't want. I don't want him coming after me. I, I'm afraid. I remember. He oh wears, wait, wait, it's coming to me. He wears double-breasted blazers and an ascot and shows up at celebrity funerals. He's he's kind of off kilter. Who the fuck is this? Ah, yeah. That was one of the, that was the most fun I've had uh, in show business doing Curb Your Enthusiasm. And uh, anyway, let's move on. So you, you, how Mitchell, often do you- Mitchell, Mitchell Whitfield wasn't who you were arguing with because he no. was the main, he was the guy who they were baptizing. Yeah, right. they had, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, my parents were in that scene. With yes, me. yes, yes. And probably the screen freezes, my parents are standing there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Now, I remember, now, was Mitchell's father, was he an announcer from, like, WGN? No. I just have some bizarre memory of... Well, maybe he did an announcer thing or something. He's a funny dude. He's okay. a good dude. So we have what? 10 minutes left. Okay. Rapper Gucci Mane. Rapper Gucci Mane. You're yeah. a big fan. He slammed his haters. He uh, On Sunday, he says that he prays that all his haters die of the coronavirus. Now... You're dealing with millions of people now, yeah. fans. But you also have I, – I, I have this little show. I get hate mail, yeah. and it upsets me, and I don't respond to it. Right. Do you get, do you get hate mail? Do you ever respond to well, it? Well, I went off Twitter because Twitter seems to be a place where people go to say mean-spirited things. And also I thought to myself – how long until I write something that offends a ton of people? So I deleted my Twitter account. I had a lot of followers. And then I'm only on Instagram. And the beauty of Instagram is maybe once per half dozen posts, someone will write something mean. And I just block them. It's right. simple. It's easy. I don't get much hate mail. Because I don't, I don't give myself a place to receive it. Do you know what I mean? Um, 
And it does not feel good. It's not nice. And you wonder what's wrong with somebody that they would do something like that. Um, and I can understand it making you feel bad. But I got to tell you, I want to hear something really funny. Yeah. So I did a podcast about a month, no, but more than that, maybe six weeks ago. Uh, it was a divorce podcast with Laura Wasser. I don't know if you know who she is. She's like the best. Um, um, she's she's the most expensive and the number one divorce lawyer. She's not my divorce lawyer. Uh, I really dig her. I went on her show. And on her show, I said, because I know so many women that are single moms that have deadbeat dads, that I oh, can't you know my wife, my ex-wife. You, you keep in touch with her. Uh, no, I don't. But I bump into her at the farmer's market. I know. <laughs> we make out in honor of you. I uh, have anyhow. to, but you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyhow, um, so I, um, in my divorce settlement, to not be specific, but be in general, hey, I was with her for 25 years, more than. Uh, she gave me two boys. It's my job and responsibility to help take care of her the rest of her life. That's my viewpoint. And also, I love her. I'd rather not be married to her, but I do love her and I respect her. And so I made a point of saying that it was a sexist point, but kind of reverse of like, women should always win. You know, um, I just think it's just women should win. Well, TMZ pulled out what they wanted to pull out of it, then, mm -hmm. but know that nothing that I said was negative that TMZ pulled out. And I, knowing, knowing what I was doing, went down. It wasn't a rabbit hole because I didn't let it bother me and it didn't bother me. Do you know that me saying all these nice things about single moms and responsibility and what I do – there were many people who like were like, fuck him most. I'd say nine-tenths of the comments were about never watching anything I do again. Mm -hmm. It was so hateful for someone who said something that was really not only not hateful, but I didn't even single out anybody. <laughs> and so my feeling is the same way when I'm when I do a project, I don't read reviews movie, TV show, whatever. I feel that I don't need criticism. The world throws enough criticism at you. So to me, I would never read or aspire not to read. And I've kind of created a world where I'm shielded from, not from criticism from my friends, who I, what I welcome, if you think differently than something I'm doing, I welcome it, have always. But strangers... No, the world's tough enough. I don't need your opinion about why I'm an asshole. Right, right. When I hear about people like you who don't go out of their way to alienate an audience, but still Ever. alienate them, I figure, why not just alienate them? They're going to, either way, you can't win. Even bland comics now are getting hissed and booed. But, but hold on. I actually rarely get hissed or booed. And I have strong opinions. But because I don't go down two topics that I don't make funny, make fun of politics and religion, not because I'm avoiding confrontation. I have nothing funny to say. Right. 
Right. That's the point. If I had something funny to say, you know, I will talk about it no matter what. And Mm -hmm. I'm of the belief in terms of political correctness and audiences hissing. If something's funny, audience doesn't hiss. If something's not funny, yeah, you'll get the negative. And if they hiss and you know it's funny, it's how you're presenting it. You have to rearrange it because they're just not getting it the way you're implying I would guess that you have trouble with that because a lot of times audiences don't get how funny you are. I, I don't want to talk about me but because we're, we're almost out of time. But I, well, the thing I always forget when I get up on stage is the audience is supposed to not get all the jokes. I always go in wanting every joke to work and I don't want, and then I go, oh, right, these are, the, the, this is set up so they moan and they boo and I have to react. And the, right. You're, you're not afraid of silence on stage. As a matter You've never of been fact, afraid of it. As a matter of fact, I actually encourage lulls. I'm not kidding. Like, I like when there's a moment of quiet and I just smile and embrace it. Mm-hmm. I am so, I would say on a scale of one to ten, I'm a zero in terms of being afraid of silence or quiet. Don't care. As long as you're being honest. The closest analog to you is Richard Pryor. My son and I were watching you, and I thought, oh, I get it. His biggest influence is Richard Pryor. As long as you're being honest with the audience, you're satisfied. Well, no, I'm not satisfied in terms of I do want to laugh when I'm meant to get a laugh. And if there's a while of uh, silence, I'll ask what's going on. Like, I'll, I'll comment on the elephant in the room, but I don't get upset. And like I said, sometimes I'll say something that's really funny. And if they're not grooving to it, I got to examine why. Right. But, but I love a good lull. Love a lull. Yes. And you're having a lull. And that's my final question to you. There is a lull, a reset a Sabbath for the entire country. Hopefully the entire country is taking By the way, David, that's very astute. I didn't think of it. We're having a big fucking lull right now. And I feel strongly that we will come out of this. And this is not just sort of that fake thing. I'll give you an example. The uh, lotus flower grows from, from muck and dirt and scum. And it's the most beautiful flower. It grows once a year. From this, in terms of art, in terms of people being at their best, we're going to have a lotus flower. Does that mean we're not going to have assholes? No, they just exist. Are there people who are not going to be affected by this in a personal, beautiful way? Yes, but those are going to be the minority. The majority will be a fucking lotus flower. Well, well, we hope. I mean, there are a lot of... We'll, stop, I, stop, stop. We hope. David, it's going to be a fucking lotus flower. I don't want to hear your hope shit. Well, we have a president. Uh, David! I don't Do you want to worry? Hey, a- <laughs> <laughs> but, but what advice do you give? What are your charities what, for the people who are okay? Who should, the, who should we be thinking about? Who are you donating to? And what well, advice do you give money. to people who I've are alone? Whenever I actually am on my friend's Instagram, they'll mention charities. I've given to, I think, the L.A. Food Bank, the Chicago Food Bank. I give to food banks because now is a time more than any. Um, no, I, I just, I'm very, yeah, I, I give. I don't know. I, 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 I'm, by the way, 
uh, uh, people that work for me are still being paid. Everyone that works for me is being paid their full salary. And not that I have a big group of people, it's a very small handful, but they're all being, so I feel like I'm contributing, you know, um, but I think that all we have to do on a minimal level is stay inside or, or stay isolated, you know, right. um, and I don't think six feet's enough. I need you, I think you need a good, uh, um, uh, <laughs> football field. I mean, like you need some real heavy, so like for you to stand outside of your apartment building when no one's around and breathe in some air, delightful. But if there's people walking around, you got to go back inside. Right, right. And I'm so I'm just staying to myself, doing what I can with the information I've been given, and making donations where I can. And a lot of people can't afford to make donations. Don't just stay inside. That's just my feeling. I don't want to say, you know, I've been asked to do a lot of public service announcements. I say a lot, I think three or four. And I've said no every time because the idea that someone would go, Jeff Garland, he's so funny. Wait, he's saying stay inside. Honey, it's serious. (laughs) In other words, people don't need me in their face. I'll come on like my friend's podcast. I'll do like on Instagram, I'll have a conversation but I don't want to be shoved down anyone's face and I'm leaving people alone. I'm not doing any of these living room shows. Not me. What are the living room shows that you're talking about? In other words, like they had recently, they had that comedy. um, Gives back. Comedy gives back or comedy aid or whatever. Right. Right. And I was asked to do that. And I said, no, absolutely not. But I make a, but I made a $500 donation you know, right. any way I can help. But I don't need to be in people's faces. Right. Get the fuck out of their faces. Right. And you, you've I been say. telling me, because I've called you a couple of times and told you I was panic stricken, and you gave me great advice. You said, you know, you're a social animal. You're alone. You need a friend. Leave CNN blasting 24 hours a day in one room. MSNBC blasting in the other room. These are your friends. They'll keep you up to date and connected and it will be calming. And Jeff, it was the best advice you gave me. I, I'm, it's almost wow. though I'm drinking again. I'm so relaxed. By the way, to be honest, that is a recipe for someone to drink either again or start to have those two. You might as well have Fox News going too. What a horrible, horrible thought. What yeah. I do think you should do, you told me I look good. You and do. I want to explain my, people ask me, what have you done? I don't diet. I try and eat thoughtfully. But I have pizza still and whatever. I don't eat sugar, don't eat sweets. But what I do is what I've been doing a lot in this. I just sit still. I find myself sitting in a chair and then I look up and an hour's gone by and all I did was just sit in the chair no music playing even right and that's been delightful it's really interesting how time for some of us it's everybody's experiencing this differently I have found I don't know where the day goes that I am able to fill the the day with so much stuff and all of a sudden it's it's midnight uh by the way I have not I don't turn the tv on any that news way, I any I news I watched. need, you can yeah. there, There's like ten minutes of reading that you have to do about the coronavirus. That's it. And I would say yeah. 
Okay. It's right there. I mean, there's good sources. You know what I do? And here's what I recommend everyone does. Subscribe to the Johns Hopkins newsletter. Okay. Because you're getting fucking facts, a pile, a stack of facts, and not much opinion at all, yes. which I love. Give me the information. Be Walter Cronkite for me. That's right. what I – but in terms of television, television – I have DirecTV, and because there's no sports, I have not turned on DirecTV. I watch, what I watch is a lot of procedurals, you know, the cop shows on like Netflix and Amazon Prime. I watch all of them, especially right. if they're from England. I'm way into them. And I avoid all of that. And you get your 10 minutes. But a lot of mine is that John Hopkins newsletter, my highest recommendation Fantastic. for an unpoliticized round of information go to Johns Hopkins newsletter. The new normal, no more handshaking when you meet somebody and no more no. spitting and no more spitting in their mouth. I don't know why we ever, that's a Western <laughs> thing. Nice to meet you. <sighs> I don't know where that comes from. That's got to stop. Jeff Garland, everybody. <laughs> a pleasure, David. Thank you. We'll talk to you real soon. I promise to keep it short. Thank you. Hang on. Stay on the line for one second. Okay. You're listening to the David Feldman radio program. You sad, pathetic hump. Mr. Feldman is about to take his seat here at Liberty University. Mr. Feldman is getting a cup of coffee, and he is about to take his seat, and we begin. Thank you, everybody here at Liberty University for braving the COVID-19 and trusting in Jesus Please welcome Stephen Robbins. He's an immigration attorney in Yakima, Washington, and host of Redirect Immigration Law and Perspectives. Thank you. Thank you. We, uh, we don't need your stinking shelter in place here at Liberty right. University. We've got Jesus. Stephen Robbins is an immigration... Uh, sorry, if you can pray the gay away. I mean, COVID-19 is... You know. I'm praying for the gay. I think my life would be a lot easier if uh, I could pray for the gay. Stephen Robbins is an immigration attorney in Yakima, Washington. He's the host of Redirect Immigration Law and Perspectives. And the reason I'm having you on the show, for many reasons, but the real reason is I hate Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to my mother last night, and she hates Joe Biden. And at, at some point in the conversation, I, I realized that I hate Joe Biden more than I hate Donald Trump, because Joe Biden is Satan. He, he appears as one thing and he does the other. And I went down this path where there's no difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. It's insanity for me to think that way. And you have pointed out numerous times on your show and you call into the Sam Cedar show. You've been on Majority Report that. Anybody who, who thinks, who is flirting with the idea of voting for Donald Trump or not voting for Joe Biden doesn't understand immigration law. There are differences between Joe Biden 
and Donald Trump. So let's start there. And by the way, you might hear in the background whistling and ring. We're having, as if things aren't bad enough here in Manhattan, we are having a massive thunderstorm here oh, wow. in 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 Manhattan. Is It's pronounced Yakima or how do you pronounce it? Yeah, Yakima. Everybody says it different. It's fine. Yakima is fine. Yeah. Okay. What is the difference when it comes to immigration between yeah, think, Joe Biden and Donald Trump? Yeah, I think first we have to sort of uh, square up with the idea of something being worse and not necessarily uh, one thing being good and the other thing being bad, but one thing being worse than the other. So if you went to like a, maybe this is not a good example for you personally, but if you went to like a Jerry Seinfeld show and you were underwhelmed, you wouldn't say this is as bad as a Gallagher show, or I might as well go to a Gallagher show or Dennis Miller, right? You know, Seinfeld is maybe not your favorite. Um, he might not even be good, but he's certainly better than, than certain alternatives. So, so if you're forced to go see comedy, it's better to go see Jerry Seinfeld than Gallagher. Sure, sure. Um, and, and we're forced to vote in November. Right. So, and, and there is a choice. You know, I, I get a lot of people just telling me Biden's record, which I'm, I'm with you. I mean, it's, I'm very unenthused and I'm aware of his record. But again, there's a, there's a choice at, at this point between one thing and the other. And one is definitively uh, worse uh, than the other for, for lots of lots of different reasons. Well, what um, is the difference between Joe Biden's record and Obama's record? Because Obama called himself the deporter in chief, something like three million undocumented undocumented Americans were sent back to where they came from during the Obama administration. Is that the correct number? About uh, 3 million? Yeah, there were, I mean, he, he broke records. And again, it, it's not, I'm not Are more say. people being sent home under the Trump administration than in the Obama administration. Well, the, the real numbers of, of deportations, I think are, it's hard to pin down exactly what those mean and, uh, most of Obama's deportations were at the border, uh, border apprehensions who, um, you know, Border Patrol has the option to order somebody deported or to voluntarily return them to their country. And the Obama administration stepped up the use of uh, deportation at the border, which uh, caused their numbers to, to rise. Um, now, that's still bad. Again, like I'm not defending the Obama Record, But if you look at, for example, DACA, which is now in the hands of the most conservative Supreme Court. Explain what explain what DACA is. Explain how far it got. And was Obama deporting all these undocumented workers so that he could help the dreamers like he was practicing real politic? Yeah, so DACA is um, a program deferred action basically means. You know, we're, we know you're here undocumented, but we're not going to take action on your case. And by the way, here's a work permit and a social security number so you can work legally in the country. In the and a pathway to citizenship, perhaps? No, not, not for this. It's just a, a two-year work permit that they need to renew every two years. And it, again, it's an underwhelming program, unless you have DACA, in which case it probably changed your life in, in you know, a myriad of, of ways. So we had the dreamers who under Obama, he couldn't pass DACA, so he 
used an executive order to implement what would have otherwise been in the Dreamer Act. Right. It wasn't technically an executive order. It was just a, a policy change in terms of how they were going to exercise prosecutorial discretion and in which cases they were going to focus on. Um, and even on the enforcement side, so in 2014, there was, well, before that, there was DACA. And in 2014, Obama um, issued a, a policy memo saying, uh, we're, we're going to use ICE only to go after people with uh, criminal records, people who've recently been deported and now they're back into the country. But otherwise, if you've been here a long time and you've got U.S. citizen kids or whatever, we're basically not going to to mess around with you, which was the case. We had plenty of people who uh, came into immigration contact for one reason or the other, but they just decided, you know, you, you don't meet the criteria in this enforcement memo. And so you can go about your your life, essentially. And one of the very first thing that uh, Trump did when he came into office was to issue a new policy memo saying everyone's a priority now. Everyone's treated the same, whether you've uh, been arrested for some sort of aggravated assault or you're just a single mom trying to get by. Our, uh, you know, ICE will now treat you the same and will enforce the law to the fullest extent against both groups. So that gives a lot of power to the executive branch. It's important for us to remember that the president is the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. He's kind of like the police chief. He decides what the Justice Department, or he can decide if he's Donald Trump, who and what the Justice Department goes after. Uh, prosecutorial discretion. And right. it, it, and it, it, overnight, it can change. You can have Donald Trump as president, and overnight, the the Justice Department including the FBI, can decide to go after people with one ounce of pot if that's what they're after. That's right. And, and so there are unless- a lot of laws on the books, and it's which ones you decide to enforce, which ones you decide not to enforce. Yeah, so I remember at, at one point going to hearings, immigration hearings, and having the ICE attorney, the prosecuting attorney, turning around a, a, a courtroom full of immigrants and saying, who wants to have their case dismissed because they were so aggressively pursuing prosecutorial discretion and allowing people with minimal uh, criminal records and, you know, maybe some kids or whatever to basically have their case uh, thrown out of court. And, and if you compare that to the posture of, of immigration prosecutors now, what they say is we can't do anything. Our hands are totally tied. So I see that you're a single mother and your daughter has cancer and you're a hardworking, you know, farm worker or whatever, but um, we have no tools at our disposal to, to help you out. And, and we have to go forward with your deportation. So um, <clears throat> it's important if we're going to highlight, I think the failures of the Obama administration, which are many uh, to also point out that they were definitely headed in the right direction on, on certain things in terms of prosecutorial discretion, uh, DACA, which again, we're currently waiting for a Supreme Court decision, which could, uh, you know, effectively end it. Uh, there have been no new applicants since 2017. And, and the people who have it now are, are facing the, the real possibility of losing it. And then there's, and they're non-persons. It's, it's important for us to understand that if you're going to high school or going to college and you're a dreamer, 
if you're not part of a DACA program, you are a non-person, you're almost invisible, you, and you have to remain invisible. You can still go to, to school, but it's, it's limited, and you have no home. Imagine that, because your parents may have brought you here at the age of two or three. This is the only place you know, and you're being told you can't go back to where you came from because it's unlivable or you might be killed, and you're not welcome here. Try to imagine growing up with that hanging over you. Uh, I, a, lot of these, a lot of these kids don't find out that that's their reality till maybe – you know, they're in high school and they're getting ready to apply for, for colleges and, and the, the school counselor saying, all right, you just need to bring in your social security number. And they go home and they ask their parents, like, you know, what is this thing and where is it? And that's oftentimes where they first have this conversation about, well, actually, you don't have one and, and this is your reality moving forward. And yeah, the way that that would shape your paradigm uh, in terms of like, okay, uh, the types of jobs I can get are now limited. The, the type of education I can get, I, I, I don't qualify for student loans. Um, your reality suddenly changes. Who is ICE rounding up? Are they rounding up dreamers and putting them in detention centers? Are they rounding up the parents? Who? <laughs> give me a typical yeah, scenario. So when Trump was first elected, I had a local officer who was pretty good with sharing information and he was, you know, ice. Yes. And, uh, so I I talked to him and I said, you know, what's going to happen? What do you think, you know, will happen? And he said, well, I think we'll go back to what we used to do, which is, you know, you get some sort of information about somebody who's maybe back in the country and, uh, they've been deported or somebody who's committed a crime and we show up to arrest that person and maybe they're not there, but we, you know, there's some other Mexican family here, so we'll just arrest them instead. And whereas, like I said, at the end, at the end of the Obama administration, uh, their efforts were very carefully targeted. And so if they rolled up on a family that, in fact, you know, wasn't the family they were looking for, they'd leave them alone. And what they're doing now is more like um, pulling somebody over. Uh, well, we're looking for Juan Carlos and you're Miguel Angel and but we're going to ask you about papers anyways, and we're going to arrest you and whoever else is in the car. And that's the kind of uh, enforcement stuff we're seeing. And then we're, we see a lot of uh, uh, border patrol stuff on the Northern border where um, <clears throat> they will actually go to like a hotel and just run the license plates of all the cars in the hotel and look for somebody who, indicated on their driver's license application that they were born in Mexico, for example, or looking for hits of previous encounters with somebody with that same name. And then they'll just uh, roll up on people that way too. And they will separate families. Yeah, of course. So they they arrest the father and what do they do with the kids? uh, Well, the kids will be left with uh, a guardian or you know, another parent, maybe sometimes if there's uh, two undocumented parents, they'll make a choice. Okay. We'll take dad and, you know, we'll sort of leave mom alone for now. Um, so it, it just depends. They're not, that, that is, that is Sophie's choice behavior. Not, I mean, they're not, mer- well, having your parent, having your father taken away from you as a small child, 
who yeah. the, who the f is ice to make that decision yeah i mean i i always tell the story about how um i think i was in sixth grade and my dad was gonna maybe have, he lost his job and was looking for a new one i thought we were gonna have to move to a, the next town over and like that still sits with me like the fear of losing my friends or whatever when you're in sixth grade some small uh, seemingly small change can seem uh, life altering and so i can't even begin to comprehend uh you know that type of a of a thing where your dad is taken maybe in your presence right where you're a passenger in the car and he's right right that. right and ice is doing that so with covid-19 are people still trying to get into this country yeah and they've actually used this to essentially shut down the border um and you know if anything we have more cases than mexico they should be you know building the wall um what do you mean by that well i mean they should be more concerned about americans going to mexico than than vice versa right so there's, so there's a net loss when it comes to uh immigration with no, mexico I, I, what i mean to say is uh using COVID-19 as an excuse to close off immigration from Mexico or Central America is sort of nonsensical in light of how COVID-19 is, is currently spreading. Right. Um, Oh, we're in other words, we're more likely to go to Mexico and spread COVID-19 than Mexicans will come here and give it to us. Right. I mean, at the same time he was talking about closing the Southern border I had friends returning from Italy and not being asked a single question by border patrol about, you know, where did you go? Or do you have, right. they were just being let uh, directly in. And so it's a pretext to, to close the border. Um, and what's happening at the detention centers is really frightening. I do want to mention one thing about the, you know, Trump and, and Biden just real quick, you know, Stephen Miller is the one person who's been able to survive the entire Trump presidency. If you look at his original cabinet, I mean, it's, it's a graveyard except for this one guy. And we know that he's sent emails, hundreds of emails to Breitbart before he was, you know, a member of the the administration, including emails where he was musing about using trains to mass deport Mexicans and Central Americans. And so, you know, sometimes the, the Hitler uh, thing, you know, word gets thrown around and, and sometimes it seems like a, a little bit, uh, maybe it's uh, hyperbole. But then when you see, you know, some of the ideas coming out uh, of the administration, you know, this is a, he's an evil person. And yes. these ideas are in his heart and he's, he wields tremendous power at the same time. So um, it, whenever we're, we're trying to make that distinction between Trump and Biden, we, we have to remember who's really making these decisions and, and where this could go in a second, um, in a second term. So, we, you know, it's unfathomable what these people really want. And so when you say, you know, I'm on the fence with Joe Biden, you can't imagine how detestable Trump is it, right. until it's too late. I think that's right. You know, so what is what what is what does Stephen Miller want? What is Steve Bannon, who is still in touch with the White House? What what do these Breitbart people really want? Because they're able to shroud it in conservative ideology and patriotism 
and they can sound articulate and hide from us what's in their heart. What what is in Stephen Miller's heart? What what kind of America would he like to see? Well, I think they're worried. I mean, I think it's called the great replacement theory, right? That uh, whites will soon become the the minority, and you know we're being replaced essentially. Um, uh, geog- uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, in terms of uh, the population, um, <clears throat> and uh, you know they and why they- and so help me out here because you are afraid of that because. Of ra- it has to be. It's racism. It's R- right. Well, they, of racism. Right. They clouded in concerns about culture and assimilation and and these sorts of things. I remember. I think it, Trump, it was either. I think it was Trump who was on Bannon's podcast during the campaign, and Trump said something like, "We want high skilled workers. So we want to have more visas for people like from India, engineers and stuff like that, doctors." And Bannon said something. He kind of pumped the brakes on it and said, "Well." Even with high skilled workers, there's concerns about, you know, cultural assimilation and things like that. So even the, the traditional conservative uh, position, which is, well, you know, it's fine to come here as long as you're a doctor, you, you know, you're a wealthy person. Even that gets, um, you know, uh, its nose turned up at by these people. And if you look at, so they got a lot of attention for putting kids in cages. Um, and, and I think they kind of learned from that. And so the next program they rolled out after they were separating these families and detaining children at the border was to say, okay, if you're not from Mexico, if you're from Central America or somewhere else, you can apply for asylum, but you have to wait in Mexico to have your case adjudicated. So you get mm-hmm. to come to the border, you know, after eight months or whatever, and, and we'll bus you to San Diego for a hearing and then we'll send you back to Mexico and they, they've essentially moved the cages abroad, and now they're deporting asylum seekers to to Guatemala and to these others other places. They've learned to do the same thing, but um, you know, in a way that's less visible. They basically just don't want immigrants here at all. That's what's in their heart. And what what is in Joe Biden's heart? He always says, you, you know, you know my heart. You know who I am. Well, I know who you are, Joe Biden, and you're detestable. What was the difference between Bernie and Joe Biden when it came to the plight of people coming to America to seek a better life? Yeah. So, I mean, Bernie's immigration plan was by far the most progressive immigration plan ever. I believe his press spokesperson was an undocumented American, Bernie's. Yeah, he has a somebody in his campaign was, I think, a, a dreamer. Yeah, you know, or some yak, I, I believe. Yeah. I'm not sure who that was, but yeah, I mean, he had uh, really bold ideas. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of them would have been rolled out because the executive does have a lot of power. And here, again, uh, <laughs> Biden, I don't think, has said a lot about immigration. You know, Biden's thing has been sort of like to get back to normal, he wants a less offensive. Uh, he wants a president that will just like sniff your head, but not grab your pussy necessarily. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, well, I mean, has he, has he talked about abolishing ice? Has he talked about closing the detention centers? Has he talked about getting rid of privately run detention centers? 
as I mean, honestly, the last time I looked, which was not that long ago, he didn't even have immigration as a tab on his website as a, you know, a, a platform or a policy uh, proposals. So, uh, so you big- started this conversation by saying <laughs> there's a big difference between Trump yeah. and Biden when it comes to immigration. Mm-hmm. The, it's the a matter of tr- you trust Biden to do something well, or, or at least reverse what Trump has done. But, but it's a matter the, of trust. Right. I, I think that, um, yeah, definitely. I, I mean, this is the, the big fear that, that I've had, um, whether it was honestly, whether it was Bernie or Biden with Bernie, it was maybe less of a concern, but it was still a concern was that whoever won was going to come in and, you know, maybe tinker around the edges, but it, it's easy to leave something in place once it's been going. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's always going to be the concern, whether it's uh, Biden or, or Bernie or whoever. And so there is a little bit of trust, but also knowing that like the work doesn't stop once you vote and he's going to need a tremendous amount of pressure. I guess going back to Stephen Miller, the, the thing that I know for sure uh well, yeah, for sure, is that uh, Biden won't put a literal Nazi in charge of the entire immigration apparatus, even if it's like a sort of technocratic D.C., you know, whatever guy who who sucks in in a lot of ways. It still won't be an actual Nazi. So, okay, um, so now you're an immigration lawyer. You host Redirect Immigration Law and Perspectives. I want you to come back. You come back next week. Sure. Okay. We yeah, we can talk about yeah, the detention. Have, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, we can talk about the detention. We have about six minutes left. So I, I want to know what is going on while we're sheltering in place because this is a great opportunity for the Trump administration to do things out in the open because we're inside. So we, yeah, that's one thing about Trump is he's transparent. He does it for all of us to see. Well, what are we not paying attention to while we're sheltering in place and worrying about our Netflix queue? What should we be watching and reading? Yeah. So, um, like I said, the, the complete shutdown of, um, asylum seeking at the border, um, or or people coming in at the border, um, the, the private, for-profit detention centers continue to operate. Um, they've started to let a few people out. They have some internal guidelines, you know, people who are uh, especially vulnerable. Uh, Why wouldn't a private detention center not want to w- let somebody out? W- what would be their resistance to that? Well, I, you know, ICE is the one making the, the determination as to whether somebody can come out, not like geo group necessarily, but in my opinion, the, the reason why they they're hesitant, they wouldn't say this explicitly, but you know, I just had somebody get out last week. He's been detained for almost four years. He has schizophrenia and some some health concerns, and we've been trying to get him out forever from and an they, ICE detention center. Yes, and they just they let him out because specifically of his his uh, health concerns. And I do think that once you take somebody who you've been arguing for four years is a flight risk, uh, you know, oh, this person. It, is going to flee. Is going to be a fugitive. Uh, his detention is mandated. We have to keep him here. And then you just let him out. 
uh, it calls into question the whole project. Like, oh, you mean that at, in reality, these people can just go home and things will be fine and you have alternatives to detention? You can. When you say go home, go back to his nation of origin or go back to no, the go- city? Yeah, come back to their communities here in the U.S. to, to right. await whatever process they're, they're undergoing. Right. So, and what's the kind of money? What does it cost to keep one of your clients in an ICE detention center per night? Oh, yeah, I don't know the number off the Roughly top of Roughly speaking. <laughs> I, I wouldn't even want to guess. Uh, I, I've, I've seen the numbers. I mean, it's expensive, right? And they do have alternatives, which like my client who was released, they put a, an ankle monitor on him which I'm not thrilled about either, but that's way better than being detained. And so it, the Obama administration got rid of federal funding for federal prisons that were privately owned. Trump reversed that. Did, do you know if Obama got rid of private ICE detention centers or was trying uh, to get rid of them? Um, if he was trying, he wasn't trying hard enough. <laughs> so they, right. they still exist. And are I think- all ICE detention centers, either community jails, you know, municipal county jails, or privately run? Yes. ICE uh, doesn't have its own detention centers. No, they don't. Yeah, they don't. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit like the stimulus stuff. If, if I think that if you get people to understand like, oh, we can send you a check every month for $1,000. And it opens up a new paradigm for people to think like, oh, what it, what is actually possible? And if you get people to see that, like, we can actually just release all these people. It's no big deal. Like, nothing will change. You're not going to be mm-hmm. in more danger. Then it calls into question the entire project of, of locking up immigrants. And so I think that's why they, they're hesitant to do it. Um, Has immigration law in America stopped has it been shut down? Are there still judges hearing cases? Uh, there's still judges in the detained uh, docket. So if you're detained and there's there's a judge at the detention center, uh, those cases are moving forward. Are judges showing up? Uh, very, very reluctantly, but yes. Um, and, you know, so I've got a couple of hearings this week, actually. Um, are you we'll doing be- it via Zoom? Yeah, by text. By telephone, yeah. So You're doing it by telephone, um, and then, and 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 when you do it by telephone, who's profiting off that call? Well, when when we do it by by telephone, uh, we just call the court, or the court calls us directly. But we do have to call our clients, and there are um, private companies. Um, there's different companies, Tellink, and I think some others that charge uh, crazy amounts of money for you know basic telephone calls. Yeah. 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 So in terms of other immigration processes, like the um, interviews, green card interviews, naturalization interviews, so citizenship interviews or ceremonies have all been canceled. I I understand that they're continuing to work behind the scenes, adjudicating uh, cases or, you know, reviewing applications. But if if you're waiting for a green card or something, uh, you basically have to wait. And that's another big question, you know, to what degree when, when the spigot comes back on, to what degree do they make any effort to turn it back on, you know, all the way? Right. Or are they going to be happy with the, the backlog that they've created? So. A nation of sadists. We have become a nation of sadists who have learned to profit 
of the suffering of others. That's who's running the show right now. That's, yeah, it's, it's crazy that, uh, you know, uh, you see the videos on every once in a while, little videos of farm workers, you know, working their asses off and, and doing really hard work. It's really dangerous right now. And um, they actually just cut the wages of H2A visa holders, temporary agricultural workers, um, like a couple of days ago. And, you know, so again, like the Hitler thing, sometimes I'll say our modern day immigration is a lot like slavery. And, and then I'll, I'll hesitate because it's not slavery. But then times like now come along and you realize like the analogy is not necessarily all that far off, <laughs> you know, um, people doing incredibly backbreaking, uh, backbreakingly hard work. And at the same time, facing the risk of being torn apart from their families just for being here, just for doing that work, cut off from all these, you know, the Trump bucks and all that stuff that's happening. Um, unemployment, they don't have access to, um, you know, it's um, these privately run ice detention centers use prison labor to maintain the detention center. They pay something like 60 cents a day or 60 cents an hour. And I read about a detention center in Elizabeth, New Jersey, where they had to paint the inside. And they said to some of the inmates, if you work a couple of extra hours, you can get more soup mm -hmm. for dinner. You'll get more soup for dinner. Yeah. I think in Tacoma sure, that may not be Nazi Germany, but it sure smells like it. <laughs> yeah. Sure smells like it. Yeah. Go ahead. You get the last word, Stephen. Well, yeah, it is ironic that they, they get in trouble for working illegally and then they are detained and then they're given the option of working for a dollar a day. Um, and again, to maintain these profits of, of these uh, detention centers, you know, cleaning and things like that. And so, yeah. Okay. Last question, because I had a rough weekend. Uh, you you know, you only deal with what's in front of you and it's hard to deal with abstractions that are beyond our television set, what's outside our window. I like to think everybody listening right now is sheltering in place or perhaps being a first responder or a nurse or a doctor or somebody who delivers food or somebody who works for the post office. But I, I would assume the vast majority of our listeners are sheltering in place and only see what's in front of them and, like me, are worrying about themselves and not others, that's only natural. And that shook me up. I'm thinking I only care about myself. There's, there are people who are really suffering. Give us marching orders. We're home. What do we do? What do we do as citizens? You know, uh, get us angry. And how do we act on this to protect these people? Yeah, so take a minute and read about some of the, the changes that, um, that have happened under this administration. Read the Stephen Miller emails to Breitbart. Um, the, I think it's over 900 emails. Um, and you don't have to love Joe Biden or be enthused about him or even canvas or put a bumper sticker on your car. Uh, just the act of voting, it's a really, really small thing, um, but just make sure that you do it. Uh, and I would encourage people <laughs> as much as you're able to stomach it, because I'm like you, David, I'm, I feel the same way. Um, uh, just when I think about like canvassing or knocking doors. Hate like never stops. Hate <laughs> never stops. 
Donald right. Trump isn't stopping. He's indefatigable. Stephen Miller is indefatigable. So get us to hate the right people and act on this hate. Give us an assignment. You'll come back next week with another assignment. So we'll read the Stephen Miller emails. We can find those. Just Google Stephen Miller emails. I think Politico released them. I I can't remember where the original story is, but my my listeners are smart enough. But uh, right now, how do we fight Trump? How do we pay attention to Trump and make sure that ICE doesn't suck up more of these undocumented Americans' civil liberties. What do we do? We have time. Yeah, so, uh, you know, be in touch with your congressperson, your senators. If you have a detention center in your community, a lot How of How do you find out if there's an ICE detention center in your community? Um, well, you can tweet at me or email me or you can uh, do a Google search. Um, a lot of times they're hidden. They're in sort of industrial areas and people are surprised to find out there's one down the street. Um, but you can, uh, there's oftentimes organizations already doing uh, protests or organizing around uh, getting people out of detention. And, and the more that you can bring uh, attention to these issues, the better. Um, you know, that's what happened with the kids in cages. And enough people were outraged that they had to do something about it. They had to stop that practice. And so have they stopped it. Um, well, for the most part, but <laughs> not entirely. Um, so I, I guess what I would say is I understand the the white hot rage towards Biden and Pelosi and, and all that stuff. I would go back and look at your own, not you, but the listener, your own Twitter feed. And it, if it takes you 15 minutes to find a criticism of, of Trump or Stephen Miller or the thing or ice or the things that are going on and it's all Pelosi and Biden, Pelosi and Biden, you know, try and find better balance in your, in your diet and your outrage. Um, you know, go back to hating Trump. It almost feels like we're too cool for school to hate Trump. We get it. That's, that's so 2017 right. it's, better to to hate biden but and i feel that i'm i'm guilty of that i'm still hating on biden but the twitter feed that isn't enough cuz twitter isn't the real world how do people follow you on twitter stephen robbins yeah so it's at yakima abogado a b o g a d o and like i said a lot of times it's just about linking up with already existing infrastructures there's probably organizations in your community doing this work already and go to them and say, you know, how can I lend my voice? How can I help out? Yeah, knowledge isn't power. It's the beginning of power, but it's not the end. To to know, knowledge is a sin, quite frankly, if you know what's going on in these ICE detention centers and you don't do anything about it. Knowledge is not power in and of itself. It's a sin if you know that they're that, that COVID-19 is rolling through these detention centers and you go, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm sheltering in place. I mean, we're exactly where the Trump administration wants us home yeah. watching Netflix. Stephen Robbins is an immigration attorney in Yakima, Washington. He's the host of Redirect Immigration Law and Perspectives. How do we listen to your podcast? Uh, yeah, so it's on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, all those cool places. You can uh, check it out. Okay. Stay on the line. That is post-nasal drip. Uh, stay on the line for one second. 
Sure. Have you called in your backup e-coms now? See if we can get some more brain power in this we thing? We got one here. Roger. Fly it in, go. Go and go. Uh, he's, never mind, he's straightening up a little bit. Okay. Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got the limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good. So if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Hello there, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. Hi, how are you? Very good. I, I should mention that uh, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin teaches animal conservation at the University of Arizona. She's an animal behaviorist and author of two books, Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tells About Human Relationships, and Raised by Animals, The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics with Try-at-Home Lessons from the Wild. Go to JenniferVertolin.com, sign up for her newsletter, and follow her on Twitter, at RealDrJen. And I should mention, we have exciting news. We're doing office hours every Friday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We did one last Friday. It was a tremendous success. And Dr. Jennifer Vertolin will be our special guest this Friday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Zoom. Yes, I'm so excited. Why am I not? Oh, that's why it's okay. I'm trying to learn this machine. Uh, I don't know if we heard you or not. But, yes, you are, you are going to be our, our special guest. And we were talking before we started. There, it's invitation only. That's the way Zoom works. And I'm only allowed 100 people into the, the Zoom meeting. We had about 65 to 70 people last Friday night. And if you want an invitation, go to davidfeldmanshow.com. You'll see office hours. Hit office hours. It's in the menu. And fill out the form, and I'll send you an invite. You have to tell me. Uh, a little information. We need to know your Zodiac sign, for example. <laughs> and you get an invitation. And Dr. Jennifer Vertolin will be our special guest. We will, we, we will meet Senior Buttons. Yes. And yes, indeed. He'll steal the show. <laughs> yes, we're going to meet Senior Buttons. And then we're going to have a beauty pageant for your pets. Everybody should bring their pets to the Zoom meeting. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin and I will interview your pets, and then we'll all vote. Everybody in the meeting will vote as to who has the cutest pet. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That'll be great. And we don't know what the prize will be. I, I don't know what the prize will be. I'm also thinking if I can do dating, like see if we get men and women in the meeting. Mm-hmm. 
I could mandate who should go out on a Zoom date. And then they well, have to re- go ahead. Yeah, we, we got to use some some animal behavior mating strategies to like make the choices because that's going to lead to the best outcome. If we just leave it up to people. Uh... Oh, that's interesting. So you we could do like you eugen- dating eugenics where you <laughs> interview some people who are looking for a date mm-hmm. and then we look at the people in the Zoom meeting and we kind of match people up. There you go. I mean, that's one way to try it. I mean, I, it might be that we're dating virtually forever. <laughs> I might never kiss another person again. I don't know. This is this is fascinating. But so we will we'll we'll do love connection. We'll we'll have men and women, hopefully. <laughs> men and women will show up well, you know, or men and men go, and women yeah. and women. Hey, you know, yeah. Or other and other, who knows? Right. We'll do a, yeah. a dating. We won't play dating game, but you and I will pick or you will pick who is compatible and we'll okay. f- kind of force them to go out on a zoom date together. Okay. Well, I'm going to use my animal pocket guide to dating as my, uh, you know, as, as my tool for matchmaking. This is a really interesting idea. So you'll be a matchmaker. I, I, I'll give it a shot, you know? Yeah. This is going to be really interesting. So we're going to have a beauty pageant for your pets <laughs> where everybody gets to vote mm-hmm. on who has the cutest pet. And then we're going to do matchmaking. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin <laughs> is going to, I guess, let's think about the format. I guess what we should have is I would love to do same-sex dating, but I don't oh, know. Yeah, we could do same-sex dating. We could do single-sex dating. We could do whatever. <laughs> but I, I guess the simplest way would be to have one person who says they want to meet somebody, uh-huh. and then you would question that person. Yeah, yeah. And then because it's Zoom, people can raise their hands. Oh, and say, okay. I'm interested in dating this person. Okay. And then you would vet each person with a raised hand. <laughs> do, do they sign a waiver where I'm not held responsible for the outcome <laughs> of the pairing? I, yeah, I don't want to be liliable for, for, or for, for making a mismatch, you know? Because right. it's really hard to match uh, folks when you, you don't have you know, in-person information. This is the fundamental problem with online dating. Uh-huh. We rely, I mean, all animals, including people, rely on so much information that you can only get in person that, you know, online dating is, is kind of disastrous if you, if you use it as a form of having a relationship versus Okay, we made a connection. Like by day three, you should be meeting in person. So, so the problem with our idea is that, uh, you know, there's no way for them to meet in person. But, but hang on for one second. This is the future. The future is they never meet in person. They have a virtual relationship. True. This is real online dating, where it's all it's entirely virtual. I now let me ask you about Zoom. Because you're yeah. teaching using Zoom. Uh, well, so I'm not teaching using Zoom. I do hold open sessions uh, just for students to drop in and talk about the the material or ask questions. 
Um, and those are regularly scheduled just so that there's some structure. Um, mm-hmm. but I felt like trying to re, so this is the, this ties back to the dating, trying to recreate the in-person experience, you know, and, and identic in an identical fashion online is, is, is not for me, not really what I felt would be the most successful, whether that is now, uh, during this pandemic or, or ever <laughs> for online, um, instruction. So, so for me, you know, they, they get content delivered and then I try to, you know, pose questions and, and that are engaging and, and, then those that want to come and drop in kind of like your office hours, although, uh, and this is invitation only because you have to be in my class to drop in. Um, you know, we, we can talk about, uh, things and, uh, and sometimes people show up and sometimes they don't. And that's okay. okay. So, 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 so some quick questions about zoom because you yeah. are using zoom. Yeah. Yeah. You have breakout rooms. So in other words, we could say to a man, and a man, a woman, and a woman, or a man and a woman, whatever we end up, whatever combination we come up with, we can say, go into the breakout room for seven minutes right, and talk to one another, mm-hmm. and then come back and tell us if it's a match. Gosh, wasn't this like the old like AOL chat rooms? I don't know. I don't know. I remember way back when, when I had my first computer and and it, and the dial up to the internet and AOL was like the only email server and they had these chat rooms and you could go into a private room right you could leave the mm-hmm. big room and go into a private room so i think it's something like that you could go into this little private space and have your little conversation and the host can access the breakout rooms but but nobody else okay so we'll we'll, we'll try this okay let, let's okay. move on because we wouldn't need to talk about panda sex, <laughs> right. wet markets, bush meat, and eating bacon. But let me just say this one more time. Friday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, it's office hours on Zoom with David Feldman. And our special guest is going to be Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. We're going to start the, the Zoom meeting with a brief interview, an update on animal behavior and what we need to know about the world of science and the coronavirus. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is an expert. Then we're going to meet Senior Buttons, her cat. We are going to have a, a an animal beauty pageant where people are invited to bring their pets to the meeting. And we will then vote on who has the cutest pet. Yes. And it can be any pet you want. We'll do an, we'll figure out a way for everybody to vote. Mm-hmm. And, and we might make a love connection and, you know, love can not only be blind, but virtual maybe. Yes. And we're going to create a love connection. If you're single or you want to cheat on your spouse, come, hopefully you want to <laughs> cheat on your spouse. That's what I'm really hoping for. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com you will see office hours. It's in the menu. Hit office hours, fill out the form for a Zoom invite. And even if you don't want to enter your pet in a beauty pageant or cheat on your spouse, you just want to meet Dr. Jennifer Vertolin or just sit in on a Zoom meeting with us, 
Fill out the form over at the David Feldman Show website, and you'll get a, a Zoom invite. I have to say my plan only allows for 100 attendees. I don't think we're going to get more than 100 attendees, but uh, who knows? This will be the second one. So I hope everybody who came to last Friday's is going to return to this Friday's. I, it was very interesting, life-altering in many ways. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, then I'm, I'm you know, triply happy to be able to be a part of it. Yeah, it, it's very interesting because you get to meet the listeners, you get to talk to them, but there's no awkwardness. There's like, okay, goodbye, and you just end meeting. <laughs> you know, there's not like that. And there are no smells. There's, there are no, oh. no strange odors, and you don't have to shake hands. It's very impersonal. I would like to create a virtual marriage. I would like, because we had somebody from China, somebody from Australia, somebody from Ireland. I would love it if we could find somebody in Australia to fall in love with somebody in Ireland mm-hmm. and they have a virtual date that turns into a virtual divorce that they go through all that they end up <laughs> getting married on zoom. <laughs> they never meet each other in the physical world and they have a relationship via zoom that goes mm-hmm. all the, all the way to uh, divorce. <laughs> All right. And can, well, they, yeah. And, and, and I guess that'll simplify property disputes and, mm-hmm. and and all kinds of things that keep people locked in battle. Although probably they'll still find a way to uh, to you know. Well, we're spectacularly poor at managing our romantic relationships, which is why I developed the whole you know animal pocket guide to dating because. You know, there's there's definitely some some tools there that we could use and simplify, streamline, and you know, at least have a much better time in in relationships than many of us do now. What is the animal pocket guide to dating? Well, I mean, there's there's just basically five kind of uh, you know principles. Like, I'll just give you the first one. Uh, you know, I don't want to give it all away. We can we can uh, talk about it, but it's uh, it's you know, you gotta you gotta be be choosy. Right. So a lot of times we're told, oh, you're too picky. Right. Your friends will say, oh, you're too picky. You really got to settle. But but no animal does this. I mean, well, some animals do. And and then they trade up. Right. So you definitely can settle for what's in front of you while you keep looking for something better. But what we tend to settle for something that's not really great for us and leave it at that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you're a poison dart frog and you're a female, you'll take the first male that comes by because you don't know when you're going to get another one. But if another one comes by and he's better than the first one, then you trade up. You never trade down. So you're picky and males are picky too. Males are choosy too in animals. Um, So, you know, so that's the first one. And then the second one that I'll also give, which is one we typically have trouble with is you got to be honest about who and what you are. Mm-hmm. And, and that goes from, you know, uh, in a lot of other species, the first sort of decision is made on, on physical compatibility. And you don't see, you know, fake talons and eagles. <laughs> you don't see hawk uh, or, or, or uh, you know, antler extensions <laughs> in elk. 
um, you know, what you see is what you get. And, and I think that physically we have a lot of tricks up our sleeve to deceive others about our appearance. And there's very few, uh, there's only one species that I was able to find that does this. That's the long tailed dance fly. The, mm-hmm. the males like a, 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 a female with a little bit of extra oomph to her. And, um, because they give a gift that's about 30% of their body weight to a female. And so they really only can afford to give one away. And they want, you know, larger females lay more eggs. So the male gets more bang for his buck. Uh, and some females, they of course want the gift because it's food. It's energy rich. It's got tons of protein. So they cheat. They blow themselves up with air. Wow. <laughs> Wow. To look bigger than they really are, and hmm. the male gives him his gives the gift, and she's like, "Thank you very much," you know. But but in general, changing one's appearance is pretty tricky in other species. And then there's even personality compatibility. So many people have been across another person on a date, and maybe they were physically attracted to them, and the person's like, well, we should go antiquing. And, and you kind of pretend like, yeah, like I'm down with antiquing. And mm-hmm. you're not really. Um, so misrepresenting yourself uh, is is a problem. And I think that- This is exciting. Now I have- okay. So I'm going to okay. stop there. I'm going to leave All those right. two on the table. And the, <laughs> another thing we could do is this. There was a famous study by a psychologist named Arthur Aaron. And mm-hmm. he came up with 36 questions that a couple mm. must answer to each other. Okay. And it's how to accelerate love. In other words, you, the theory is that you could take two complete strangers. Right. And they answer these 36 questions privately uh-huh. to each other. For example, right. one, one of the questions is, given the choice of anyone in the world, whom would you want as a dinner guest. Oh yeah. I think I saw those questions at one time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I have them in front of me. So there's 36 questions. Uh, What would constitute a perfect day? What would constitute a perfect day for you? So you, so the, let's say the man asks the woman, the 36 questions first, Mm -hmm. and she has to answer. Then the woman asks the same questions to the man Right. And he has to answer. Or maybe they don't you take do turns like you don't do one question at a time. I, you're right. You're right. That's okay. better. That's better. That seems like you got to listen a really long time. Right. To right. Someone right. Else. <laughs> and you, Not you, that that's bad. I mean, no offense to people right. who, you know, but that's a lot of one way talking. Right. So these yeah. are questions like, what is your most terrible memory? What is your most treasured memory? Okay. What roles do love and affection play in your life? And you answer these questions. There are 36. Right. That you have to answer. And I think you're honestly, right. Honestly, right? Honestly. And it's a <laughs> yeah. TikTok. It's, uh, you're right. It's question one. We both answer it. And okay. then you must stare into each other's eyes uh. for four minutes. Now that's the, t- that's the tough part. And it's so interesting because in other species, other than maybe some baboons that flirt by staring or some capuchins that flirt by staring, staring is, you know, well, so there's a difference, right, between staring and looking in each other's eyes. Uh, but, you know, it, 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 it could be that I think is probably uh, the hardest part of that whole thing. Right. They say that 
people can stare into each other's eyes for a minute without it being awkward. Two minutes, it's uncomfortable. Three minutes, it's almost torture. At four minutes, you're either in love or you're not. This is the theory behind this. So it's 36 questions answered honestly, Mm -hmm. four minutes of staring into the eyes. This would be an interesting thing to do for Friday Zoom meeting is to find two people who want to fall in love. Right. You kind of do the matchmaking. You kind of pick the two people. Okay. Then we send them into a breakout room. Right. They privately do the 36 questions to each other. They do four minutes of staring. Right. Well, oh, yeah, they can. Right. They got cameras. Okay. They've got cameras. Then they come back into the meeting uh-huh. and they decide whether or not they're in love. Okay. So maybe. I, I, I'm game. If, if your listeners are game, then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have to learn the breakout room. I, okay. I have to learn how to put people in a breakout room. If not, then they have to go and set up their own Zoom chat privately, but we'll figure this out. I think this is something we could do every week. We could get people to fall in love. So go go. to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the office hours button, and you'll get a Zoom invite. And if you're lonely and you want to meet somebody, we may be able to fix you up. If you have a cat or a dog or an iguana that you think is cute, it can win the, the beauty pageant. And most importantly, we're going to finally meet Senior Buttons. How old is Senior Buttons? Oh, he is 16 and a half. And, um, you know, he's never he's never found love. Okay. So. I, I, I have an <laughs> image of him. For some reason, I think he's black and white. He is not. He is uh, part Siamese. Uh, his mother was most definitely not. And his sister was the spitting image of his mother that, uh, except gray and white. So I'm fairly certain that, um, either, either his mother had two partners <laughs> mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, she carried some other, uh, some gene that is responsible for the, the Siamese, uh, portion. But he's very Siamese ish. He's talkative. Hello. Yes. He's waking up right now. Um, he's very talkative, but he's quite large. Uh, he's about 11 pounds. And, and so, um, the male that, that was a feral male. So he was, they were all feral. Um, but the, the male that I think was his dad, he has his nose. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that that was his dad. (laughs) Okay. Um, but yeah, he's, you know, he's blue eyed, a little cross eyed, just like Siamese are. Okay. Can never well, get him to look into the camera straight on. <laughs> let's get um, to the most pressing issue of the day, and that is panda sex. Absolutely. Absolutely. Pandas having sex is a very important issue. So it's some, some people might be aware that, at least in captivity, it's been pretty tricky to get pandas to mate. Um, and, you know, and often they've had to show them some panda porn. Um, seriously, seriously. And, and the reason for Wait this, a second, that, there, you can find a well, panda, a panda express delivery man who brings pizza. <laughs> no, but I will say that if somebody ever shows up at your house in a panda suit, they're sending you a clear message. <laughs> okay. No, seriously. There's <laughs> such a thing as panda porn. Yeah. So for, for, um, I know they're the, pee tapes, but I didn't what, know. What, oh, what is that? It stands for panda porn, pee pee. 
Oh, okay. I'm just uh, making bad jokes. I... <laughs> so I thought you were pulling more of a porcupine situation. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Back. There really is a, such a thing as panda porn. There is. And so, so they've, they've, they've put on video other pandas having sex to try to encourage other pandas to start having sex. And part, you know, the thing is that in the wild, female pandas really respond to more than one male kind of vying for her. Right. So, mm. uh, so she really likes uh, threesomes with two males. This is really? where the, if somebody shows up in a panda suit at your house, you know, they're asking for something specific. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, in the wild, um, very famous uh, naturalist George B. Schaller had observed that female pandas really get in the mood when there's two male pandas around. And so, uh, you know, this could be why it sort of stimulates, you know, like seeing the pandas might, might be what's behind uh, sort of stimulating. But what's really interesting is that at a Hong Kong zoo that's been empty, right, a lot of interesting things are happening at zoos uh, right now without people present. And one of the things that happened is that it had been 10 years that this zoo has been trying to get these pandas to hook up, and, and they did not. And it looks like uh, because they weren't uh, being watched by people all the time, uh, they finally had sex. So, so I think we could all relate to that a little bit. If, if I, I, you know, if, if the only way that we could have sex is by a parade of, of thousands of people watching us, we, there might be fewer people on the planet. Right. Um, you know? So and, people, so pandas don't like it when somebody's watching them. Well, no, who would? I mean, well, I mean, well, black vultures aren't, aren't, don't have a problem, you know, with family members watching them. But well, but how yeah. do you make panda porn if the pandas don't like being watched? How well, you- there are cameras, you know, in, in zoo enclosures. So you don't have to be there filming them. It's not like the old 1970s films. It's like, you know, Pornhub now. You can just but this is a- non-consensual. <laughs> this is almost revenge porn. You're not getting the permission Well, fortunately, I don't think, which is always consent is very important. I don't want to just, you know, just dismiss consent. Uh, But at least for for pandas, you know, they they aren't aware and there's no panda Internet. You know, there's no like careers that get ruined over panda sex. Well, okay, I'm just going to stop there. (laughs) Just going to stop there. If you get caught watching pandas having sex there might be a problem. Yes. But, but you know, it's, it's a pretty well-known strategy in many of the captive breeding programs that you got to have, they got to see other pandas, you know, getting down. And it's mm-hmm. not like it's a, a really, you know, extraordinary affair in pandas. You know, pandas are kind of, I mean, there's problems with pandas. They, they squash their babies like half the time. It's because they're small. They're like a jelly bean, you know? So, Panda reproduction in general is, you know, a gargantuan feat. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, but they, they have a hard time in the wild for different reasons. Uh, but, but yeah, the zoo uh, reported that after a decade of trying, uh, the, the, the two finally with a little bit of privacy, you know, that should give people a clue also at how stressful it is to have visitors at the zoo. Right. Always. Right you know, being watched. I mean, imagine we're all in quarantine now. 
some of us are in uh, an apartment the size of a a panda enclosure. Mm-hmm. And um, imagine if there were a thousand people looking at you through your window over the course of the of, of you know eight or nine hours. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's return to wet markets. We we talked about wet markets on Friday's show. Mm-hmm. We're very critical of how they uh, what they eat in China. One of the things to keep in mind is there is famine in some countries, and you mm-hmm. eat whatever animals you can, including yeah. bats. So when we pass judgment on these wet markets mm-hmm. and the exotic animals that the Chinese eat, we're mm-hmm. forgetting that before Mao, they were eating rats, and they still were eating rats, and they probably still are eating rats because when you're hungry, you will eat dirt. There are people on this planet who literally eat dirt. So how do you change what people in China eat, and how do we change what Americans eat? Because the comorbidity with Mm -hmm. COVID-19 is obesity. Something like 90% of the people who are being admitted and put on respirators from the COVID-19 are, you know, I'm not blaming the victims, but they are obese. So before we start judging the wet markets, we should change what we eat. But how do, how do we change this? Well, there's, there's a lot of parts to this. So, so first, uh, uh, before I say anything else, I want to say that I personally am opposed to the wildlife trade, whether it's in parts or uh, for uh, food, uh, because of the destruction to other species. And we have so, so many billions of people on the planet, and it is not sustainable, right? But um, you bring up a really excellent point on the disparity and the inequality when it comes to uh, food, and we also see this in many places in Africa. So uh, the, the bushmeat trade is analogous uh, to the wet markets to a certain extent. Uh, it's not as intense, but it is what, what they believe gave rise to Ebola. Okay, uh, and it's specifically from, from fruit bats. So we can have another conversation about what's up with bats, uh, and, and before people start hating on bats, uh, it's not bats' faults <laughs> that they carry so many uh, viruses. Um, are people eating bats because they're a delicacy, or are they eating bats because they have no choice? Well, in many countries in Africa, people are eating because they're hungry, and the bushmeat trade uh, provides food, uh, and, and in many ways is also culturally linked to historic um, methods of, of securing food, we think of food as being industrial farming, but there's nothing humane about that either. So, right. you know, we, we have a very selective, um, you know, uh, outrage mm-hmm. uh, for things. So, so it's not sustainable either in terms of increasing population size, uh, the current bushmeat market. And, and I'm not supporting it. I'm, I'm merely pointing out that for many people, it is a way to get protein, and in many other countries in Africa, they they primarily will eat insects and, and other things that are excellent sources of protein that we think are abhorrent. 
Um, you know, and so what we eat and where we are and, and the culture that it's tied to is in, in, um, is linked uh, tightly. So, you know, I think that the problem with banning these things without feeding people or providing a safe and humane way for people to be fed or to support themselves leads to just an underground, um, you know, market. And it doesn't actually increase the safety uh, that we're all concerned about, which is that as you penetrate deeper into areas that contain species that contain novel viruses, you know, more and more of these situations are going to keep happening. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, and the answer is not, well, give every village, you know, five pigs, two cows and three goats and 10 chickens. Uh, you know, that's, that's actually, you got to graze those animals. You got to feed those animals. And a lot of programs that have say, Oh, donate a goat to this village, uh, wherever it is actually create problems for that village. Cause they got to feed the goat and take care of the goat and, you know, uh, do a lot of things that, that actually make it costly for them. So safely and humanely and, and eat, equally feeding all of the people on the planet sustainably is a fundamental problem whether you're and, talking and the about solution, fishing or wet markets or and, and the solution is switching to a plant-based diet i've been eating beyond burgers i've been eating the impossible burgers in my quarantine sure they're they're amazing. They're fantastic. Well, and I don't disagree with you, but but I'm going to play the other side, which is it's a it's a real privilege to even have the luxury of choosing that. So in many areas, why, why is it well, a privilege? Well, because in many areas, uh, you know, uh, the type of farming that would be needed, intensive agriculture to produce enough food in those areas, there's not enough fertile soil. Um, you know, there's an intense use of pesticides, which then destroys, uh, and, and fertilizer, which then seeps off and destroys coastal areas, which also provide enormous food resources. We see that happen in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and so, and also, you know, we talked, you, you mentioned about people being hospitalized and, and more likely to die with a comorbidity of obesity. Many people who are obese are actually malnourished. And, and this mm-hmm. is that, that silent thing we never, or the thing we never talk about, but we should, which is malnutrition globally is responsible for more obesity than gluttonous behavior. And you're, and, and you're obese because you're eating improperly. So you, and if you're eating bad food, if you're eating sugar and carbohydrates, you, mm-hmm. it makes you hungrier. It's not nourishing. Sure. So you keep eating more. That's why. Bad yeah, food and, makes you obese. Right. And, it, but it's still a privilege to eat healthy, good food. One, because it costs more. And two, you might be lucky enough to live in an area that's not a food desert. Uh-huh. So, you know, where we're seeing also um, differences in mortality rate between underrepresented groups uh, or, uh, you know, uh, people in African American communities. Uh, this is also because the socioeconomic demographics lead to food deserts in many of those communities and they don't have access to healthy, fresh food at good prices. 
And in fact, any produce that is sold is often marked up. I experienced this personally when I lived in a place in Ohio. I won't say where it is, um, you know, but it was a food desert. And when I went to go buy produce, I was shocked at first the, the you know, reduced selection of, of, food, of, of varieties available and the cost now, I was lucky because I had a car, and that meant that I could drive the 45 minutes away to a grocery store that had uh, lower prices and more variety. And I would go once every two weeks so that I didn't have to drive that often and stock up on produce. Uh, and I actually spent probably a third of what I, so it was, you know, economically it made sense with the gas, but mm-hmm. for people who didn't have a car, they, the, the, you'd have to take two or three buses. You'd have to carry all that food. Um, and so, uh, and they probably couldn't get the time off from work to be able to, you know, maneuver all of that way to try to get high quality, low cost, fresh food. So right. I, I think that, and, and those options are just not available in in many other places where fertile soils are are not um, are not uh, we've lost so much topsoil from erosion. Even our industrial farming is not sustainable. Uh, there's been sort of a push to more local farming, right, and and community farming. But the problem there is it's it kind of. I lived in California, and I I don't know if you've seen this, but those farmers markets are really somehow these. Um, I don't know what to label them, but really rich uh, people who decided to turn their one acre farm into some kind of luxury, you charge you $6 for tomatoes thing. And right. that again, makes it inaccessible for regular people. And well, so- this is, you know, we have a farm bill that comes up every five years mm-hmm. and because pork producers and cattle producers and dairy producers, have so much influence, mm-hmm. our government makes it impossible to buy healthy food. So we have to change. I, I guess the answer is the makers of Beyond Burger and Possible Burgers. Bill, Bill Gates is a big investor in the Impossible Burger. They have to lobby to, to move our government to get rid of these food deserts. But to be discussed next time, how do uh, people reach you if they want to ask you a question? Oh, gosh. Well, they can reach me on uh, Twitter. My handle is at Real Dr. Jen. And I, I got to just give a shout out to your listeners. They're, they're kind of awesome. Yes, um, they are. You know, and, um, and then on Instagram, it's also at Real Dr. Jen. And if they're interested in, in seeing uh, some of my videos, they can, they can find me on, on YouTube on Wild Connection TV or go to my homepage, um, jenniferverdelin.com and read my blog or see my videos or send me an email. I got an email from a listener who is local to Tucson um, this week and uh, her her mom is a fan and suggested that uh, she listen and then she reached out and sent me a very cute picture of her, her puppy. Uh, and so uh, it was really nice to be able to connect. So, you know, I appreciate 
uh, when your listeners uh, reach out and, and they always have amazing questions. They are great. They yeah. are great. My listeners, and I always say to authors, my listeners buy books. They don't read them, but they buy the books. Dr. Jennifer Verdelin will join us this Friday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Office Hours on Zoom. If you would like an invitation, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the Office Hours button, and you will receive an invite. We'll send you an invite. We, we're only allowed 100 attendees. I don't think we're going to get to 100. We came close last Friday, but uh, you might want to get your invitation early. And this Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Dr. Jennifer Verdelin and I will be welcoming Senior Buttons, her 16-year-old <laughs> cat. We will then have a beauty pageant. I invite you to bring your, your pets to this meeting, and we will vote on who has the cutest pet and then we're going to try to create a love connection. We're going to have Dr. Jennifer Verdelin use her pocket dating, animal dating guide. What is it called? Animal pocket guide to dating. The animal <laughs> pocket guide to dating. If you're single, uh, come to the show. And if you're interested in making a love connection, Dr. Jennifer Verdelin will fix you up. And then we will send you into a breakout room and you'll answer 36 questions to each other. And then the two of you will stare into your eyes for four minutes, then come back into the meeting and you will magically be in love. That's our plan. <laughs> That's our plan. There Follow Dr. Jennifer Vertolin on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen. Go to jenniferverdolin.com. Sign up for her newsletter. Also, you want to watch her. YouTube channel. You want to subscribe to that because you can see Dr. Jennifer Erdelin in the Sonora Desert talking to tortoises and kitty cats. Wild Connection TV. Subscribe to Wild Connection TV. And she's got two books that you should purchase. Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships and Raised by Animals, The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics with try-at-home lessons from the wild. We will see you Friday night with Senior Buttons. Yes, I can't wait. Great. Stay on the line for one second. Okay. That is, uh, hang on, how do I stop here? Stop. And I have an idea for a gift. Oh, okay, hang on. i got to figure out how to stop recording. Jim Earl is taking his seat. He is getting next to the microphone here at Liberty University. This is the speaker series at Liberty University. Jim is preparing to speak. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Jim Earl. Hello, Jim. <laughs> Hello, Jim. Yes. Please welcome uh, to our speaker series here at Liberty University, Emmy Award-winning, Peabody Award-winning comedy writer, Mr. Jim Earl. Thank you. 
Don't forget, uh, also, we uh, came in second place in the uh, uh, Sausalito comedy competition in 1989. Did you do the Sausalito comedy competition? Uh, It was some S-sounding town east of San Francisco. Right. Northeast, yeah. I won the Santa Cruz comedy competition. I remember that. Do yeah. you really? Yeah. Okay. I should mention that we have a guest here who's just sitting in. He's not going to say anything. He's feeling really better. Please welcome, please welcome the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Boris Johnson. Fresh out of ICU, you're just sitting in, and you look fantastic, Boris. You really do. All right. Just sit sit back, Boris, and, uh, okay. He's saying he's, that he's, he's able to get up for uh, a few seconds at a time. Yes, he is. He is. He's doing really well. So God, God bless Boris Yeltsin. Boris Johnson. It's Boris Johnson, right? Boris Johnson. Okay. Yes. I was wrong. Jim Earl. Excellent job with Melania, by the way. Thank you for well, that. I love Melania. She's a great first lady. Yeah. You are a brilliant comedy writer. You truly are. And Martha Previtt is is beloved. I mean, the, I'm being serious. People, we had a Zoom town hall Friday night. And people were in the chat room going, get your mind out of the gutter, David. And where's where is Susan Collins? People were requesting her. Absolutely. Good brilliant. question. What's I don't good? know where she I don't know where she is. I don't right. think she exists. I'm sanitizing my cucumbers. <laughs> OK. <laughs> All right, Jim Earl, let's talk about what's going on in the world. I feel out of touch. I'm in a bubble. I'm in New York City, two blocks away from emergency room, sirens all day. All I can do is stay inside. That's my patriotic duty is just to stay in and isolate. And I feel like I'm out of touch because I haven't had human contact in four years. Before. What about the people who deliver your food and liquor? That's true. That's true. Yeah, I get. Do you go out? Do you go out to the nearby Associated Market? I or? am. I am using. Uh, it's called Instacart. Ah. And they bring my food, and I have switched to a completely vegan diet. I've I've decided that something good has to come from this and i've completely gone vegan i don't allow any food into the house that has dairy in it because i do have a propensity for cheese for for cutting the cheese where's the laugh track so, all right, I, I, here, it's okay. interesting thing about instacart is they don't take uh, ebt cards the food stamps it is a way of killing off the poor. 
Poor people, poor people who are on food stamps cannot buy food online. They have to go to grocery stores. Right. Talk- and even even the grocery stores with outside pickup, many will not accept the EBT cards outside. Mm-hmm. You will have to go inside and and then cancel the whole point of distancing yourself. Now, from yeah. The way we're treating the 99%, because this is just going to get worse and worse for us, we are being victimized every which way. Uh, If you want to collect unemployment, you are told to go online. Well, A, if you're in a homeless shelter, there's no Wi-Fi for you, which means if you have kids, they can't do learning by Zoom. And if you want to apply for unemployment benefits here in New York, they're literally using a computer mainframe from the 1950s. This is third world country behavior on purpose. They're using using that big computer in that Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn movie. Yes, yes, yes. That's a yeah. Well, they're making it harder and harder for. Independent contractors can basically no longer file for unemployment because the uh, the rules are rules are so complicated and, and narrow. Even though there's this two trillion dollar stimulus bill that was supposed to make it easier for gig workers, if you were a driver for Uber, weren't, yeah. weren't you able to collect some form of unemployment? Right, but. Now you have to go through, jump through all kinds of hoops to prove your previous income, and it has to. It doesn't apply to uh, businesses of certain sizes, and uh, this is all overseen by uh, uh, Tony Scalia's son, by the way. Oh, the Commerce Secretary Anthony Scalia's son is Secretary of Commerce. Yeah, who also oversees uh, OSHA and OSHA telling. OSHA is not requiring business, small businesses or businesses of any kind to social distance or provide protective masks and clothing. Uh, they're just being given letters of advisement from OSHA. But there's no, there's no enforcement. There are no fines. There's no law, basically. Mm-hmm. Right, and th- this this was some this was something that was unanimously approved by both parties. Right, we'll get to that in a second. The pandemic is affecting the ninety nine percent differently than it is from the one percent, and below the ninety nine percent are the women and men in prison and the women and men living on the streets. This virus is going to blow through the prisons. It already is blowing through the prisons. It's blowing through the streets. The homeless have no access to health care. Right. I can't help but think, and I'm being serious, when you look at somebody like Lloyd Blankfein or Jamie Dimon, to them, I, I, I... it's just cleaning house. It's getting rid of the superfluous, the unbankable. There are people who they consider unbankable. 
about one third of Americans are unbankable. They don't have enough to deposit into a bank. Nobody cares about them. The unbankable. And since we're controlled by Wall Street, get rid of the unbankable. The pandemic is perfect for them. I hate to sound simplistic. Whether or not they're willing to admit that to themselves, that they believe that, that's what they're thinking. I think they believe it and I think they feel it, obviously. It's, uh, it's social Darwinist uh, herd immunity. That, that fucked up theory. And the herd, herd immunity theory is just another, another name for social Darwinism. It's just get these, thin them out from the herd. We know that uh, people with the most money will have the least exposure to this. And so let's get rid of all the poor people who are who are draining their tax dollars that they think, draining money away from their subsidies. Mm-hmm. And blame yeah. them for catching the virus, their lifestyle. It's kind of like AIDS. They, they yeah. conveniently blame poor people for catching the virus, for not being smart. And the myth when this started was, the virus knows no bounds. The virus doesn't differentiate between a gated community and the ghetto. But it does. It does. Because if you're in a gated community, you have access to ventilators, masks, and top-notch treatment. And if you're living on the streets, you don't have access to anything. Absolutely nothing. And you can stay inside and have your food delivered to you by people who are dispensable, people who can risk getting the coronavirus. It's affecting blacks and Hispanics disproportionately because they tend to do work in, you know, they drive buses and they're subway workers. They're catching the virus uh, at a disproportionate rate. Uh, yeah, it, it yeah. the virus doesn't, it does no bounds. It does it stays away from the rich. Yeah, this this is not negligence. It's it's intentional. It's designed for this result. And especially people with type two diabetes, type one diabetes too. You know, so it's a way to get get those people deleted from the populace. So. They don't demand uh, free health care and cheaper insulin or affordable insulin. Well, Martha Previtt runs Diabetic Fury. Tell us what Diabetic Fury is. You are a diabetic. What type of diabetes do you have? Uh, type 1 juvenile diabetes since I was 11, 10 or 11. And juvenile diabetes, it's it's it laughs at booger jokes. Is that the type of... So that's why it's called diabetes, ju- juvenile diabetes, because it laughs at booger jokes. Well, it likes Benny Hill. <laughs> and uh, every time we fall into a an insulin coma, you know, they have that mana mana in the background. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, uh, yeah, a lot of bare breasts everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's hideous. Yeah, it's juvenile diabetes. How hard is it to get insulin in America right now? Well, it depends on 
It's too hard. It's always too hard because you only get uh, like two thirds of a month full full of supplies. You know, many many people with diabetes don't have enough to make it through to the end of the month. So it's, it's you know they have to uh, ration it. Insulin is so expensive. How much is it? Well, it can uh, it can vary from. Six hundred dollars to two thousand dollars a month, depending on how much insulin you have to take. And there are various types of insulin. Some are better than others. There's a cheap insulin that uh, Walmart sells that people who live below poverty or or can't don't for some reason don't have Medicare or Medicaid. Uh, they buy that, and it kills them because it's, it's terrible. It's really not a good insulin. It does not work. It doesn't work. And the, the best insulins are the ones that work immediately. And $700. Yeah, there's like six $700 for uh, four or five uh, insulin pens. That's mm-hmm. how they're usually delivered. The delivery system is a Now, my, un- my understanding is that insulin was discovered by a Canadian academic a scientist in the, around the 30s and he he donated 20s. The, pa- the 20s 19, yeah and he donated the patent to the government so that nobody could charge for this and somehow right. Eli Lilly in the United States was able to get the the rights to sell insulin here in in America and gouge diabetics yes because there was some technicality that some lobbyists uh, <laughs> bribed Congress with <clears throat> our bipartisan Congress to that if you make some sort of uh, tiny alteration to the insulin, then they can re they can patent it and and resell it as a new product. I believe now That's in, my in Canada, how expensive is insulin in Canada? Well, it's at least one third of what we pay here. I believe. Unless you're on the national health plan too, then that's a whole different story. And then it's completely free. I, I think so. Yeah. What kind of so the, it's been laid bare? I mean, the, the, it was laid bare when Katrina hit, but now it's laid bare just across the country. We With the coronavirus, it. yeah, this, yeah, yeah, it's all I laid mean, bare. Our health, our toxic. Sadistic healthcare system. Where private equity firms that have invested in hospitals are laying off doctors as we speak and still mm-hmm. coming hat in hand to Steve Mnuchin for part of that bailout. Private equity is going to get taxpayer bailout money because their, their hospitals are now losing money. Real estate speculators are going to get a like half a billion dollar tax break so they can buy up people's foreclosed homes and apartment complexes. And uh, regardless of whether or not they make a profit off of it, they'll still get a huge tax break on it. Another subsidy. If this goes the way it looks like it's going within six months. I would assume 60 to 70 percent of all homes will be owned by private equity. We will be a nation of renters. 
That, well, we already are a, primarily a nation of renters, to my understanding. Uh, yeah. A few years ago, I read that in one of the, the newspapers. No, but, nobody will own property, and it'll just get worse and worse. All the property, all the land will eventually be owned by one or two private equity firms. Berkshire Hathaway, somebody will own all the, mm-hmm. like 90 percent of all the land. What happens then if we just stop paying rent? If and everybody they, just uh, stops paying rent. Then the National Guard comes into your neighborhood and throws you out. Right. It is interesting you, that puts the you in camps. <laughs> right. It is interesting that the sheriff's office is used to evict citizens. That citizens who pay taxes and are being evicted by private homeowners, they rely on the government who they don't trust to throw you out of the home, whether or not you went to court over this. Sometimes, you know, somebody like Steve Mnuchin, before he was the Treasury Secretary, he was able to make it so we've decided we're foreclosing. There's no no trial, no judge. He's able to convince a, a local sheriff to go in there and throw you out. They they use the government to to protect their home from deadbeat renters. That's the mark of a sociopath. Yeah. That's a, an abuser, basically. So the, the police are there to protect your, the property, not people. That's what the sheriff's right. office is. A lot of people, a lot of people during the financial crisis of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, were evicted from homes that they still owned, that they were maintaining the mortgage payments on, but the the lenders had credibility with the county, and they were able to evict people and take homes and still not be able to produce chain of title. They still couldn't prove that they actually owned the home that they were repossessing. It's phenomenal what's going on in this country. Yeah. It's phenomenal. And who, whose administration did that happen under? That would be uh, Barack Obama's administration. Yeah, Eric Holder. Yeah. Great hero. A great hero. <laughs> These are heroes. Uh, what will He's happen? A great man. Yeah, well, I, this is what I see happening. I see in four months the stock market doubling, the unemployment, we're told, coming down. We'll be told that unemployment has come down. And everybody will be broke. Nobody will be working. And Donald Trump will be reelected because we will be told that the GDP is up. The stock market's up. Unemployment is down. That's what we'll be told. And we'll go, oh, then it must be my fault that I'm broke. The economy is so good. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's my fault. Everybody else is doing well. Have you gotten your $1,200 check yet? Uh, no, that's the other thing. They can't even mail the checks out, can they? No. Well, let's see if they're going to bankrupt the post office. That's that's another discussion entirely. But what uh, 
people who get the checks first are going to be the ones who were able to uh, file online their income taxes in the last two years. Right. But all the millions of people who are living at or below poverty who do not file for taxes, then they're going to get it in the mail somehow. Right. How are they trying to destroy the post office? What What is the current plan? Uh, I don't know. I'll, I've only read the headlines, but I, I would assume it's by underfunding them. Well, they have. They, it's mandated that they have to uh, pre-fund the pension by seventy years, something like that. That, that. Really, the post office has to prove that the pension for the workers is funded going out seventy years. Why? Does uh, ExxonMobil pre-fund their pensions going out 70 years? No, they, they create these artificial restrictions that, that make it impossible for the, the post office to make money. By the way, one-third of the country is underbanked. The post office used to offer banking services for the people who couldn't get into other banks, and the the banks... They lobbied against the post office's ability to serve as a bank because it was a threat yeah. to uh, to uh, the, the post office. How bad will it get and will we know how bad it's gotten? Because we've been told to stay indoors, stay inside. When we're all inside, we don't know what's really going on on the outside. This can get really, really bad. I mean, this is exactly what the Republicans wanted, isn't it? Us scared, not paying attention, staying indoors. This is exactly what... Exactly what uh, corporate corporate Democrats want, too. This is a way for them to keep power and keep their wealth, consolidate companies... It's, you know, it's, look at the chart of the uh, income since 1980 when the Democratic Party abandoned its uh, working class and union base and took started taking money from the same sources as the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Corporate profits skyrocketed and uh, everybody else's salaries stayed horizontal. Right. And that's the plan. And chaos Chaos is the friend of the status quo. Nothing will fundamentally, nothing will fundamentally change if I'm president, says uh, Joe Biden. And I believe him. That's the only truthful thing I've heard him say in three years. Joe Biden, does he make it to uh, November? Is he going to be the nominee? A lot of people are saying the brilliant father figure Andrew Cuomo should be the nominee. What are your thoughts on Andrew Cuomo? Governor. I think Father I think Father Conklin is going to make a comeback. <laughs> father Coughlin? Yeah. Yeah. He had his finger on the pulse of Americans. Uh-huh. Well, I think he'll make it. I think he'll make it and his his wife will take over once he has a second stroke. He'll be indoors. And then she'll take over the reins. Dr. Jill Biden, the Surgeon General. Dr. Jill Biden, yes. Whoopi, Whoopi told us that she's a, a medical doctor. Right. 
Right. She's the doctor of education. Yeah. Well, one of the yeah, I was given a, I was given a lot of uh, proctology exams by my teacher. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. One of the things we're told is that yeah, the Democrats have the same values in the most for the most part as the Republicans do, but they do government well. But there's competence in how they govern. Is there any truth to that? That Obama, this wouldn't have happened under Obama. The severity of the virus. Ron Klain was in charge of the Ebola response. That they do believe in government. So that if you were to elect Joe Biden, there'd be some response to this. There'd be some, I guess, but it wouldn't. It, for the, the guy has promised to to veto free health care for for all Americans in the middle of a pandemic. Whereas you have Donald Trump saying he's going to expand Medicare for all the un, all uninsured Americans. So who do you trust? In, in, you know, they're both pathetic serial liars. But do you and, think Trump is going to expand Medicare? No, but I think he will outflank the left by making them believe so. Right. Making making America's belief, he will. OK, now you've you've come on this show and you are willing to withstand the scorn of people who are not as left as you are. You've left the Democratic Party. Are you voting for Joe Biden in November? This is the big question. No, I am not voting for Joe Biden. I will right. vote. I will write in Bernie Sanders. Suppose Bernie says, "I want you to vote for Biden. Don't vote for me." Well, I, I could give a shit. I didn't care when he told everybody to vote for Hillary Clinton either. Right. I'm not in a cult. That's the another big strategic tactical mistake Democrats have made from the very beginning, calling uh, Sanders supporters cultists. Right. And then the only thing we follow, most of us, is the platform, is mm -hmm. the ideas and the issues. Okay. So we have, gonna... we have Professor Ben Burgess on the show. He writes for Jacobin. He's a philosophy, a political science philosophy professor. He has been teaching me about accelerationism and is the myth that that things get so bad, eventually people see the light and they change. Mm -hmm. and, and there are a lot of people, I think you're one of them, you believe that things have to get so bad for the Democratic Party that they will come around and become the party of the working man, of the 99%. And that's a myth, according to Professor Ben Burgess, that you have to push the party as far to the left as you possibly can. But when things get really bad... They get even worse. And he says, well, hang on for yeah. one second. He says there were a lot of people who welcomed Hitler. And, and there was a German expression after Hitler, then us. After Hitler, then us. In other words, let Hitler get in there and then we'll show how really bankrupt the industrialists are and the fascists and the country will embrace leftism. And the problem is nobody could imagine how evil 
how evil Hitler was. And a lot of people, including me, can't imagine how evil Donald Trump and the people behind him are. So that when you say something like, and I, I agree with you, I have trouble. I, 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 I've said I'm not going to vote for Biden, but I am going to vote for Biden. But I, it's hard for me right now to admit to myself that I will vote for Biden. The problem is the Democrats are never going to learn their lesson. That's the problem. There's nothing you can do to teach them a lesson and make them return to this mythical golden age of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It's just well, never going to happen. I agree with you on that. And the, the whole point is not to try to change the Democratic Party. That was Bernie Sanders. Two, two strikes there. Two times he tried that stupid trick and it didn't work. You can't work within the Democratic Party. You can't make friends with swing with Republicans who question your citizenship, like Obama mm-hmm. tried to make friends for eight years with Republicans. You have to destroy the party. And I think. How do you destroy? I agree with you, but how do you destroy the party? Well, you, for one way. To not help them is to you stop voting for them mm-hmm. and you go with, and you construct your own third party or fourth party or 20 other parties. But you do anything but vote for another Democrat like that again. Right. Right. And we've done that. We've done that since uh, Hubert Humphrey, and, you know, Mondale, du- Dukakis and uh, Clinton. You know, it's, it's carry is one big, massive failure after another. OK. And, and so uh, I I'm going to ask you if Hillary had been elected president, given the power that Bernie had in the party. Don't you think we would have been able to move her as far to the left as we could. In other words, don't you think, yes, she's a centrist, she's a hawk, she's a neoliberal, she's part of the Davos crowd, she's horrible, but there were enough people within the Democratic Party who could have moved her to the left. Uh, Another way to look at that would be to uh, be that her election would have cemented her power from the center to the right, the so-called mm-hmm. lie of centrism to the right, and made things even worse. And uh, then you have, I think, the almost certainty that the Congress would be totally controlled by Republicans. She would get nowhere, do do nothing. The only thing she'd be able to do was is what her husband did and that's go further to the right, give Republicans what they want, you know, crime bills and uh, welfare, gutting welfare some more, and and uh, that's 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 how Bill Clinton got along with Congress, right? And that's what uh, Barack Obama tried to do, and that's what uh, Hillary Clinton would have done. Uh, she she would have completely neutered. The progressive movement right. in that respect, they would have no nothing to do. 
What happens to this country when, and this is, I, I, I'm getting scared, but the 99% are a couple of weeks away from having nothing to lose. Absolutely nothing to lose. What happens? Yes. What happens? Well, people are going to stop paying their rent. They could go on massive rent strikes, not by even design or choice, but because they have no, they have no other choice. Right. How can you pay rent when you don't have any money? Right. You know, half the country living uh, week to week. Uh, and then they, they're going to start stealing food, breaking into grocery stores. Uh, there's going to be a lot of civil unrest. There's already a lot of uh, general strikes going on all around the world. Uh, what what choice will people have? And And what do you see... Do you see an apocalyptic hellscape of the people with guns running tribes? You have to go to tribal chieftains to get your food. Do you see a complete breakdown of our government? What do you see? Well, like I've said before, in ancient Athens, you had the Ebola plague, which wiped out, I believe, one quarter to one third of the total population of Athens and destroyed the democracy after years of uh, brutal imperialism on behalf of their democracy. It destroyed uh, Greek society completely. And that vacuum is always replaced by a authoritarian regime. Usually, yes. Yeah. Or an invading tribe. Right. We'll have the Canadians <laughs> right. and the Bolivians. Right. Well, at least Bolivia has uh, rent forgiveness. Yeah. Or is that Venezuela? El Salvador. I think maybe they all do. Okay. Jim Earl, how do people follow you on Twitter? That'd be Jim Earl 666. The name of your book is Morning Remembrance? Yes. It's, Morning Remembrance. And it's uh, a jovial look at the deceased with an introduction by Rachel Maddow and Mark Marin, who, appropriately enough, are dead to you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I don't speak to them anymore. Y- yes. I've Our- chosen not to. I put them out of my life. And you are a brilliant comedy writer. Your work can be seen on the Jimmy Dore Show, the National Lampoon Radio Hour. What is the name of the National Lampoon? Uh, uh, I, well, it was National Lampoon, but now it's not associated with it. It's, it's called the Final Edition, produced by uh, Barry Link. How is Barry? I don't know. Last time I uh, texted him, he was... Uh, Lying in bed with a huge fever. So, what's, oh, what's her name? Is that what we call yeah, them these yeah. days? A huge fever? No, I don't know. He's fine. He's fine. I'm, I'm just kidding. He's not sick. Oh, okay. Jim Earl, thank you. Thank you for another great Martha Previtt segment. And, and Martha uh, Previtt is at uh, her Twitter handle is at Martha Previtt and Diabetic, diabetic Fury. Fury. I'm sorry, Melania, what, what, what? Hi, David. Hello, David. Hello, Melania. 
How do we I get? I am the first lady. How do we? You who you who doesn't know me, you can follow me at Diabetic Fury on Twitter. Thank you. And 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 how do we follow Martha Previtt? Can you spell her last name, Melania? M A R T H A P R E V I T E. Thank you. Thank you. Stay, thank you, Davey. Thank you. Stay on the line, Jim Earl and Martha Previtt. I'll see you in court. Joining us is Professor Harvey J.K. He has a brand new book out that you can buy on Amazon or Pals or wherever fine books are purchased. I don't know if there are any bookstores left right now. FDR and Democracy, The Greatest Speeches and Writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Buy this book. It's a collection of speeches and writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt compiled by Harvey J.K., who is the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Now, would you like a collection of the greatest speeches and writings of Professor Harvey J.K.? Then you should pick up Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. It's published by Zero Books. Welcome back, Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you. We're going, to have to stop, we're going to have to stop meeting like this. It's like every other night. <laughs> I know. You created a monster, Dr. Harvey J.K. I know. You're haunting the haunting Zoom on Friday night now. You and I talked, I think it was two weeks ago on a Sunday night, and you said, why don't we do this on Zoom? I'll show you how to do it. And I said, what's Zoom? And one boomer showed another boomer how to Zoom, be a Zoomer. A boomer became a Zoomer. Yeah. And then within two weeks, we were holding a town hall meeting. It was last Friday night. Invitation. Can I just say, yeah, can I just say, I'll let you continue on this very same thing. It was interesting. I just want people to know. The invitation went out. A hundred people replied, you said, or is that, that's the limit maybe that. We were only allowed a hundred attendees. We got, we got more, we sent out more than a hundred invites, but how many people showed up? Well, I was going to say that you were sort of projecting, I don't know if you were minimalizing it or what, minimizing or minimalizing, whatever the term may be. You, you said, lowballing, oh, I believe. Lowballing. lowballing, right. I, you know, you said, maybe, maybe we'll get 20. You've heard that if, if there's 100 invitations, 20 people show up. Right. And we had probably 65, on average, 60. I mean, once again, once people, in fact, there were people who were arriving. We went way beyond our designated time, right? We yeah. went from, what time do we start? Nine o'clock. o'clock. We went to, yeah. do we go to 1045? No. Do we go to 1045? Well, professor, what kind of question is that to ask? You know that I keep these shows short. <laughs> well, I thought it was great when they, they all knew you. And at the end of it, like somebody said, would you stick around? <laughs> what was it? How do you put it when you say, 
Will you hold on the line? Oh, right. Somebody then, said, yes, yeah, somebody said, <laughs> David, will you stay on the line? Right. And then that right. was just great. That's a sign of people who just know you, know you well. By the way, sorry, I don't mean to go off. No, no, go, please. It's your no, fault no, this happened. Well, it was interesting to me, for a start, that we had that. I wasn't surprised we had that many people. I, I thought you were underestimating. I mean, I knew you were underestimating because the people I've met at events who knew of me, knew of me not only because of, say, Michael Brooks show, they knew of me because of the David Feldman show, which is quite nice. Sure. And not to mention a lot of other shows. But the point was, when I met them at the Michael Brooks show, many of them brought up your show, the David Feldman show. So, and, and by the way, everyone should definitely watch the Michael Brooks show. Absolutely. Okay. Tonight. 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 No. Oh, well, we do. We're, we're pretending. This, Sorry, I do this every week. We're pretending Tonight. it's Tuesday. Tonight, watch the Michael Brooks show. Michael is clearly, of his generation, the rising star of podcasts, etc. Okay? Yes. And yes. he's got a lot of things to say right now as we try to figure out what we're going to do post-Bernie. Yes. So do watch the Michael Brooks show. And yes. If you, and if you really like what you see, you can watch him during the daytime, too, at Majority Report. Let me come back to us, however. So Friday night, what was, what was interesting was to me, yes, the numbers, but then I was also amazed. I, we, had, we had an Irish guy in London, right? We had an Irish guy in Ireland, right? We had an American woman in Mexico City. We had, um, and I think he's American, a fellow in Beijing, right? Yep, Timothy that was interesting. We actually that was, that was better than The Daily Show because, or at least The Daily Show from the past, I haven't watched it since... Uh, since whoever was left. But the, the key thing is, is that he went out on the street. Screw the late night shows. He went out on the street for real in Beijing with his mic. And he was talking to people, looking for a joke from the people in the street, like yeah. a, a public market to see how people were lining up. I, I, I was impressed. I, I, was in, I was impressed, too. It, it, and I said to you, because we're both boomers, I said to you, did you ever think you would experience something like that where you'd be having this intimate conversation between a, a woman in Mexico City? I'm getting the ch actually getting the chills. I'm being honest with you. I'm getting the chills. Uh -huh. And I don't think it's the COVID-19. I'm getting the chills because at one point we talked to this woman, a listener in Mexico City, yeah. and I said, let's go to very, Beijing. Very, very smart. By the way, she was very articulate, very yes. smart. I didn't quite pick up exactly what she does in Mexico City, but but she, I was really glad she came on with us. Yeah, and then we said, well, let's go to Timothy, who's in Beijing, and what I love about it, for me, is there's a panel of faces. Yeah. So he can go out into the, when he's ready to go out on the street, I can go, Timothy, and then he comes up on everybody's screen. And if I get bored, I can say, Harvey, JK, you have a question for Timothy. I mean, you can really keep this thing moving if, if you're paying attention to all the faces and you keep it small. You don't want to go past a hundred. I, I, I realize that. Right. Well, and the longer we were on, the crazier you got. Oh, the, yeah. But that's, yes. I mean, David had, by the way, so David had all these, what do you call those? Snapchat camera devices? I, faces. We, we had faces. some faces. There's some snap yeah. faces that exist. And then Josh made some faces for me. I interviewed you as oh, Thomas yes. Friedman. As Thomas Friedman. That's too bad. In some ways, I'm almost sorry. I was going to say to you today, and I forgot. Dude, they might not see it out there, but I would have seen it. We should have done 
a whole half hour of Thomas, like 15 minutes of Thomas Friedman, 15 minutes of somebody else. Right. It would have been kind of fun. We should think about that for the future, okay? Yeah, yeah. And by the way, Josh, who kind of runs the show, is made the Toronto, t- right? No, no, that's uh, oh, Saul. Saul. Josh yeah. is in San Francisco. Joshua Saul is a very biblical night. Yes, yes, it is. And he, Josh is in charge of the infrastructure. Oh, yeah, Josh, thing. who I met earlier. That's yeah, he keeps this thing going. And he made the Thomas Friedman mask, and I couldn't stop looking at it. And I said, well, he's going to interview Harvey J.K. And then I completely, thank God you reminded me to, to put that mask on. I would have forgotten. Yeah. It was really interesting. And I don't know where it's leading, but I want to let it harness me before I try to harness it. I want to see what the potential is. You're teaching via Zoom, is that No, correct? well, I, I'm... I, I meet a, I meet one on one with students by way of Skype. Okay, I'm not I, I'm not doing online lecturing. Okay, uh, at least not this semester. I didn't want to set a precedent for myself that way. I wanted it right now. I'm doing a group in group independent studies. The students read. I give them the assignment. They read. They send me the stuff. I read the stuff, and they move forward. And in a couple of weeks, we'll start moving into reading of essays where I read the essays. They join me in a, in a FaceTime or Skype event, and I'll go over their essays with them, and then they'll write the final drafts of their essays. Um, anyway, I did so, something. I'm embarrassed to tell you what I did two days ago, but I'm going to tell you. Oh, yeah? You know, things move very quickly. You threw your partner out on the street. That I've done millions of times. Okay. Um, I attended a memorial service you did. via... Zoom. Okay. And I was smart enough to stop my video. So you knew I was present. You saw a picture and I didn't really know the people who died. I knew Hmm. the the grandkids and and, and the parents, but not the people who, it was actually two older people who died with in weeks of one another and uh, and that saved me money on a condolence. I was able to send one condolence card, mm-hmm. and you you know, yeah. I saved five bucks plus the stamp. Just only had to send one anyway. So I went to the memorial via Zoom, and I was smart enough to turn my video off. Some other people weren't, and you could see what they were doing oh. while attending this virtual memorial. That's a shame. Yeah, and. I don't think there's any going back. I think it's hard enough to get people to go to a memorial. Yes. If it can be done on Zoom and you can multitask, like do your taxes or <laughs> run some run some errands at Trader Joe's, which apparently some people were doing. Oh, geez. Yeah, it was pretty grotesque. It was, oh, and I was reading the New York Times. I said, you know what? I'll I'll keep the volume down, yeah. and I'll present they'll know that i'm there and i'll catch up on my sunday times (laughs) yeah yeah so to go back to friday night if you don't mind yes yes because i feel bad for those people who might have looked at the monitor to see what their friends were doing while they were yes memorial service yeah but the other thing i would say if you don't mind a a critical suggestion yes please is as oh by the way my friend john shelton i should mention john shelton my young colleague yes okay he, he had, had to go after an hour, but he sent me a text afterwards and said, 
that was fun. That's how he put it. That was fun. Professor and, John and, Shelton. Professor John Shelton, who teaches labor history alongside of me here in Green Bay. Right. Yeah. Um, but but what I was going to say is, as this develops, I, I I know you're I know you're a comedic writer. I know you're Emmy award winning. I, I I realize all that. We have to, and I but I also know that we share a politics, and I think it's important that somehow, and all your viewers do too. So we should think about how we can sort of make this a progressive occasion, even as yes. we laugh. Did it veer? Because the this show, if you listen, the theory behind this show is I do a radio show with Ralph Nader, and if he listens to it, he's not going to get past the third hour. And after the third hour, anything goes. Uh. <laughs> you know, that's, that's somebody's theory, and I think subconsciously yeah. that's true, that after the third hour of the show, I'm not worried about uh, uh, Ralph yeah. or anybody slogging uh-huh. right. through this much. Did it degenerate into a right-wing chat forum? No, Jesus, no. Okay, <laughs> Nothing like that. No, no. But for example, it it didn't doesn't have to be a constant it doesn't have to be a propagandist evening, a propaganda right. evening. I don't mean that. But there are ways we want to figure out how to articulate. So I, I like I I could tell you like the town hall style of it. Like these are your viewers, how often you get to view them yourself. I appreciate that. So I don't want to be I don't want to impose on your on Impose. What, impose away. But it would be, and and I know we try to kick it off with you interviewing me, you know, right on the FDR stuff, and that I'm not saying we should be doing all that kind of stuff, but we should be thinking, we should brainstorm sometime how to sort of articulate that. You will recall that I said to Pete, I noticed somebody had a a musical instrument. Was that the mm-hmm. guitar in the corner? Right. And in some ways, it was it was kind of fun because then all of a sudden we had those. What about, you know, dueling trombones? Right, right. I mean, it was, it, that became fun, and I would not want to cut into any of that at all. Right. But along, but along the way, it'd be good if we knew how to, how to not veer back, but sort of somehow embed politics. Into yes, and, and I think it, you know, as you're saying this, I'm thinking how you format it, and maybe it should resemble this show in that the first let, let's say it's 90 minutes. The first 30 minutes is, you know, your vegetables, you know, your vegetables and, but, and the importance. But I have an idea for you to avoid it looking too much like this show. Since you're using Zoom, we could have it as, a, as two or three people, like a, discussing something. Right, right. As opposed to the one-on-one. Right, right. So we should think about that. I mean, my, right. for example, I'll just get the one that comes to mind immediately. My young friend, John Shelton, would be interesting to plug in, too, around questions, say, of labor or education or whatever else. Okay, well, You know, it might be interesting if he wants to attend uh, this Friday to yeah. check in with him and, you know, give us a five-minute update on the labor movement. Yeah, uh, that, what, I think that would be a great idea. Absolutely. Right. I try to, I, if, don't let me forget to... We, he, right. and I were, he and I were part of a project today. I'll just mention to you, you might enjoy hearing this. So in 1886, um, there was something, something took place which is known as the Bayview Massacre. It was, a, it was part of the eight-hour day movement. Hmm. Okay? And this was in Milwaukee, in contrast, say, to the violence that occurred in Chicago in the Haymarket Martyrs. Um, so there was a, it was a multi-day strike initiative. And there was one major factory, one major plant that did not 
go out, did not shut down during the, what was essentially a general strike in Milwaukee. And the workers who had been marching daily around the city marched on that plant in the south side of Milwaukee, an, an area called Bayview. These were mostly Polish workers who were marching towards the plant. And the day before, the governor of the state, whose name I'm blanking on the second, called out the National Guard. And, and of course, the National Guard was itself made up of the very same folks who were marching on, on, on the plant. And the tragedy was that the order was given to fire on the workers. And seven people were killed in, in that day. And every year for, for, for who must be more, must be about 15 years now, the Wisconsin Labor History Society, which I was one of the co-founders of, which is a mostly labor organization, not an academic organization. We established a memorial at the site where it occurred. Hmm. And every year we hold an event. Somebody speaks, a, polit- a progressive politician or, inte- or academic intellectual type. But every year we do this and we get about 300 people on May, on the Sunday closest to May 5th. And I did it back in, uh, 19, not 19, 2011, I guess it was something like that. So anyhow, so this year we can't do it because we can't have those kind of, that kind of gathering. So somebody had the idea that we should do a virtual commemoration. Right. So, so several of us who central to the organization took parts in a production which which a media guy in Milwaukee was, is going to put together for us. So the opening, there was an opening, in, you know, sort of introduction. Then there was somebody to talk about the events leading up to it. Somebody talked about the actual massacre. Somebody else talked about the development of labor and socialism in Milwaukee after that. And Milwaukee, if you don't know, has historically been from through the 20s, at least in the 20th century, a city of socialists. So we've had so they had socialist mayors. The last socialist mayor was probably in the, back in the 60s into the 70s. But the point is that it has a great socialist and labor history. And John and I were in it together. John did a sort of retros. John talked about the implications of the events for the labor movement today. And I closed with a poem by Carl Sandburg, uh, okay. which, which remind me sometime I'd, I'll actually perform it here. For, well, for yeah. Okay. So I, let, let's get to the elections. We, we have results from Wisconsin finally coming in. Let me just tell you about the Zoom meeting because this is the. The input today has been monumental, and I want to thank you. I think the the way to move forward with the Friday night Zoom is to have experts who do brief, you know, four to five minute presentations mm-hmm. at the top of the show. Yeah. Maybe three or four, boom, boom, boom. Then open it up for discussion, questions and answers, questions from the listeners. Then maybe Vox Populi, people can speak up and we can discover who's who and where are they. And, you know, we have Timothy in Beijing. How's it going? And we get this reports from our listeners around the world. Or if they just want to sit back and watch, they're they're welcome to do that. Nobody Mm -hmm. has to participate. One of the things we're doing. And, and I think this will come on at the end. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is an animal behavior since she does the show. She's been doing the show. She's been doing every episode since COVID-19. Every episode? Since COVID-19 broke out. And but, she's but been beginning of the week and the end of the week shows. She does both. Yeah. She's, she's an expert on viruses and stuff oh, like wow. that. Good for you and her. Yeah. And she. It I, wrote, it was last week. I didn't realize. Sorry. I'm sorry. 
I, I didn't realize she was doing both installments. Yeah, know. and and she's uh, she's also written about the mating habits of humans vis-a-vis other animals, and I thought not with other animals, but well, that's uh, that's after after hours. <laughs> and I thought, why don't we try? Well, first, we're going to have a beauty pageant for animals. So she's an animal behavior. So I thought everybody brings their pet. Yeah. This Friday night. This Friday night. you okay. If you bring your pet, you get to introduce your pet. Yeah. And then we have everybody vote on who has the cutest pet. That's And you get Great. a prize. Great idea. I hope people have pets. I don't. It doesn't matter if you don't have a pet. But, you know, it will be a beauty pageant for okay. your pets. And... We'll vote on who has the cutest pet, and the winner gets a free download, an audio download, an audio version of one of her books if you win. That's one idea, and we'll move it very quickly, but we'll do this towards the end. And then I want to try something that we'll do at the absolute end of the show, and I have a feeling, Professor, this will be interesting. Okay. So she has this pocket animal guide to dating, and we're going to... And we're going to have her play matchmaker. So let's say we have some men who want to meet men, women who want to meet women, (laughs) men who want to meet women, women who want to meet men. Hopefully, as you just pointed out, it won't be men who want to meet somebody's dog. And she will do a matchmaking. She will interview singles. On air. I mean, on the show. On the show. At the end, because it could get sloppy. And, and, you know, she'll, she'll, who wants to be fixed up with somebody? And mm-hmm. we will create a virtual match, like truly online dating. Yeah. And then we will send them into a breakout room. <laughs> there are breakout rooms on Zoom. <laughs> and they will have seven minutes uh. to engage in, do you know about this questionnaire, 36 questions to fall in love. It was in the New York Times about five years ago. No, I don't know. Yeah, there's a, there's a psychologist who came up with 36 questions that if a couple sits down at a table and answers each one in front of one another, honestly, and then at the end of the 36 questions, after they've answered each question honestly, they must stare into each other's eyes for four minutes. Now, have you ever stared into somebody's eyes for four minutes? The first minute is uncomfortable. The second minute is torture. The third minute, you usually quit. If you can stare into somebody's yeah, four eyes for a long time without saying anything, after yeah. answering these 36 questions, this psychologist maintains that you will then be in love with this person, regardless of the chemistry, the smell, the looks, the sexual attraction, 36 questions, four minutes staring into each other's eyes, you're in love, like locked in permanently. And this was a big article that came out five years ago in the New York Times, and a lot of people have fallen in love because of it. So I thought, all right, well... But you have to do the 36 questions. You can't just do the staring into each other's eyes. No, you got to do the... So we'll put a couple in the breakout room. They do the 36 questions, the four minutes of staring. Then they come back into the the Zoom meeting, and they're in love. And now we're going to make them have a virtual relationship for a week (laughs) and report back to us... I don't, I don't know if I can be associated with this. 
Basically, I'm pimping. I'm getting people laid. You're really, really getting close to the edge of there. You're really getting, especially since you don't know for a fact that these people are are disengaged from anyone else, and therefore you may be literally cultivating um, alienation of affections. Remember Ashley Madison? There, there was that dating site for married couples. Oh, that one, I do remember the name Ashley Madison. That was that's right. That's, that's right. where married people could go online. For, <laughs> that's right. All right, all right. Let's uh, let's get serious here, Doctor Frank. I'm going to call you Doctor Frankenstein. No, no, don't you? you don't like that? No, no, you can call me Harvey, please. Okay, because you created the Zoom. Any complaints about Zoom? <laughs> Go directly to Harvey JK. No, I was and, happy to do this on Skype, Professor. Let's talk you know about what's really weird is just the very day be- before we even talked about Zoom, I think it was, I listened to an installment of the WNYC uh, show on the media, mm-hmm. and they were dealing with the Zoom question and what a vile corporation it had been um, right. in terms of sharing your data, not just data, but information. I mean, just awful kind of stuff. Right, so, right. I, but apparently there's a new updated version, which basically just uh, just gets you committed. So there you go. Yeah. The other thing is Skype is actually just as good. They've upgraded their services. So you uh-huh. can do Skype meetings. And yeah, uh, but it is interesting how quickly boomers can do zoom that's the ease the ease of use uh-huh yeah. the low the, you know the entry point it's just yeah. real it's a soft entry point right and that's 99 percent of it it's just when older people can find their way in is it gonna transform the world the world is going to change with or without zoom but i think zoom is well i think zoom is going to change by the way, I just had this Zoom. idea. I just had this idea that I bet Putin and Trump did that thing you were talking about—the thirty-six questions and looking. <laughs> at the I, I'm, I'm really convinced, and Donald Donald denies it, but I, I have a feeling that they're in love. That they are in love. Yes, I, yes, they are. Well, somebody has to love Donald Trump, and it's certainly not Melania. Wisconsin held its primaries. Last Tuesday, yeah. since then, Bernie dropped out without our knowing the results. Right. Bernie dropped out and endorsed Joe Biden. We'll get to that in a second. The Republicans in Wisconsin wanted these elections to be held last Tuesday because of the state Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, did it, they succeed in getting uh, what they wanted? Uh, no, they didn't. They didn't. In fact, though, it looked it looked. Looked bad at the outset, but that's only because I didn't see the geography of it. So today, as they were re- releasing the results, and of course, Biden beat Sanders. I- I'm not convinced he would have won Wisconsin had there been a- an election without the virus, had there been an election in which the Democrats hadn't already piled on against Bernie, all that kind of stuff. That doesn't matter. Biden had it already, and, B- and Bernie had backed out, which we can talk about another time, I guess. But it is interesting to think that Bernie may well have stayed in as long as he did, they may, the Democrats may have talked him into staying in because of this race between mm-hmm. conservative and a progressive, the woman progressive, Jill Kardofsky. And so when they first started releasing the results, I didn't quite realize that there was coming mostly from rural and more conservative areas. And I thought, oh, God, here it comes again. In fact, I tweeted without referencing Wisconsin, 
you know how you know how uh, Trump had been saying you'll all grow tired of winning, something like that. Yeah. Remember? Well, yeah. I tweeted, I'm 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 already fed up with winning. Okay, I've I've had enough of right wing winning. Right. But anyhow, next thing I knew, I got a text from this little group of my former students. One of them said, uh, Jill won. And I said, oh, my goodness. And in fact, she did win. I think it was 53 to 46 or 54 to 40, you know, something like that. And that this is to sit on the Wisconsin Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. Now, this, that doesn't change the composition of the court necessarily. But it's a but it is a sign of how how people in spite of in spite of the dangers of going out to vote were able to succeed in voting. Now, let me make it clear. It's not unlikely that people who were more progressive in the state had already requested absentee ballots. That's quite possible, okay? It's also quite possible, of course, that those who dared to go and vote, and these were especially folks probably down in Milwaukee who were very impressive and brave, um, were not going to vote conservative either. But in any case, yeah, we won in terms of that, in terms of that seat. Um, I've heard about some other progressive victories at the local level. I don't remember all the details of people who have been sending me notes about that. Um, but it, what's telling from that election is not just the outcome of this race. It's also the fact that the Republicans were willing to send their fellow citizens to their deaths rather than make, make a decision to have the election uh, dates extended, if only to allow more absentee ballots to be processed. They were adamant about not allowing any change in the rules. And that meant they were willing to drive people, to send people into a, a you know, into some kind of very, very infectious situation. And who knows what, what may well transpire. Uh, I'll just tell you very quickly, one of my students, first time I've actually, one of my students said that his uncle passed, died last week from, from the virus. His uncle, is, I don't know what his particular job was, but he had to take a bus to work every day. And he undoubtedly picked it up on the bus. So this is a serious case that if you go to when we're going to vote, it's not unlikely you would have encountered the virus in some way. So keep that in mind. It's also, I mean, it's just think about these Republicans, the death cult-like character that their party has become. You know? Yeah, yeah. So Bernie did not do as well in Wisconsin as yeah. we we thought he would yeah. do. But I, again, I think it was almost irrelevant. Um, by the time it took place because of everyone knew he was going to pull out. Uh, number one, there was no real campaigning. Um, so what, but why vote for Biden? I, I don't understand the results. Why would, you, why would you well, turn out for Biden uh, well, during a I th- pandemic? There, there again, I don't, I mean, it's quite possible again that those who did turn out to vote for maybe some local races also voted for Biden. It's also possible that a lot of these advanced votes made the difference because they were Democrats who were showing their support for the Democratic candidate. I mean, this presents me with a very, very ugly situation, a real dilemma, this entire situation. So let me make it clear that I swore after Bill Clinton, who I despised to begin with, I never liked Bill Clinton, but I voted for him because what were you going to do, vote for the Republicans back in the 90s? So I swore I'd never vote for another Clinton. I didn't even care if DeWitt Clinton came back from the dead. I, in, in New York, I wouldn't have voted for him. So the thing is that when, when Bernie was running against Hillary, I was convinced at that time that there was no way I was going to vote for Hillary. And I was hoping mostly for my, because of my affection for Bernie that Bernie would win the nomination. He didn't, even though he won Wisconsin in the primaries. So when I went to vote, yes, I did vote for Hillary Clinton. And I 
almost didn't in part because I figured, well, it wouldn't matter very much. You know, all the polls are showing this. But I kept in my head, I kept seeing this image of Donald Trump appointing a Supreme Court justice. Right. Okay. Or two. Or two. God, yeah. Or two. Oh, God. I, that, I forgot Maybe. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we're talking about Wisconsin, by the way. I'm talking about nationally here. Yeah, but I'm talking about voting in a presidential election yeah, in 2016 election in, Wisconsin, yeah. in Wisconsin, in Wisconsin, which Trump won. Which Trump, Trump won. Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, even though she won 2.8 or 9 million more votes in the popular category, he won these states and took the presidency. So I swore, I swore I wouldn't vote. You know, I just thought, I'm not going to, you know, not, I'm not going to do something like that again. But this time I, I really, really believed that Bernie had a shot. I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't going to be futile. And you'll know that moment during the race where he had taken Nevada and he was picking up votes. It really looked good. And none of us probably expected all the Democratic, all those centrist Democrats to all of a sudden back out, pushed by Obama, clearly, mm -hmm. and, and embrace Biden. Biden, who was a neoliberal, okay, had a terrible re re record on just about every question that a progressive would vote uh, you know, would, would, would vote on. Um, and he's a liar. And that debate against Bernie, he just lied. I didn't count the number of times he lied, but he lied. So at that moment, I thought, okay, you know, I really worried it was, it was over because of the way that thing went. And I thought, I can't vote for this guy. I just can't. I mean, it's just physically. By the way, and there's a credible rape accusation against him. Yeah. For two yeah. or three. Yeah, which the Times has done its best to sort of, you know, first avoid and now kind of. Yeah. Dance around. But, you know, th there's also this side of me. He is so vile, Trump. I mean, we're talking about a guy. I'm not sure to what extent he was as fascist to begin with as he's become. But it's pretty clear that the Republicans have found their guy. They mm -hmm. Little did they know that they would get someone who was even possibly even more vile than, than most of them. Maybe because in Bernie's case, in, in Trump's case, he's going out of his way to prove just how, to prove just how, vile he is, you know, like mm -hmm. over and over again. So could I really not vote for, for Biden? And, I've, and I want people to hear what I'm about to say. The, I'm not sure that not endorsing Biden gets us anywhere. I'm not endorsing Biden tonight, believe me. But I will tell you what's on my mind. We do better when there is somebody in office who pretends at least to be on our side. Because then we may well develop a certain kind of courage to confront. Now, I, let me make this clear. It didn't happen in the Obama years. We did not challenge Obama from the left. There were movements, undeniably, but they were dispersed. There was the fight for 15. There was the Black Lives Matter. There were all of those things. Bernie has, in, in one sense, has brought those together in a kind of movement, has yet to be tested, but it is a movement of sorts. And the question is, to what extent, going forward, that kind of movement energy can be mobilized to literally challenge Biden from the left. Right. And I think that's important. And what, the only thing that's, that's worrying me right now is that Bernie has shown no, no energy on this question. He has today, we were going to get to this next, I assume, he endorsed, endorsed Biden. Okay, they had a nice little conversation, which was rather boring, actually which we can come back to. But the question is that how does Bernie now pivot in a way as the leader of the movement he started after he's endorsed Biden, 
is going to campaign for him. I mean, I have no doubt he's going to campaign for him. And then how after the election, unless Biden himself makes certain commitments, can Bernie then bellyache uh, as a senator or for that matter, lead a movement from the left? I I just don't know. So these are the kinds of this is the dilemma we face. But I can tell you, I, I broke an oath last time when I voted for Hillary. I didn't take an oath this time, but I am I am I, I do not want to vote for Biden, but I do not in any way, however minuscule or irrelevant my vote is, want to feel that I allowed Trump four more years. He's a racist. He's he's the weirdest kind of anti-Semite. His daughter, you know, converted to Judaism and married this Orthodox. Uh, you know Jack. my theory about that? Yeah, tell me. She converted to Orthodox Judaism because that would mean on Saturdays she couldn't take any calls from Donald. She had one day where ah, she could get a reprieve from her father. Yeah. Well, what do you tell? What do you tell the Bernie supporters? Because Joe Biden, you know, I don't. Know, and you kind of we talked about. It. He is absolutely horrible. And the people who support him, Anita Dunn. The, the people who are behind Joe Biden are the worst of the worst. These are the people from the Clinton administration, the Obama administration, who go take jobs as lobbyists. Joe Lockhart. These are the people right. who who are who against are people, Medicare. Are, right. Yes. Dalton class. They are the worst of the worst. And they're not voting for Biden because they believe in him. They think he's Mr. Moneybags. They're going to get richer when he's elected. What do you tell the Bernie supporters like me who are going to hold their nose? Yeah, I'm going to hold my nose and vote for Joe Biden. Well, you at least live in New York state. Yeah. You live in a state where, hell, you you could vote for Harvey K. Don't think I haven't thought about it. (laughs) You know, I have to tell you, one of the greatest compliments I've ever had is there's a state representative. She was then a state senator. She's now a state representative down in Missouri. Her name is Maria Chappelle Nadal. And she represents the area around St. Louis that Ferguson was inside of. Mm-hmm. And she, in the middle of, before the 2016, was it before 2016? No, before 2018 it was. She actually sent me a note and said, I want to vote for you for, this, for the U.S. Senate here in Missouri. I said, no, what? He goes, yeah, I can't bring myself to vote for Claire McCaskill, McCaskill, but I at least want to feel that I'm voting for someone whose ideas I believe in. So I, she actually, and I don't know how many votes I got, but she rallied a number of her fellow folks, you know, sort of probably black uh, St. Louisans, and I picked up votes. If you were in your 20s, if you were in your 20s and you teach kids who were in their 20s, late teens, why would you vote for Biden? If you're no, in- I, I'm not, I, I can only tell you what was on my mind. I, re- I really, it would be hard for me to try to persuade someone to do it. It's more the case of persuading people to dig deep into your, into your mind and heart and ask to what extent you really want to see Trump next. Now, it sounds like I'm about to vote for Biden. All I'm saying is that this is what goes on in my mind. This is, this He's is, a dis. You know, I met Joe Biden. I wrote jokes for him. I met him while I was working. Did you really? Yeah, yeah, I met him while I was working for the Bill Maher show on HBO. And you know the guy who told him to, to sniff women's hair. Yeah, that's right. Well, actually, you know, Corvette owners when they see 
each other on the street. They honk yeah. their horn and wave. And guys who have hair plugs, bad hair plugs, <laughs> we, we're like Corvette owners. And we gravitated to each other. And he talked my head off for 90 minutes. It was, yeah. it, it was unbelievable. He, has, he suffers from lagoria, diarrhea of the mouth. And he trashed. I couldn't believe the stuff he was telling me about John Kerry. I just met the guy. I thought, really? this guy has oh. loose. This guy's an idiot. He goes, yeah. He talked at me for 90 minutes at the after party. And then he says, I like the way you think. And I felt like saying, hey, asshole, you don't know how I think. I didn't say an effing word. You wouldn't shut up. And he says, here's my number. I'd like to hire you to write some jokes. And I sent him some jokes because it was right after he had gotten into trouble on Imus. He had said that, you know, uh, Barack Obama is a clean black guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, first yeah. Clean right. black. He said, I need to clean up my image. And I sent him jokes and never heard back from him and not even a thank you. Not even. It was uh, he's grotesque. He's a grotesque well, individual. I did tell you. I'm sure I told you, but I'm oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sure I told you the one time I really liked Joe Biden. Did I tell you this? No. So you may recall that back, it was in 1992 when Biden was revealed to have plagiarized. But that was 88. 88. I always make the mistake of saying 92. Sorry. In 88, he made the, he, he was revealed to have, have, he was exposed as having plagiarized speeches. I think the speeches, one, the ones in the States were from Bobby Kennedy, right? Yeah. I think. But and Neil Kinnock, that, the labor. Well, the one that, that really, I think, got him in trouble at first was the fact that he was plagiarizing Neil Kinnock, who was the head of the British Labor Party. And I actually liked him for plagiarizing Neil Kinnock because I liked Neil Kinnock. Right. So I thought at least he's plagiarizing somebody I like. Okay. Right. So once upon a time, I liked Joe Biden. He also got caught plagiarizing in law school, which nobody ever talks about. The know. guy is bad news. Well, the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Did I ever tell you this is never told anyone in public before that um, Bill Moyers and I have an understanding that we can plagiarize each other. Oh, Okay. Yeah, isn't that, I mean, at least that was our. We sent each other notes, and I and I, I said, "Oh, you can use anything I say." He goes, vice versa. Okay, anything. Okay. So. The great Bill Moore's. Let's now turn to uh, the future, Wisconsin. Who wins? Yeah. Who wins Wisconsin? Because Hillary lost Wisconsin. Did she even campaign? Right? Did she never even. That was actually, one of the reasons it said that she lost. Is she? They took for granted that they would win in Wisconsin. They, literally, I was told this by a major insider in the campaign who told me we don't need to come back to Wisconsin. All the polls show we're going to win Wisconsin. And I knew that they were in trouble because it wasn't, I didn't have access to polls, but I had access to people. Mm -hmm. okay? And what I saw, for example, at a, going into a Trump rally one night as I was driving through Green Bay to get to the west side of town was I saw more women going into a Trump rally than I saw men. And since, and if they could be more women, since supposedly he was such a, you know, he was a groper, was the word groper or is that Biden? Yeah. I can't remember now. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was the case that I really was worried that they were utterly misreading, utter, utterly misreading the state of Wisconsin. And what they were misreading was this. One, they, were, they could not face the fact that people did not like the Clintons. And they really did not like the Clintons. They couldn't face the fact that most working people, even if they couldn't have laid it all out for you in detail, the, the many reasons why Bill Clinton screwed them, 
They had a fundamental sense, an instinct, that part of the problems that they've been facing ever since NAFTA, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, had to do with Bill Clinton signing off on NAFTA, mass incarceration, the end to aid to family with dependent children, and then finally, which they probably would have mentioned uh, last if they knew it at all, would have been the fact that he killed the Glass-Steagall Act, which separated in the FDR years commercial and investment banking. So even if they couldn't have named those things, they knew that the 90s were not as the 90s are presented in people's East and West Coast upper class, upper middle class imaginations. Not unlike the 1920s. The 1920s were not the roaring 20s for most working people. So similarly, the 1990s were not the roaring 90s for most working people. Last question. Trump fatigue has set in, and now Biden fatigue sets in. Even before it starts, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so you stop paying attention, you give up, and you make excuses, and you binge watch Netflix. You, Ralph Nader, you keep fighting. You keep fighting, you keep fighting, you keep fighting. So Biden is the nominee. How do you keep fighting? How do you stay angry, hold their feet to the fire, and not worry about people accusing you of undermining the Democratic nominee for president, getting Trump elected? Well, what I intend to do, I've, I'm, I'm segueing in my life to doing this. So I was more than prepared to dump on Biden repeatedly because he deserves to be dumped on. As much as I can, I'm going to resist doing that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to regularly retweet and lay out arguments when I can in public about just how vile Trump is, number one. But it's that a, feels I, tired, doesn't yeah, it? I, I, it does. It does. I can tell you this. When my wife watches the news in the morning and she then wants to report to me how awful Trump is on the, on the day, I almost don't want to hear it. Right. There's, there's this big series. There's a big story in the New York Times and AP about how Trump blew COVID-19. How yes. He was right. warned about it. And I, and I had a slog through this and I'm thinking, do I, I know I have to read it, but yeah. of course he, you know, right. and, and that's when you, that's how you let your guard down. You feel you're too cool for school to go after Trump. Everybody knows that. And so you stop paying attention to him and he steals more from you. Yeah. Now there is something else, however, and this is the thing, this is the thing I that I came away with today. It is really essential, which is why I'm neither, why I'm not, why I'm not publicly saying I will not vote for Biden, nor am I saying, yes, I will vote for Biden. I hope that I'm not alone. I think there are quite a few of us who have at least some kind of public voice. I wish mine were louder and more, you know, smarter sometimes. But I think it's still the case that we should be pushing in some way for somebody, some people in the Biden campaign to realize that if they want to win our votes, that they need to start making commitments. Mm -hmm. and, and I can tell you, I, I've been very disappointed with Bernie for some time now. However much I adore the guy and however much I think he, he, he probably, you know, in one sense, was a miracle worker in both campaigns. It's also the case, it's also the case that I think he could have done more during both, number one. Number two, I think he's, he, he's let, unless I'm wrong, unless they met on, a, on some kind of little Zoom chat or Skype or FaceTime, I think he should have made really serious demands on Biden. Now, 
you can, I, there are people who say, well, you can make all the demands you want. He doesn't have to follow through. I don't care. I want him to go on the record supporting Medicare for all. Then, then I can more effectively go after him later. Okay. Whereas now, if he continues to sort of do the little bullshit that he's done, what did he say? He's going to lower the age of Medicare to 60 and he's going to set up what they call a means test to get you out of your student debt or whatever else, or to go to public higher education without paying tuition. I mean, give me a break. I mean, how dare he? Okay. It's in the middle of the worst crisis imaginable. He is playing. He's, he's like playing with matchbox cars in his living room or something. Right. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So my thinking is I want to do what I can by way of talking to you. I hope Michael brings me back on as we used to do Um, all these. I want to talk to everyone. I want to say it is imperative that we neither go utterly cynical nor that we go utterly Pollyannish. We really have to start doing that. Today, I just saw before I, you and I began to speak, Brianna Joy Gray made it clear she's not endorsing. She's not endor- she loved Bernie, you know, more power to Bernie, but she will not endorse Biden. And there are others who said that. I, I'm not going to say one thing or the other, because I want to be part of a movement that is pre- trying to get Biden or whoever replaces him at the convention, the virtual convention, to make a commitment. Look, Hillary Clinton has moved, moved, she moved faster towards Bernie's agenda than, than Biden seems willing to go. But yeah. who knows? I mean, yeah. Okay. To, to be continued, I'll see you Friday night, I hope, at our nine o'clock. Yeah, I've got it on my calendar. Office hours. I've got it on my calendar. Professor Harvey J.K. is the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. And he has a new book out, FDR on Democracy, The Greatest Speeches and Writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It's a collection of essays and speeches that FDR gave and wrote. If you would like to read a collection of essays and speeches written by and performed by Professor Harvey J.K., I cannot recommend Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, enough It's published by Zero Books. And if you want to really learn about Franklin D. Roosevelt, pick up The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. It is truly great having Professor Harvey J.K., who you can follow on Twitter, at Harvey (laughs) J.K. Thank you, David. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Can't stay wait till Friday night rolls around. Yes, yeah, stay on line for one quick second. Breslin is about to enter the auditorium here at Liberty University. David Feldman is going to be interviewing him here. He's getting a cup of coffee, some water. Mark Breslin is entering the stage. Please welcome Mark Breslin and David Feldman in conversation here at Liberty University.
Thank you so much. Welcome to Liberty University. My name is David Feldman, and I'd like to welcome our guest for this afternoon. He is the founder and the president of Yuck Yucks. It's the largest comedy chain in North America, possibly the world. Please give a warm Liberty University welcome to Mr. Mark Breslin. Hang on, you son of a... David. Yes, sir. Some of my ideas, David, some of my ideas are so, so controversial that even live I'm on a seven second delay. (laughs) (laughs) And I also want to say that, uh, wow, those five people can really make a noise. That's fantastic here uh, at Liberty University. Yeah, they're fantastic. We don't need to self quarantine to shelter in place when we've got Jesus. Also, please welcome Boris Johnson is here, and he just wants to oh. say he wants to say hello. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right, Boris. He's 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 feeling better. He's feeling better. All right. Enough with these games. How are you, sir? No, I'm doing okay. You know, this, these aren't the greatest times in in human history, but I'm getting through them. Yeah. Yeah. How is the nope. self-quarantining? Now, you've been home from Palm Springs for more than 14 days, so you're allowed out yeah, of the house. Yeah, but I, I, still, I can go out, but I don't want to go out. I don't know what's out there. Wow. You've been, yeah. you've been indoors, sir. You, you have been. <laughs> that is, the longer you stay indoors, this is true, the longer yes. you, you begin to fear the outside world, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I took my my son for a uh, a walk, and he has a scooter, and we scootered around the neighborhood. I'm not in a crowded neighborhood, but there was a, a guy, an old guy, on a bicycle, and when he came by us, I moved over so that I wouldn't be near him, and he stopped and he got mad at me. And he wow. said, "You know, I don't have it. I don't <laughs> wow. have it. You know, I don't have it." I said, wow. I, I didn't say you did. I, he said, I had two friends who died of it, but I don't have it. Wow. And I said, okay. So you were all so paranoid now. And then, he's, and then he rode on. It was a very weird moment. It's a bad Rod, Sur- it's a bad Rod Serling teleplay for the Twilight Zone, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, to me, it seems more like the outer limits, <laughs> because that's about the limits I've reached. <laughs> I can tell you right now. How many now, days? I don't know. let how many days, How many has days it been? have I been inside? Yeah. Well, I got back on the 19th of March, so it's almost a month. Wow. Now, I also have to tell you that in a lot of ways, for me personally, it's not giving up all that much because I'm not an outdoorsy person anyway. For me, the outdoors is the place between the car and the mall. Mm-hmm. So I don't, um, I, I don't have a, a big thing about, about you know, going for a walk. Because I normally wouldn't go for a walk anyway. But you know what I miss? I miss things like just um, impulse shopping, uh, walking along the street and deciding I want a burrito or right. I want a pair of socks. Uh, these are the kinds of things that um, I really, I really do miss because they're all about your your freedom. Um, right. It's the freedom to be spontaneous, and that's one of the freedoms that's gone first in this whole thing is the freedom to be spontaneous. You, you can't are be spontaneous about anything anymore. You are a flaneur. We've talked about this. Yes, 
I am a flanner. I, I, I don't like the outdoors, but I really do like people. And for me, um, I love to just go kibitz with strangers. Um, you know, if I buy uh, uh, tea at Starbucks, I love to, you know, kind of get into it with, with the barista behind the counter. And uh, I, I just love all that sort of stuff, and I can't do any of it because my family knows all my jokes, all my lines, so um, it's no fun at all. I have resorted to the material uh, in my family uh, when we have dinner now. The material. My, my nine-year-old has better material than I do. But I want to talk about something yes, sir. Um, that I saw, a couple of things that I saw this weekend. Um, one I thought was terrible and one I thought was very good. Um, the terrible thing I saw was the Saturday Night Live at home uh, so I don't know what did you see it, David? I saw Tom Hanks's opening monologue. It was interesting. Uh, but then I, I'm curious to see the rest of it. So what how was it? Well, I thought it was pretty bad. Um, although, um, as somebody did say, and I won't take credit for the line, Saturday Night Live has been phoning it in for decades. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's great. So, yeah, it is a good line, but I can't, I don't know who said it. It was on my feed. Um, somebody said it, not somebody we know, but, um, and they were probably quoting somebody else. Anyway, right. it's a good line, but it, but it was, it was shocking how amateurish that it really was. Um, the lighting was terrible in most cases. Most of it was unfunny. There were some moments, um, there have to be moments, but, um, generally speaking, it was a big disappointment. And the subtext of it all was, hey, we're really trying here. We're really trying something. Because I think they knew that it wasn't good, but they had to do something. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we, I think that we all feel right now, if you're creative in any way, is you got to do something. What are you going to do? But I don't know, but you got to do something. Otherwise, you're not an artist. you got to do something. you got to make some comment on it. And I saw something that was really amazing this weekend. Yes. The, it's called Saturday Night Seder. Do you know about it? Was this Elon Gold? Nope. Okay. No, this was, um, oh, it was mostly Broadway people doing a Seder, but in a really funny way. And it was all done, you know, individuals at home uh, doing bits of it. Jason Alexander hosted it. Wow. Um, and parts of it were really funny and parts of it were really moving. It was it was terrific. How many um, people and attended I, it? And do you, it was by Zoom and invitation only, I would assume. No, no, it was it's on. I guess it's on YouTube, um, like everything else now. Um, it was on Saturday. We didn't see it on Saturday. We saw it the next day. So my wife caught up with it on the internet. I, I'm sure you just type in Saturday Night Seder and you get to see it. Um, they raised some money, which is good. But um, what was really impressive is that they actually used the. You know, Zoom technology properly, and it was well thought out, well shot, well lit, uh, well written, um, and it was impressive. I think it was probably the first really great work of the plague. And I, I know I'm Jewish, so obviously I'm going to relate to the material well, but I think anybody, even if they aren't Jewish, will get what they're doing and um, and be impressed with it. All right, that's interesting, because... Friday night, we did our first uh, town hall via Zoom. We had about 75 people. It was invitation only. I had Professor Harvey J.K. on the show. Liam McEnany was also part of it. He's a great comedian. We're doing it every uh -huh. Friday night at 9 o'clock. 
you're invited. We're going to have Dr. Jennifer Vertel, and she's an animal behaviorist, and everybody is going to introduce their pets to the doctor and ask questions uh, on how to improve the behavior of either the pet or the owner of said pet. Would you like an invitation? Sure. That'd be great. Love to do it. And if you, um, if you don't, my, nope, no, no, go ahead. My pet is right now actually being taken care of by uh, professionals. And I don't think I've ever told you what pet we have in the house because it's kind of unusual. Yes. We have a pet axolotl. What? What is that? It's a bioluminescent salamander that was um, almost extinct, except now they're being bred for to be pets. But you you put them in a fish tank, a big fish aqua- in a big aquarium, but they're not fish. They're salamanders, so that they can live in the water or out of the water, uh, back and forth, and they look prehistoric. They're amazing. Um, they grow to be about eight inches. Well, let me whip it out and I'll see. Yeah, about eight inches. Um, Wait, we are talking about your salamander. Yeah, uh, I just whipped out my salamander, which was not an easy one. I've used that line before in bars for I don't know how long. Would you like to see my salamander? It's bioluminescent. You must be really ill. Uh, your your salamander seems um, to be brooding two eggs. Sorry, yes, that's right. Um, those are the gills, um, <laughs> actually. Stuff to the gills. Okay. I usually um, breathe through my anyway. nose when I get close to the salamander, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> I don't need to. So um, anyway, um, these axolotls, and interestingly enough, axolotl was the, one of the two nonsense words used in Mad Magazine um, as far back as the 60s, and I don't know where they got that name. Mm. Axolotl, as you remember, and Putsrebi, and I don't know what Putsrebi means. Right. I, I should look it up. But um, anyway, we we became very interested in this because my, my son encountered it somehow um, in a book, and we started to look at them, and then we went to a pet expo about a year ago, and we said, do you have any axolotls? And the guy went, oh, yeah, here, take a look. And we love it. It's a terrific little pet, but... Um, we were, when we went away, we boarded it out, and we don't want the guy to come back right now with all his, you know, virus, viral load. So, oh, so, you, well, um, so you don't have the pet with you? No, not now. We will in another month or whenever oh, they relax okay. regulations and stuff. Right. But uh, it's a great little pet, and no one knows about axolotls. Right, right. Well, going back to SNL, Saturday Night Seder, yeah. and my Friday Night Zoom show, it was very interesting. Yeah. I was very nervous doing this because it was a town hall. We didn't send out too many invitations. It was, I kind of mentioned it briefly during the show. And I think I put up one Twitter post inviting people. And we sent out about, I don't, I don't know, but we, about 70 people showed up and we had them from all over the world. We had a woman from Mexico City. We had Timothy Ulrich in Beijing. We had uh, Lane and Ronan in England. And we had some. A couple. Well, clearly, these are people who want to work on their English. And uh, you gave them a wonderful opportunity. Thank you, David. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, and I and I couldn't sleep afterwards. I was revved up by it. The possibilities, and I don't know what the possibilities are, which brings me to SNL, because yeah. 
there's a, a fascism to broadcast television. It's the, I was hired, I got the gig, so this stuff must be funny. I've got this this gigantic network behind me, so if I say something or I write something and they produce it, it's important. Does the Zoom lay bare how hollow so much of what they do on SNL is? Well, you're you're centering out SNL, um, but when I think you really mean an awful lot of other stuff besides SNL. SNL is its own world. It's its own universe. It's its own ecosystem and has been for 40 years. Um, right now, I would have to say if uh, that the problem with SNL is that the performing is better than the writing. Um, I have no uh, complaints about the performers. I think they're very good at what they do, um, but I think that the writing is weak and forced and, and corporate. too much of it. And corporate. And corporate and corporate and a lot of other stuff, too. Um, but um, this really was felt lazy to me. Um, and I think when you talk about what you just what you just said, I think there's an element of laziness that's implicit in your criticism because, you know, they've been hired, as you say, they're whatever they do must be good because, well, they made this cut. And and I and I, that gives them the freedom to be somewhat lazy. I thought a lot of the stuff on that show was lazy. Not all of it. There were some there were some good moments. And I'll always laugh at Weekend Update because whoever's writing the jokes always one out of five is a killer. And um, that's kind of all I need. You know, I don't expect any more. If I walk away from the sh- watching the show on Fast Forward, which everybody watches, does that show have enough commercials, by the way? They, the ratio of commercials to actual uh, content is about two to one now, and you just have to just continuously fast forward through it. I would never watch it live. It could never be Saturday Night Live for me. It's always Saturday Night Live on PBR. Do you think, so, do, do you think Zoom is going to be a major threat to broadcast television because Zoom offers two things. One, everybody gets to be a star. Everybody gets to be on television. And you're beginning to discover that your friends on Zoom are sometimes as funny, if if not funnier, than some of the stuff you're forced to watch, at least on broadcast television. They're, they're funnier on Zoom because they don't have to produce the same kind of content over and over and on and on again and again and again. I mean, um, I think especially with comedy, comedy was only meant, you were only meant to write 10 minutes worth of new great stuff every year, um, not 10 minutes worth of new stuff every every day or every week. So I think that's it's kind of unfair. Uh, there's a demo- general democratization of, of entertainment anyway that uh, certainly has been going on without Zoom, even with things like Twitter. When you get your Twitter feed, do you not see a lot of really funny stuff? From I, see, I see things that are so brilliant. I can't believe I got a job as a comedy writer. I see people right. who but have... Here's the differ- but here's the difference, David. You can produce whatever you produce as a comedy writer, which is either good or great, or maybe not so good, over and over again on a daily basis. The people that you're reading on Twitter may have one great idea, and they may have one great idea every three weeks. So they're not professionals, but they do have great ideas. So I find that that's true with Twitter. I find that's true. I see really funny stuff uh, that people do on Instagram and on, uh, on, on Facebook. And they've been doing that for a long time, um, what we'll call civilians, not really um, actual comedians. But they came up with a funny thing because people are funny. People are funny. They don't have to be. Yeah, they don't have to be 
professional comedians to be funny. But what professional comedians can do is that they can um, come up with a lot of stuff on demand. And that's not what um, just the general public can do. And repeat so the moment. Zoom, and repeat that moment consistently. Yes, that's right. And to create right. that moment consistently, fake that moment consistently, maybe right. is even a more cynical way of putting it. But do I see Zoom replacing uh, network television? Hardly. But do I see Zoom maybe replacing Twitter? Maybe. Right, right. I think that's the competition, not network television. Yeah, we're not, always looking. Uh, cable television, not streaming. Right. Baby boomers are always looking for the thing that's going to kill the, the ABC, NBC and CBS here in the United States. And you're not going to kill ABC, NBC and CBS because they're behemoths. But you can cut into their audience. Fewer and fewer people each year are watching the three major networks. Well, well, which is why I thought where I thought you were going to go with the line was um, uh that they're doing a good enough job as it is, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. I mean, what do you watch on, what do you personally watch on network television? Now, I have two shows that I watch, and I'm not even sure they're considered network. They're cable, really. They're, they're basic cable. I watch, here's what I watch. I watch Curb. I watch Homeland, which I love. And uh, I, I'm watching, oh, I'm wondering if you're watching this. Um, you should be. The Plot Against America. I, I read half that book, and so I'm going to watch the second only, half of the series. You only read the half the book? It's, in, it's, it's one of Roth's best, and it I is, it is so ahead of its time and so sadly ahead of its time, because as they're talking about Lindbergh, um, it's really Trump, and uh, it's wonderful. It's, it's, it starts off the first episode, I think, is a bit slow. But then it really takes off. And uh, so I'm addicted to that. But there's three sort of what I would call mainstream, non-streaming uh, shows. And actually, when I think about it, none of them are on network. They're all on cable. But what, are you, what, what would you watch on network or on cable? I'm trying to remember one of my guests Friday. I think it might have been Leah McEnany who said this. Said that Lindbergh was such an anti-Semite. No, France is so anti-Semitic. When Lindbergh arrived... They were cheering <laughs> him. They didn't even know he had just done a solo flight across the Atlantic. They were just <laughs> cheering him for his anti-Semitism. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's great. He said it yeah, you know, much better and in conversation. So what am I watching? Yeah, but it's, it's, it's a great joke. And I, and I, and I know if you, if you work the joke, it would be yeah, right, you'd, right. You'd put it together so perfectly. But um, yeah. What, what do I watch? Uh, what yeah, do what I do watch? You watch? I, I, oh, I should also say I also watch... Uh, something else i watch and can't remember but anyway go on i've realized that i'm a bit of a freak so what i watch uh you know i have basic cable i have hbo and showtime i have netflix i have it all and when i sit down to watch my television i can't figure out how to get everything going and I go, I should be reading a book instead. So I don't watch anything. I should. I'm not proud of saying this, especially now during the pandemic. I feel the most dangerous thing in my house is the television. Um, well, I mean, let's take it a little further and say, is it do you not think that the pandemic, I don't want to get, you know, weird about conspiracy theories, but this has certainly benefited uh, Netflix and Amazon. 
Just saying. Or has it? I just wanted to sound smart. Or has it? Are people rediscovering? Well, are people being forced to? I, I would assume that a lot of people are getting sick of binge watching television. Yes. In this sense, um, they want to go out. You know, when um, uh, there have been articles written about how, you know, people won't go back to comedy clubs when everything opens up and people won't go to movies now, the cinema, when 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 uh, things open up. But now what I'm reading in people's feed is, hey, this is great. Netflix has been terrific, but uh, I want to go. I want to go out and see a show. I mm-hmm. want to go out and see a show because nothing, nothing um, is will ever get in the place of sitting in a room with a bunch of strangers sharing some kind of communal experience with uh, somebody performing on stage. Nothing will ever change that because it makes, when you think about it, sometimes it makes no sense. Why would you go to a rock concert, have lousy, have a lousy view of the band, terrible acoustics when you can sit and you can just play the record at home? Why would you do it? Yeah. What is the virtue? Why go to a sporting, why go to a sporting event? Uh, and watch something from a, a far, far distance where you have to actually watch it on the jumbo screen when you're sitting there, which is an irony on top of an irony, uh, when you could just watch it at home where you get close-ups and commentary and all kinds of things. But the reason is that people need people. Thank you. I'm Barbara Streisand. <laughs> Hello, beautiful. Yes. Uh, the world well, already got off. Do you, do you wonder, though, if... You know, because these sporting franchises are so powerful, they can lure us back into the stadiums. But do you wonder if some people are going to say, why am I paying $500 for a a Broadway ticket? Why am I paying $1,000 to see this musician when I can stay Well, I've always wondered that, frankly. I've always wondered why people pay that kind of money. I'm a big fan of moderately priced entertainment. I think a movie is a good deal at $14 or whatever it is. Although, actually, after you add in all the popcorn and stuff, I guess it's it's $100 for a family to go out to see a movie these days. But, um, but that's, <laughs> that's reasonable. I would, $100 just for the popcorn, right. Yeah. Well, that's the butter. Um, and um, <laughs> I... I, I I don't understand why people would pay $750 for a seat to go see the Eagles. It doesn't make any sense to me. It seems almost obscene. I wanted to go to see Elton John um, on his last, supposedly last tour uh, and take take my wife. And the tickets were outrageous. You know, they were like $900 and people were buying them. And I just won't do it. $900 per ticket. Yeah. For good seats. Yeah, you can get seats like way, way, way at the back of a stadium for 150 bucks, but you're way, way back at the stadium. So I don't quite understand why people would do that uh, then, let alone now. And in the future, when everybody is kind of broke, I don't think it's going to be that easy to sell those $500 tickets. But I do think it will be easy to sell a $20 ticket to go see a band in a bar. Right, right. Who will work there? I think people are going to walk back. Yeah, I think people are going to flock back to, you know, modestly priced entertainment um, in a big, big way. So that's keeping me going because right now my clubs are closed. We've got no income coming in. Um, none of the comics are working. None of my I have, I have almost 500 people working for me part time or full time. I'm not counting comics. I mean, wait staff and support staff. They're all out of a job. And um, I, I, I just 
I just want this thing to come back. Uh, but when it, when it comes back, I believe it will come back in a big way. But I wouldn't want to sell refrigerators because I think that, you know, that's going to be a, that's a, anything that's a big ticket item, I think people are going to wait because they just won't have a lot of money. And running a, a club with the, the COVID-19 looming over everybody, it can be done. Everybody's going to wear masks. Everybody's going to wear gloves. And well, that's going to be terrible for a comedy club because here's what you're going to hear. The laugh is going to sound like this. <laughs> the, good news is, weird. the good news is I can become a ventriloquist. Yes. Oh, that's funny. That's really funny. That's a funny bit. Why don't we? Uh, why don't we book? That's a funny bit. No, that, David, that's a funny bit. Uh, you, you just do a bit where you're a ventriloquist. Um, uh-huh. You've got the dummy on your lap, and you've got you've got the COVID mask on your on your face, and <laughs> and you do the, That's funny. That's really funny. Why don't we? Uh, maybe we. Well, we'll talk about that. that. That would be funny. Do you remember? Do you remember Rick Moranis? Rick Moranis had a great bit of, uh, about uh, ventriloquist. He's a ventriloquist, and he says, as you can see, I'm a ventriloquist, and I don't even have to nude in my nits. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, you know, uh, what is his name? All right, I, I can't remember the ventriloquist. The, 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 well, there are not that many famous ones, so just go with it, and I'll, maybe I'll be able to fill in the name. Uh, moving on, moving on. You know, one of the things I'm okay. one of the things I'm concerned about is not being around people, being in isolation. My memory is not as sharp as it should be. I always pride myself on my uh, what's that word again? Memory. Uh, but when you're not having real, honest to good human interaction, I find I'm not as sharp as uh, I I wish I. Were and uh, yeah, I mean it's not healthy. Absolutely, Willie Tyler, Willie Tyler and Lester. Yes, I remember them. Okay, Willie Tyler, I think is technically the best ventriloquist I've ever seen in my life. You cannot see those lips move. It's amazing. Anyway, go ahead. I on the dummy. Um, (laughs) Oh, uh, you know that's not as much of a. Thing. I'm sorry. Now I've lost my train. Did you ever book Otto and George? Yes, I used to book Otto and George all the time, if for no other reason than just the Kennedy bit. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I loved Otto and George. Fantastic. Too too bad about uh, George, huh? Yeah. Or Otto. Which yeah. one? Which one was the real one? I don't know. I can never remember. I don't know, but I I loved. I just still do. Everybody, if you want to laugh, just laugh. Anyway. Go so on YouTube. You so go on YouTube good. and look up Otto and George. Yeah, it was so funny and so unlike what. When we think of ventriloquists, we think of the Ed Sullivan Show and cruise ships. <laughs> and this guy was so not bad. Uh huh. Did we lose him? We lost him. Let's call him back. Hello. Yeah, we lost Are you. you. There? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, we lost you. We have okay. we're, we're having a storm here in Manhattan, as though we don't need more aggravation here that you wouldn't believe. You would not believe how windy it is outside. So, so now we're up to twelve plagues. Yes. Okay. Yes. 
Hey, um, uh, when does this pandemic end? Well, it never ends. But I think what you mean is when when does life return to some vestige of normal? And the answer is slowly and gradually. And I think, look, I'm not a scientist. I don't know. But my gut feeling is that the isolation is working. The, uh, the, uh, the curve is flattening. And June 1st, people will start to take on some kind of normalcy in their lives. We'll be able to uh, gather again, but not in huge groups. And then through the summer, things things will be relaxed. Yeah, I'll give you an example. You know, I belong to a pool for the summer, uh, which is great because I go there every day and I lounge around the pool. I do my work from the from the pool deck. Um, you know, I bring my laptop. It's fantastic. But I have a feeling what's going to happen is uh, July and August they will restrict the number of people um, who come to the pool, and you'll have to sign in for a time, and mm-hmm. you'll get a time spot of you know maybe an hour or two hours. Which, again, this is the end of spontaneity, which is, you know, the human freedom that we're accustomed to and what we live for is that freedom. So I think things are going to happen, but they're going to happen on the, you know, they're going to roll things out back to normal rather than just sort of flip a switch and say, okay, everybody can go to, go to uh, Burning Man now. Right, right. I'm optimistic. I about my, I always thought Burning Man was about my penis. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, uh, I was wrong. Boy, was I wrong when I went there. Yeah, I thought I'd find a cure. <laughs> Mark it only Bre- got worse. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America, perhaps the world. We'll talk to you next week, I hope. Sounds good to me, David. I'll look forward to it. Thank you. God bless you. Be safe. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. We believe in democracy, not Oligarchy. (laughs) Today, we say to the private health insurance companies, whether you like it or not, the United States will join every other major country on earth and guarantee health care to all people as a right. is a human right, not a privilege. And together, we will pass a Medicare for all single-payer program. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Joining us from, where are you? Long Neck, Delaware. If you like fucking your cousin, this is the place to be on a Monday. Long Neck, <laughs> Delaware, Delaware, Delaware. Oh, other places are putting on masks. 
but we are going out and drinking out of flasks. That's right. <laughs> Delaware, our safety is we pull out of our cousin's ass to make sure she doesn't get pregnant. Delaware, Delaware, long neck. We call it long neck because we got short dicks. Long neck, Delaware. <laughs> Delaware in the morning. What's up, Davy Feldman? Hey. Everybody's heard of comic Aaron Berg. Berg, Berg, Berg. Berg is a I love this song. I haven't played this in a while. Can you hear it? I hear it. I'll just play my favorite part. Yeah. Oh, where did the music go? Hello? Excuse me, I ordered music on this section. Would you point my mouth? Jim Mahood made that. It gets better and better when I listen to that. I love Aaron, it. The great Such Arabic great song. So, I'm sorry? Such a great song. It's got a good melody. You want to get up and dance to it. You know? Yes, yes. Last yeah. time we talked, you were in Delaware, smoking a cigar, looking at the water. How are you holding up? You're, you, you, have you been in Delaware since the last time we talked? 29 days, man. Wow. Yeah. This is lower, slower Delaware, so... The incest happens over a longer <laughs> period of time here, and uh, they're shorter, the people, uh -huh. hence the name Lower Slower Delaware. 29 days. I think we're done. We're ready to cash our chips in. It would seem to me, uh, although New York is somewhat of a police state right now, it is time to go home. So the peak has hit more or less. We are going to go home this week. And hunker down at home in Forest Hills. Uh, what is the etiquette? Because I've been told it's rude to leave Manhattan and bring my disease with me. Mm -hmm. Is it considered acceptable to come from Delaware into the vortex? I don't think anybody cares. I mean, I think we're going to get stopped driving to the highway, like to the interstate. But I think once we're on, they're going to be, where are you going? Home. Where were you? Delaware. We self-quarantined for 28 days. None of us have symptoms. My first two wives are dead. Uh, <laughs> we have uh, we have proof that it was coronavirus related. See, mm -hmm. the hands that choked them to death had watched <laughs> news that was talking about coronavirus. So like any good uh, liberal state, they included those numbers to increase them. Right. Uh, also, my penis uh, yes. was once near one of the Cuomo's at a bathhouse. So <laughs> it is probably Corona that killed this person. I don't know. We're, we're scared to go back. I mean, yesterday was a scary day. And then today we had a huge windstorm that knocked out all the power. And uh, we were without power for upwards of 40 minutes and here the toilets run on a pump so you can't flush the toilets without power so we're just shitting in the kitchen i didn't know it was bedlam uh shitting in the kitchen yeah why would you shit shitting. in the kitchen well we didn't know what to do nerves took over uh my my father-in-law goes you can't use the toilets i fucking drop a deuce on the ice maker and freeze <laughs> and he starts wigging out. He goes, fucking ice comes out of there. I'm like, not now. There's no power. Uh, 
my wife didn't know what to do. She's swinging tampons around like she's Wonder Woman. <laughs> my baby was the only one that seemed calm enough. She's mm-hmm. just eating chocolate all willy-nilly. Mm-hmm. I had the dog hooked up on a skewer. We were ready to <laughs> try him. We didn't know if the freezer was still good. 40 minutes clicked in. I, I, it was nuts over here. We, you, we, you know, we're city people. We don't know what to do for 40 minutes with no power. My wife brings out a game of rummy cube. I fucking winged it at her mouth. I thought it was a weapon. We didn't know what to do. It was it was nuts. It's crazy. Right. We're we're gonna come home. It's time. We're New Yorkers. It's part of who we are. And to not be there makes us feel like we're not our ourselves. And it's beautiful here. We went for a big hike yesterday in the woods. Uh, we uh, you know Christine went out on a canoe yesterday, or as the natives call it, the boat which took our land away. <laughs> Um, and we had a great time, but it's, I think it's time to get back. We've also been here for a month. My in-laws, you know, I love Bob and Nancy, but I think they're getting fed up with us being here and it's, it's their house and it's like a month. And I don't think that the death toll numbers are high enough to justify having your daughter and her husband stay with you for a month. It's like if people were dying like crazy, you'd be like, yeah, it's essential for her to be here to stay alive. But now it's like, Go back to New York. Go go buy some dirt bikes and ride them around Harlem. I think that's what they're telling us to do. I, you want my opinion? I'm going to give it to you anyway, whether you want it sure. or not. Of course, I they would do. stay put. I wouldn't come back to Manhattan or New York you're, or you're Forest Hills. Why? Why? Because you're in the epicenter. You come back. They are they are overworked, over understaffed. It's a disaster zone here. And God forbid you need something as simple as dental work. Good luck going to a dentist here. Good luck having, a, a, you know, a minor medical uh, procedure or need. It can't be done. Why, why tax the system? Why tax the system by coming back? You think it taxes the system? Well, I, I want to get home. I have my mail. What if I have a check from the government? Uh, I ordered sneakers. What, you know, I'm without these sneakers for a while. Mm-hmm. Do, do you not feel like I should go home? Because here I'm an outsider. And they, David, they don't care here. I went to the Rite Aid. I put on masks, a mask and gloves. Uh, granted, the mask was my wife's dirty underpants. <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> we didn't that'll have kill the coronavirus yeah, it, yeah that'll kill anything believe you <laughs> me you know what i'm saying because her vagina stinks <laughs> all right all hey right, did right. i walk by a wet market or <laughs> I fucking my wife <laughs> oh i think i just found a bat head oh that's <laughs> your vulva <laughs> um I went in, I had a mask on, I had gloves on. They looked at me like I was a freak. Nobody right. else, mask, gloves, people working there, nothing. They don't care. They, I think it's, I think like we in New York were behind Wuhan by a couple months. I feel like these small town places have the same month and a half, two month lag where they either don't think it's real. A lot of people still think. You know, the, oh, the flu numbers are this and this and this, and they're not really looking at it. Um, they don't think it's real. You go out, it, it's nuts. The, here's the good things here. I can walk, I can golf, I can play tennis. We have time and space, but I also feel like we're uh, 
choking our my in-laws. I feel like they kind of want us out of here. It's been a month. Well, you know, they should uh, – have they articulated that? They probably just want you gone. They're happy with their daughter and their granddaughter. No, I think they like me better than their daughter. <laughs> uh, I cook. Once in a while, I'll take Bob out, smoke some weed with him, turn on some Bob Marley are, music. Are you kidding me? You're smoking up. dope with your father-in-law? Sure, once in a while. Are you effing kidding me? I, I effing kid you not. Uh, once a week, we'll go outside, smoke a joint, socially distance. We'll stay six feet apart and then let our saliva drip between each other as we share the joint. But, uh, yeah, I'll do that. You know? And does he let his guard down? Does he mellow out? Does he sure. tell you things that he shouldn't? Does he tell you things? Do you confess yeah. things to him that he shouldn't know? When yeah, you're I go, uh, I go. Hey, hey, smell this. And he goes, "What's that?" And I go, "Your daughter." <laughs> <laughs> I do an El Chapo mustache on his upper lip with my fingers. <laughs> oh, oh, <man. laughs> Are you able to like? I can't imagine getting stoned with my father-in-law because you're in a you have to be guarded at all times around this man. I mean, I would if my daughter brings home a guy and he wants to smoke dope with me. I'm not letting my guard down around him. He Why? he's got to he's got to be on his best behavior around me. We look Overall, I'm a pretty good person. My, yes, you are. Yes, you my, are. My major flaws right now are an unbridled, pure red hatred for the nation of China. Aside from that, I'm that's, a pretty good guy. Yeah, but that you can't do that. That's not healthy. That's a pretty bad thing. Yeah, I, I feel like it's not a good thing either. But I do, and, and stop me from dwelling on this, but the hypocrisy coming out of um, China where they say that they're being attacked and it's racist. I watched Bill Maher's thing the other day. And that was horrible. It was ignorant. You you didn't like it. I didn't think it was. I think if you... First of all, he said things come, they call the virus by where it came from. So he said the Spanish flu came from Spain. No, Bill, Uh it came from Kansas. There was a reason. Yes, the Spanish flu came from Kansas. And we... Kansas, Spain, which is a... Yes, it's no, a no, part no. of Spain no, no. where Dorothy was born. We brought, Spain. we brought the flu to Europe when the Yanks started coming to fight World War One. But because Spain sat out World War One, they got they got the flu named after them. That's the truth. Okay. It comes from Kansas. So Bill got that wrong. Second What about Ebola? Okay. Some of them are right. Okay. Some of them. Look, would you like it if hang on for one second? Suppose there were a when when uh, AIDS was called gay plague. Now, it ended up coming to us uh, from when your uncle Mort banged Mm -hmm. a monkey. I think we have uh, audio footage of that. Okay, we we do. We we have audio of your uncle Mort. Yes, we do. Can All right. you bring that up? Yeah, let's. Uh, that would be clipping right. number four. Okay, get your guy to put it through. Yeah. <laughs> the past. <laughs> Last week at Pesach. 
<laughs> All right, everybody. I don't understand how this Zoom Seder is going to work, <laughs> but I will tell you this. I'm not happy, and I don't like the fact that the brisket is undercooked <laughs> and that these hard-boiled eggs are runny. I didn't even <laughs> boil them. I don't care. I'm dead. Your mother won't shut up. She won't <laughs> shut up. Is her, how's the grandchildren doing? Are you liking school? Do you, what do you mean there's no school? It's, uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, you used to have to go to school. <laughs> this matzo ball soup tastes like It's horrible. I can taste. She didn't even make it melting. It's just pieces of hard matzo inside of a tennis ball that she cut open. And now I have to eat it because she has no brain. Your mother has no brain. Now, excuse me while I go to the bathroom with our pet monkey, Alfred. My uh, Alfred, come to the. Oh, yeah. Oh, I can't wait till the monkey starts making noises. Here comes the freedom. Oh, honey. Honey, I've got the maror. I've got the maror. Let me bring the maror in. Do you have this? Uh, the, oh, God. Let me get the saltwater tears from his eyes. I'm making a whole Seder plate in here. Billy, 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 the Jews caused AIDS. The Jew, and there suppose they called it the Jew plague. Because, you know, gay yeah. plague. There were, yeah. How many plagues were there for Passover? David, I understand his point. I, I understand how it could be deemed a racial term, but I also understand the point where sometimes we're more worried about political correctness than we are labeling something. For example, there's a guy on Twitter, I'm not going to say his name, but I've been very angry at him. He called out Bill Maher. He's an Asian-American comic. He's upset about it. But at the same time, it's like, OK, but let's also look at more impactful things when our government has been neglectful. China's government has been neglectful. There's no no one's right or wrong. Both things are wrong and it's causing death and it's causing a lot of problems in the world. Why don't we address that instead of the actual term of the thing? And if you say Bill Maher calling it the Chinese virus is causing violence, there's been like five instances of no, fifteen probably more. Fifteen hundred. As a matter of fact, we have Emil Guillermo. Hang on for one second. Emil Guillermo was on Friday's show. He's from ALDEF, the Asian Legal Defense and Education Fund. He says there have been 1,500 crimes, hate crimes committed against right. Asians since in America since... In America. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to say it's wrong. It is wrong to do that. It is wrong to take this out on Asian Americans. But we also have to locate what, where this is coming from. And it's like, it's it's not Bill Maher's viewers that are going out assaulting Asian Americans. Well, here here's what Bill did wrong. What he did wrong is he started talking about something that didn't need to be talked about. When you're facing a pandemic at the scale we're facing, the least of our concern should be, what, what are we going to call it? All right. What are we going to call it? Is there a problem with the wet markets? Maybe, maybe, but there's a real problem here in the United States with comorbidity. We have like more than half this country is fat. We have issues when it comes to what we eat and it's right. killing us and it's making COVID-19 
more lethal because if you're overweight, you're more susceptible. So before we start judging these wet markets, we should deal with what we're, what we're eating. I agree. And I also think that when people go, oh, the government cares about our health, I don't think the government cares about our health because if they did, they wouldn't have waited uh, for a pandemic to be like, everybody's got to be healthy. Why are fast food places so big? Why is American convenience at the forefront when it's like, you know, there's a small cluster of people that understand how health works and the rest of America is just like, I'll throw this down my throat right now. The government does not care about American health. There's more to this pandemic than health. It's being politicized. So the, the mistake Bill made, the mistake Bill made is why are you focusing with all that? This is the question I always ask when people bring up sexual, racist, ethnic issues. Why or are you discussing you call it my Twitter timeline? Yes, go ahead. Why are you choosing to discuss this? Why? Because life is a series of choices and priorities. Bill Maher has millions of people watching him. Millions of people. Why is he choosing on a Friday night to use his bully pulpit to talk about what we should be calling COVID-19? Huh. It seems David. like a waste of time. And the fact that he's prioritizing calling it the Wuhan flu suggests he's got uh, racism on his mind. Why is that the thing that's so pressing is with he all racist? that's going on? I mean, you've seen his stance on Muslims before. He takes a hard line on that, too. Yeah, but yeah. I also think to a certain degree he's a free thinker because there's a lot of other issues that he toes the line on. When Look, you wake up, I, we have to wrap it up. But here's here's why I want to stay on longer. I, ha- make, I have to. You I make the to. next guy wait. I'm going to text him and say he's going to wait. You no, and no, I, no, 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 because no, I because I can't. I, we'll do we'll do this next next Tuesday. Get your whole day behind before you close. All right, close with your thought, and then I have to. You, my sponsor has to do a read. Okay, there are every day a hundred issues that need to be addressed by the government, by the hosts of talk shows by ordinary American citizens. There are a hundred. You have to pick which ones are the most important. What you call COVID-19 is the least important issue in the middle of a pandemic. The fact that Bill Maher, who I love, who I think is the bravest out there, the fact that he chose that to talk about last Friday night suggests a whiff of racism. Why would you choose, with all that's going on, why would you choose to discuss that? Because anger, and and I'm not saying it's right. And I am kind of taking your side after you talk. And And we've seen in the New York Times, we've seen that there were memos written warning that this thing coming out of Wuhan is going to roll through America and kill possibly hundreds of thousands of people. And 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 Donald Trump did nothing. You're going to blame the Chinese wet markets for this? People need someone to get angry at. So you right. can see the divided line because we people feel powerless, David. So people are either blaming China or blaming the American government, or blaming their governor. It's happening in Florida. They're blaming their governor. Um, so it, it's 
a place where you're right. People shouldn't be angry. We should try and maintain positivity and find a solution. Like they say on Gordon Ramsay's cooking shows, we find, oh no, it was John Taffer, the bar rescue guy. We don't embrace excuses. We embrace solutions. Exactly. And also this bar is a shithole. And I just fingered a waitress back. Then. <laughs> that is what John Taffer said. We have to wrap it up. We have to wrap okay. it up. Okay. Aaron Berg. Aaron this Berg. This segment brought to you by Aaron Berg's Wet Market. Now open <laughs> in his in-laws garage. Stop by <laughs> anytime. <laughs> All right. Aaron Berg. What is the name of your podcast? In Hot Water. Monday to Thursday on Compound Media. Gum Fridays. Patreon.com slash Gum Fridays. Brand new album comes out next week, American Etiquette. Get it for pre-sale on iTunes. I love David Feldman. What's the name of your documentary? 25 Sets. It's on Amazon Prime right now, iTunes, Google Play, everywhere you can get documentaries, except Netflix because they suck the devil's dick. Thank you. I'll talk to you next week. I love you. I got to go. I love you. All I, right. I Tell go. Mark I said hi. Okay. I love you. Thank right, you. Bye. Bye-bye.